Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 31 of the Avocado Gamescast, the Avocado's gaming podcast. This is our final episode of 2017, and we'd like to take this opportunity to look back on the year that was in gaming. And it was a stellar year, as I think you'll agree. Um, gaming this year took us to a post-apocalyptic wasteland filled with robotic dinosaurs. It showed us a depressed Midwestern town populated by anthropomorphic cartoon animals. And it even took us on a globetrotting journey on an airship that was shaped like a top hat. Um, 2017's games just took us all over the map. And we would love to chat about them with you. Um, that's why... Later in, the se- later in the podcast, uh, we'll be bringing on some members from the community to talk about their favorite games of the year. Uh, but first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Merv, and I'm joined today by our diligent editor, the Kappa. Hey, what's up? And also by the Avocado's most prolific meme generator and high priest to the garbage ape, the Radio Cat. May the ape be with you, my child. Well, it's great to have you guys here uh, to talk about 2017, because it's been a really good year for video games. That it has. It has, yeah. Yeah, so let's just actually launch right into it. First, we're going to start by talking about the year's news stories. And one of the biggest news stories of the year, I shouldn't say the biggest news story of the year, one of the most recent news stories of the year, more accurately, was the Game Awards, which just happened uh, as from the time of recording this, it happened two days ago on Thursday. Um, we're recording this on Saturday the 9th. So what did you guys think of the Game Awards? Uh, I mean, actually, uh, the production was better than it had been. Um, I mean, the weird thing about it, I think somebody mentioned this in the live chat we had, it's always like the serious juxtaposed with this just goofy, you know, throwback idea of what a gamer is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, and it, it's always kind of grating because it's like you can't have it both ways. You can't try to be this prestigious thing then a guy showing up get to receive the reward in a T-shirt. You know, it's just yeah. I, 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 I think the Game Awards is trying to figure out its place, right? It's trying to figure out where it belongs. And that's what I kind of mostly noticed from the production side of it, um, first of all. Yeah, yeah, it seems like for me it's not even so much that, you know, not everybody's dressed in a suit and tie. It's more like – there's this conflict between wanting to be taken seriously artistically and the crass commercialism that sort of underlies it. Like there's an ad break uh, every every 20 minutes and then there's like uh, everything sponsored by somebody. Mm-hmm. It feels like, I don't know, it feels like it's it's trying to sell me shit and then when it's really just supposed to be celebrating video games. Yeah, and I mean, the Oscars and other awards networks don't really need to do that. But if you think about it, they're all just one big ad anyway. You know, it's an ad for the yeah. studio or it's an ad for the, the channel. I mean, so it's it's not like the Game Awards are unique in that aspect. Um, it's just that it feels weird when you're listening to, you know, and you suddenly see an ad for Nintendo Switch. Just picking on that because it seemed like they had every other ad on there was the Nintendo one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just kind of feels out of place. And I don't know, maybe a little bit. A little bit less than uh, impartial, I guess, because of the winners. I was like, huh? But uh, yeah. I will say, though, that the winners, by and large, and and the nominees, too, seem deserving this year. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is definitely. more like I can say for previous years. And that's always been Jeff Cayley's thing, right? He wants it to really celebrate, you know, good games. And, and I think he his heart is in the right place. And he's he, that this has been his baby for forever, you know? 
Um, and I mean, I think I watched it on Steam. There was something like 150,000 people in Steam alone. So um, I'm guessing the viewership was all right. But I just I don't know where to go from here with it. I, I wish I, I don't have any advice from them, but I enjoyed watching it. it wasn't as cringy as it usually is. I mean, yeah, there's some stuff there's going to be. Um, but, you know, I think they kept it to a minimum this year. Yeah. That from, one. So go ahead. Radio. The, the drunk. uh Drunk Brothers guy, I can't remember what his name yeah, I think was. Yeah, uh, something like Jose Farns or something like that. Oh, man. Somebody should have grabbed that mic from him about two seconds in. Yeah, it's not so much like, whatever, you want to say fuck the Oscars, go ahead. It's more like, by at a certain point, like 30 seconds in, he'd made it more about himself than, you know, being a guy at the Game Awards. Like, if Jeff Keighley's like, clearly trying to move the show along, just let him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, I'm not like I'm not like against the sentiments he expressed. I'm not saying, man, this guy shouldn't have ragged on EA for microtransactions. Because spoiler alert, we're gonna rag on EA for microtransactions. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but he he definitely should have, you know, taken some social cues. Yeah, I mean, it was I I don't know. I I thought this year was better. I think it's progressively gotten better. I usually watch it. I don't. I missed years here and there. Don't get me wrong. It's not like appointment viewing for me, but. You know, if I remember it's on, I, I watch. I usually enjoy it, but I think this year it, it it's kind of at that like that scale, right? Which way are we going to tip more serious or stay fun? Um, and you know, I, I think a lot of that is the developers behind it. They're not rock stars. They're not actors. They're not comfortable being up on stage. You know what I mean? Like for a lot of these guys, they want to just go back to you know their studio and code. I don't think they all want to be there on a stage. I mean, obviously some people did, like a uh, top hat guy. <laughs> but other ones you know it's like okay cool thanks see you later um i i don't know i i, I think that the audience that watches it doesn't know what they want the people getting the awards know what they want so it's kind of up to jeff cayley to figure it all out in some ways i think they would do well by and i think some people may disagree here is try to get rid of more of the sponsorships because i think it was less cringy than this year but it felt also more commercial I think, I don't know, maybe they need, this is going to sound really shitty. I think they need maybe some like rich benefactor, just swoop in go and back fund to Spike. the awards. Like, go back to the old Spike. Oh God, no. Spike. No. Oh fucking God, no. We don't want like, we don't want like the, the nominees written on like naked women's bodies or shit yeah. like that, which I think actually did happen one year. What? Yeah. yeah sounds it's, about right. It's, it's just I, not like... We don't need like the the we don't need like the casual misogyny of Spike like bleeding into the awards. See, I could see somebody kind of like I don't want to say agnostic, but somebody who's not you know one of the top three developers like Valve or Steam. I guess I would say just buying it and just saying, well, Gamer Awards are on Steam now. We stream it from here. We get exclusive streaming rights, but we're not gonna. You know, Valve really doesn't have much to say besides, you know, go buy our games on Steam, which you're going to do anyway. So, you know, yeah. that, that's the only thing I could like. That's the only company I really think might be a perfect fit for it. Um, but like, I, I'm sure Valve that doesn't every, even make games anymore. So right? It's, it's I mean, they really don't. I mean, what are they going to plug? You know, the new hat in Team Fortress. So, yeah. They plug Artifact, which you've already forgotten about. Yeah, I'd never heard of it in the first place. <laughs> it's their it's a new trading card game Dota that nobody trading. cares about. Oh, and it's not, even, it's not even out yet. It's in development, but nobody gives a shit that Valve. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's yeah. kind of what I was thinking, though. Somebody that who's kind of a disinterested party buying it and taking it over. 
Um, because, you know, like that's kind of what the Oscars, you know, supposedly is, though. You know, there's lots behind the scenes. And um, I, I think that's that's where you got to go with it. But I don't know if that I don't know if the Game Awards is a moneymaker yet. I think they're trying to build it into something that is. But until it's getting enough revenue, enough clicks, enough whatever for somebody to buy, it, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Yeah. So I think we're stuck with this for at least another couple of years. But it's better than nothing as True. somebody mistranslating Keiji Yudafune would say. <laughs> All right, so that's the Game Awards. Let's let's dive into some of the other important news from this year, or some of the actually important news, I should say. <laughs> um, and let's start with talking about something that is not necessarily directly related to gaming, but has a lot of implications for the video game industry and gamers more broadly. Um, the YouTube adpocalypse is, has reached a fever pitch this year. Um, so for those of you who don't know, what happened was uh, PewDiePie uh, had made some, some videos with some controversial content that some might consider anti-Semitic. Uh, he's making you know Nazi jokes and, and the like. Um, so the Wall Street Journal did this expose on PewDiePie, and you know there's some argument to be made that took some things he said out of context or, you know, what have you. But it had the effect of um, major corporations realizing that their ads are being played on PewDiePie videos with um, controversial content as well as many, many other videos out there. So major corporations began pulling ads from YouTube. YouTube began, in an effort to retain advertisers, YouTube began filtering and demonetizing more videos, messing around with the search algorithm so that controversial videos can as easily be discovered. Um, but these rules sometimes were really arbitrary. So if you like mentioned guns, you might get your video demonetized. Even if like the, like the thumbnail had a gun, but you don't talk about guns in the video, you might get your video demonetized, things like that. Um, so it, it caused a lot of problems for a lot of YouTubers and especially people who stream video games or uh, upload Let's Plays to YouTube, they saw their ad revenue drop in some cases by 70 to 90%. And now they're turning to places like Patreon and Twitch to fill in the revenue gap. Poor them. <laughs> You're getting paid to play video games. I mean, my heart doesn't bleed for any of these guys, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, it's a generational thing, though, right? If I can't tell you how different it is for my kid and his friends when they talk about video games. It's not so much it's who's playing what rather than what game are they playing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this has kind of trickled down in another way. Uh, I don't know if you guys are current with Elsa Gate, which is another annoying name. Yeah. Um, so it's people taking characters from uh, Frozen and other Disney properties and remixing them into really weird, not necessarily always inappropriate videos, but just really bizarre shit posty kind of videos. Okay. And under fair use, they kind of can't stop them because it's kind of like considered a parody, but you've got like the Joker punching Elsa in the face just for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, but when your kid searches Joker and Elsa, guess what comes up, you know? Yeah. Um, Some of the stuff is filtering into the YouTube kids app. And a lot of it is just it's it's not even it's like crap designed to get clicks from kids who will watch a video. And I'm, I'm talking young kids, three and four, who just watch a video 50 times, you know, and they're, you know, 10, 15 second videos of goofy things. And the kid they're hoping kids play it over and over and over again and they collect their money. So it, it this has been a reckoning for YouTube for a while. Right. 
I mean, subscribers and views and clicks and all that stuff is, is kind of what's ruined, I think, YouTube. It, it shouldn't be a race to, to get the most by saying the most outrageous things. Um, I mean, for some channels, sure. But I, I don't think YouTube should encourage a lot of the stuff that they seem to, like those shitty prank videos. And, I mean, the gaming stuff they have is literally just half the time. It's just guys screaming as they play Five Night at Freddy's. I mean, do we really oh, need God. five million of those yeah. out there? Um I mean, it's it's interesting you say it's a generational thing because, I, like, I, I mean, I, I'm a bit younger than you, and for me, it's I feel like like somebody who's, who's sort of, you know, entered entered his twenties with with let's plays being uh, becoming increasingly popular. Um, it's been sort of it's been sort of really frustrating that because there are people on YouTube who I think are doing genuinely good work like yeah sure they're getting paid to play video games but you know it's also they're also entertainers they're also providing some sort of public service and that they're you know teaching uh gamers how to play certain games and they're doing generally good work and they're getting screwed over not like yeah they're getting screwed over by their quote-unquote employer youtube but they're also getting screwed over by other youtubers who are kind of like in like you said this race to the bottom of like putting putting out crappy content and like purposely controversial content or stirring up YouTube drama just for the clicks and like everybody suffers when that happens I think yeah well I'm thinking back to like this E3 when what was it Ubi and a bunch of other people had what are they called influencers or something like that on the stage to come out there and demo their games and stuff and I mean, I don't like when most people say this, but you could tell those people weren't very good at video games in the first place. Do you know what I mean? So I, I hear what you're saying, like that maybe Let's Play started out as, wow, hey, I'm going to play Dark Souls with bongos just to do it because it's difficult. But now it's not so much I'm good at games or I play games or anything like that. It feels like it's just I react the craziest or I yell the loudest or I do the dumbest stunt. You know, it's mm -hmm. and, and it's that race to the bottom that that has me feeling not a lot of pity for most of these guys. I mean, it's, I mean, I watch, I, I, my kid has them, you know, yeah, good luck banning your kid from YouTube, by the way. But, um, <laughs> you know, he's got a tablet and every now and then I'll be watching it and I'll watch them with him. And I'm like, this isn't, nothing's even happening in this video. You know, it's just a guy mm -hmm. screaming or it's just, so, you know, those are the ones I try to get him to avoid, but I mean, good luck. It's, it's really hard. It's a lot harder than it seems these days. Yeah. It's just, for me, I think what, what bothers me about the way YouTube's been, been going about this is I think there are fixes that don't re that wouldn't reward the people who are, who are in this race to the bottom that would help mm. you know YouTubers who are putting out quality let's play content. Um, like one way is one way they could do like that's been suggested is that YouTube become a little bit more like like a television station and uh, implement like content warnings yeah. so, or content classification. Like, you know, this is appropriate for kids, for, for teenagers, for adults. Um, and if you don't comply with the standards of each category, then your video gets flagged and demonetized, but otherwise you can l let it run as is. I think that's probably a better system than these weird, complicated machine learning algorithms that, you know, filter out, you know, any mention of a gun or, Oh, yeah. YouTube's always been kind of wonky. I don't know how much you guys upload to YouTube, um, but like I uploaded a like a 10, 10 second video of something funny my baby did in the car. Right. Just yeah. to like basically sent to my parents and my grandparents. I think it has maybe a dozen views. Right. 
Um, and then I got an email and it was like, hey, there's been a copyright claim against this this video. You can't monetize it. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't monetizing it anyway. Why yeah, I guess, I guess they have some kind of software that goes through and like heard the song that was in the radio on the background of my car. You know, wow. and it was just like, yeah, that's a copyrighted song. You can't monetize this video because of that song. And they said, like, I could mute the song. And I was like, well, no, I don't care about monetizing. But it, it was just weird as just a regular person uploading something to YouTube that, you know, they go to my three subscriber channel and that's their first order is, is you know, make sure that I can't monetize it. It just feels like that wasn't the what the heart of YouTube was about when it kind of came around, right? It was about totally. sharing videos with you. Now it's like, no, you can't make money off of us. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. All right. So that was my adventure in getting a copyright strike on my YouTube account. Yeah. And um, I, I've had similar experiences. Like, um, like I, I, like I occasionally upload like really shitty let's play content to YouTube. Please don't watch my YouTube channel. <laughs> much better to do with your time. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so sometimes I'll, I'll upload like this, like really crappy let's plays because I'm really bad at video games. Um, and I've get I've gotten copyright claims on like the music contained in the video game, and it seems like the licensor isn't the actual licensor for the music. If that makes any sense, like it'll be yeah. some. It'll be some some like song that's like an original song in the in the video game, like part of the soundtrack, and then like Universal Music Japan will claim it, and it's like, where did you? Why do you even have the claim to this? It's not. There's <laughs> even a soundtrack CD for this game. How, why? Did, There's no like, way to buy it. Yeah. Yeah, like I can't buy this song. What do you care? Yeah, you know? I, I know exactly what you mean. It's it, it's weird, but I, I'm glad that YouTube's finally look, looking at itself like in two different ways. One, we're not going to be a cash cow anymore to people because I don't know what the ad rate click blah, blah, blah is or whatever. But, I mean, it doesn't seem right to me that these people are making millions and millions off of screaming at the Internet. Um, and, I, I mean, I hope that it, it filters down to, okay, well, if you're, I'm not going to be a millionaire. I've got to at least be interesting or got to at least do something cool. You know, rather than just yeah, it's, it's rank my way to the top. It's an extremely small minority of people who are who are millionaires off YouTube, though. Like PewDiePie is is an exception. Of course, PewDiePie yeah. has kind of ruined himself forever now since he dropped that end bomb on a stream. Good <laughs> riddance. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I, I used to like defend the existence of PewDiePie, but not so much anymore. Um, yeah, but like most most streamers aren't that famous. Right, so it's usually, or usually, most let's players are, are aren't like they're they're pretty they're struggling to make ends meet. So I feel bad for for those guys who got essentially screwed over by by PewDiePie. It's like the millionaire bully who fucked it over for everybody else. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, I mean, what I would say is probably what most of them have said. That's get good, go get good at, at being interesting rather than just <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, do something different. Do something, you know. Don't just copy him and expect different results you know he's already got his own little army of viewers you're not going to steal them you know yeah, go do I mean, something like, different don't, like don't make like scream like videos about screaming rape when you play five nights at oh Friday's. god i know yeah. yeah like maybe don't do that but again this is this is affecting people who are playing you know violent video games like call of duty and streaming that or, or let's playing that so i don't know it feels like you like people like the bad actors on youtube need to be curbed somehow youtube's got to get its shit together 
And I think it would be smart for uh, other YouTubers to look to places like Twitch and, and Patreon uh, for alternate sources of revenue. Well, yep. maybe not Patreon right now. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Patreon recently... Uh, it's in it's in controversy because it's announced some changes to its payment scheme. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. Anyway, uh, I, I've always thought it they can make adjustments to like what tiers they have. I never really understood that part of Patreon. I've only backed like two or three things, and usually it's like journalists, you know. But um, I never really understood how like they can change the tiers after you've already pledged. I think that's kind of weird to me. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what's going on with Patreon, so I won't well, speak to Well, it pretty moment. much, I mean, th- my basic understanding is that they're uh, adjusting, like, the way that you pay for it. Like, so now um, donors, instead of, like, if you're pledging $5, it used to just be $5. Now it's $5 and, like, a fee on top of that. Yeah. And additionally, uh, they are taking a different, like the method of percentage that they're taking is different. So now they're trying to take like a larger cut, I guess uh, that's, I, I, a, I just have a brief understanding. Yeah. But. The whole thing's kind of weird. I mean, I, I don't like it. I mean, but yeah, everybody needs to make money these days off the internet somehow it feels like, but Patreon's always like, it seems like it has good uses and bad uses just like anything else. But um, I've never really liked the, that model of just give give to me once a month and I'll put your name in my video. That seems to be like what most of it is. Yeah, it seems like there's got to be a better approach than yeah. than that. Um, like honestly, I, honestly, I don't even care about that part of it. It's more like just if I'm funding you, I'm not funding you because I want recognition. I'm funding you because I I want you to continue to produce content. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That and that's what I think it should be. It shouldn't be, you know, pay my bills and and buy me a boat. You know, it's it should just be uh, this is what it costs to make for me to make these, help fund that, and then you know go from there. But yeah, everybody everybody's trying to get rich. I can't blame them. But <laughs> yeah, everybody's speaking of getting rich, I'm ready for the Thunderdome, and I'm ready to somewhat defend EA whenever you guys are ready. Oh, you're going to defend EA somewhat. Um, so yeah, let's talk about. AAA companies starting to get rich. Uh, let's talk about loot boxes and microtransactions. Right. I think I think I might be with uh, Kappa a little yes! bit. Yes. Fun. <laughs> oh <laughs> man. Let's, let's get into it. This is what happens. You, this is what happens when, when you get like a a, a commie hosting yeah. the podcast <laughs> up against these guys. Um, uh, I, no. I, I get where everybody's coming from, and it sucks to be nickel and dimed after after you've already feel like you've bought a product, right? Yeah. I get it, but there's only really. I see like a branch where we go from games from here. I think branch one is games go up to 99 bucks. That's it. You pay 99 bucks. I see two where they continue with the season pass, you know, DLC model. Um, and then, you know, but games stay at 70 bucks. Or I see three where games stay where they're at. And then they have these microtransactions or loot boxes or whatever. And I really, I, I really mean this. I feel like if you could never buy a loot box and you get the same roughly experience as everybody else, I feel like you should look at it as people are subsidizing that you get more game for for your buck. Because um, that's really what I what I what I think it comes down to in a lot of ways. I I don't want to defend these guys, but I mean, cosmetics don't bother me. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, cosmetics are cool. Thing. Overwatch to me is the perfect example, right? And I know yep. Overwatch, people will act like it's all EA, but this came out with Overwatch too. Loot boxes were a big deal. I think China was had legislation based on Overwatch's loot boxes scheme. 
Um, but to me, that's the perfect example. It doesn't change whether or not I have the Mercy skin I like. I can play long enough, and I can eventually get that skin if I get lucky. I can buy a bunch of boxes, try to get lucky, or I can, you know, do whatever, um, play an event and, and get enough whatever, uh, you know, currency they have in game. But that doesn't bother me. So when you're talking loot boxes, I think the main thing is you can do loot boxes, but you have to do them right. Um, if you don't do them right, it feels cheap. And I think people, what they're calling out is rightly, rightly so, is what EA did, which was do loot boxes wrong, right? I mean, you can't put what most people would consider core components of the game playing as Luke and Darth Vader. That's 90% of Star Wars to me. Um, you don't, you can't build a game around them, but then only make them available in loot boxes that you can only get randomly lucky in. And then even then at a super low rate. And then also, you know, a bunch of other stuff in loot boxes to progression that I would consider part of progression. Yeah. When I was reading what was in those loot boxes, I mean, you could basically make your weapons like three or four times more powerful based on stuff that comes off of loot boxes. That's not loot boxes done yeah, right. We can all agree on that. The balance of the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. To clarify for the listeners, we're talking about Star Wars Battlefront Two, yeah. uh, which prior to release had uh, plans for implementing a lot of unfair, uh, arguably systems for microtransactions. And because of the consumer outcry, they removed basically all the microtransactions before release with the caveat that they're probably going to be reintroduced later. I mean, if you name your favorite developer for the most part, they do microtransactions or loot boxes or something. I mean, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, who does it? Maybe CDPR, but they also, I mean, we know how they treat their workforce. They're not exactly shining. And they have, uh, they have Gwent now, right? Yeah. That's yeah, true. They also have GOG.com to make up for a lot of revenue. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there, there's some, you know, weird stuff out there, but there's not many Blizzard's doing it, EA's doing it, WB's doing it, Ubi's doing it. I mean, I, I don't necessarily see it as an EA problem. I think EA kind of is the one that they're all looking at blaming now for, for you know, for killing the golden goose. But uh, now all of a sudden people are paying a lot more attention to these loot boxes and saying, you know, I hear people on the internet, I don't want them at all. I'm not going to buy a game with microtransactions. Well, you're not going to buy many games in 2018 if you don't buy a game <laughs> with microtransactions. I mean, they're going to have it. It's just going to yeah. be, I think what we need to do kind of, you know, as a community is just say, look, this is a necessary evil for me to keep playing, you know, paying what I want to be paying for a game. But, you know, have a, a little tacit agreement with developers that I'm only going to support games that I think do loot boxes fairly or right or whatever. I mean... But right now, it's kind of like the angers just run rampant. I mean, we talked a little bit in our in our Destiny podcast, but even Bungie got kind of caught up in some of this stuff where people who play the game are like, well, I'd say most people who play the game understand it's not as big a deal, but it just gets lumped into everything else, um, loot box oriented. And well, It's not just EA, though, right? It's yeah, not just yeah, yeah. everyone. Like well, what happened was that, that, that sort of caused this to boil over first before – like the anger is already there before – Battlefront even came out. Um, like Shadow of War this year had the microtransactions and yeah. the loot boxes yeah. with the orcs. That's and what I was that's what, up. what made people super angry. So Ooh, if did we it. didn't have that coming first, I don't think people would have been as angry about Battlefront. I think there's something to be said about the two types of games. Because you have like a single player game and then you have like whenever it's a multiplayer, it's more of games as a service if they cre- keep creating content for it. You pay in order to, you know get more content eventually and keep the game going because back in the day it's like oh you that's the game you that you don't get anything new so 
whatever. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a lot of a lot of the it. You're right, and it's tacked on into a lot of these modes that I don't even really enjoy. Like I, I'm thinking about like Metal Gear Solid's base building, uh, uh-huh. Metal Gear Five. Like who gives a crap about that stupid fob, you know? <laughs> and and in Shadows of War, uh, Mordor, I didn't really care about my orcs. I, I, I know I bitched about it for a whole podcast, right? But um, I would say like there was that. Have you guys heard about the new mode in Shadows of Mortar at all? No. It's basically Pokemon, right? What? So you send your you orcs Shadow into... Shadow of War or Shadow of Yeah, War? Shadows of War. Shadow... The new one. I'm... I, I always get yeah. that mixed up. But yeah, you send them into uh, like an arena, like an online arena, and it's basically random. Like, you know how like the orcs have like pluses and minuses? Mm-hmm. You stick them in the arena, one kills one, you lose your orc or it levels up, and you, you move on, um, which is a really weird system to me because a lot of those orcs you're going to be fighting are probably ones people bought you know yeah um and then if your favorite orc dies well what are you going to do you're going to go find another one game nope not a oh, not an epic shit. one can you imagine pokemon <laughs> with microtransactions yeah I oh mean, no i mean it would be like pokemon go yeah, yeah. but that's Except for you that's don't buy the pokemon you buy the pokeballs anyway not so not that, but i mean that I don't know. I, I don't know where it goes from here. I just I've come to accept microtransactions. I don't know another way to put it. I've, I've come to just accept they're going to exist and I won't buy a game. I didn't buy Battlefront. I, I won't buy a game that I feel like does it wrong. I've got my own little personal code, but I'm not out there telling people to avoid everything with a microtransaction because you're never going to play anything if you do. You know, um, it's just I would the just state say, of the market now. Yeah. It's... Yeah. So like two points on that. I think there are ways around microtransactions, even for established franchises. I think, like you said, there are three models. You either increase the price, you do season passes and DLC, or you do microtransactions. And I would much rather path number one or two. I think those path number one, you're going to have to get people to understand that inflation is a thing. uh, And that might not be feasible. (laughs) Path number two, um, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with people who really like the game supporting the game with uh by paying more for some substantial content down the line well remember cool where remember where that started to go though which was on disc dlc day one uh, dlc uh, you know what i mean like there's slippery slopes on that one too yeah um, how i mean there was a lot of games that were like just straight up withheld the content that was ready just so they could sell it as part of their you know as part of their whatever package so i mean yeah th- i think you got to hold everybody to that that standard where yeah if you're going to do it you're still going to do it right um you know i just don't i don't necessarily see that as being 100 percent better if you, than than the other way um, i mean i i think that i think it's possible to have a game with good microtransactions up against a game with with bad bad dlc yeah. but i think it's easier to to make bad microtransactions than it is oh to yeah make I, I definitely agree with that yeah um yeah, and, and the other point on that I want to make about the story is uh, now because of the backlash to Battlefront, the Hawaii State Legislature is uh, considering legislation to prohibit the sale of uh, of games with microtransactions to minors. Yes, yeah, so, good luck. <laughs> that, yeah, that right. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't seem legal to me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that they're trying to go along the lines of it being gambling. I don't know. That just seems kind of weird to me. But um, also, like, you can't sell M-rated games to minors, but they still get them, so... Yeah. I mean, not... that's not by law. That's just, a uh, That's just, yeah, ESRB, like, store's yeah. policy. Uh, they, like, they fought a Supreme Court case to make this not law. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't, that, I don't know. I mean, 
I, I think that we can probably get there through consumer pressure. I don't know if a law is something that I think would, would be a good idea because laws are usually poorly written. I mean, there's usually something about it that makes it, you know, scummier or something. I, I would just say, let's try to do this on our own for now as a community and a group and say, yeah, this game does it wrong. This game, you know, it's 50-50, but let's keep an eye on it. Or this game, it's okay. Um, and, and, and let us kind of police our own for now. I mean, I don't know if it's possible to get the ESRB in on this, but the ESRB has been like instrumental in keeping um, you know, government censorship out of video games. And if the ESRB can, can step in and say, we're going to start content rating games that have microtransactions or in-app purchases, then I think... That would that be that an interesting be, way. To, that'd be an interesting yeah. work. Yeah. Like, if you have microtransaction, your game is automatically teen or something like that. You know what I mean? Like... Or they amend like a little seal where it's like it's E, but there's yeah, my... yeah E, but with like a little dollar sign next to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cash. But yeah, I, I, I that that's kind of the crux of my argument is that let's just try, uh, let's give let's give everybody kind of a everybody take a step back and realize that this is going to be something that just we live with now, uh, you know, and 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 try to figure out how we can make game developers realize what what is and what isn't fair for. To, to screw your consumer or to, to make your consumer happy based on microtransactions. Yeah, I think people are so just opposed to the idea in general that they initially push back against anything. It's like, yeah, you gotta you gotta meet them halfway. Yeah, yeah, it's, that, it, yeah. it's a big business, and we it sound. But look, it, like it sounds these poor million dollar companies. But how, every time a studio goes under, every time a studio goes bankrupt, we go, oh man, look at all the stuff we made. Well, yeah. But if they don't stay in business, they don't get to make that stuff, you know. So, yeah. speaking of studio closures, there yeah. was a big one this year. Uh, Visceral Games got shut down by EA. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the studio behind the Dead Space series is no more. And um, what's interesting about this particular closure is that Amy Hennig of Uncharted fame was helming a single-player Star Wars game for Visceral, um, and. There's Jason Schreier of Kotaku did this investigative piece exploring what happened and why it got shut down. Yeah. It sounds like it's a mixture of um, of problems at Visceral and EA being a bunch of corporate douchebags. Yeah, it's um, it's it, it does. It, at first, I was all ready to, to to be you know blaming EA, but it does sound like there was some kind of weird culture there um, that I'm not sure I even knew about until that that report kind of came out. And I think Jason Shire is really the only one who gets those kind of reports now, right? Yeah. I mean, like those like behind the scenes, here's what really happened type stuff. Um, and I mean, yeah, it, it does seem like there was some dysfunction there. It doesn't seem like they were as, uh, you know, all put together as they might have seemed on the surface. Yeah, it seems like they, they had... Um... They had like internal culture clashes, mm-hmm. um, and what Amy Hennig thought was feasible or doable for the game was not necessarily what um, the programming people thought um, was was feasible. So it did result in, in a sort of culture clash. Um, but what kind of I think ticked gamers off afterwards was uh, when uh, what EA, the president of EA Worldwide Studios, or sorry, the VP uh, Patrick Soderlund said something along the lines of, um, like he suggested that it was because the game was this linear single-player game and their focus groups were saying that wasn't what they wanted. And that meant what gamers interpreted that as... Is there going to be another multiplayer cash-in, yeah, yeah. game-as-service type thing? 
Yeah, that's like people want a single player Star Wars game, uh, which they're not. I mean, they're they're kind of getting it for Battlefront Two. It has a, a short, you know, five hour campaign that wasn't even complete for launch. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's because it has you know uh, Last Jedi story content, which they're going to add as free DLC. But still, oh really? I actually didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's why that's why the campaign is is quote unquote incomplete. That's odd. Yeah. It, feel, it feels like you'd want to release it alongside the movie in that case, so you could release it all in one go. But they probably want those. They probably wanted to juice those nice holiday sales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When they did, yeah, it's, it's the problem with, with doing tie-in games for movies. It's that um, movie release schedules are very different from video game release schedules. Like prime video game release time is October, November, but movies, if you want the big blockbusters. There's like the summer blockbuster season, and there's like the the winter blockbuster season, like the few mm-hmm. weeks around December, late December. So yeah, yeah the schedules are going to conflict, unfortunately. I, I I don't know. I mean, I I play the shit out of single player, but I I think when people are hearing that people don't want multiplayer, I don't I don't speak for everybody. I know I don't, but for me, what I'm getting kind of burned out with is just versus just versus only type games uh or you know the multiplayer is just me against you i i have i I love co-op games um so if you can sell me a good multiplayer that has good co-op i'm interested but what i'm not interested anymore is you know team deathmatch i think i think there's a problem with the like what what a big chunk of the market does want like those versus games but i think I mean, this. If I want to tie it back to something we were talking about earlier, I think it lends itself to the cur- current uh, video game culture of streaming and stuff. Yeah. Because everyone wants that. That's what they play. It's like PUBG and, I mean, Fortnite uh, was initially just you know, uh, it was four player co op and it was not doing great. And then they released the battle royale mode, and now it's actually you know a pretty big contender, and people are loving it. Yeah. I, so. I mean, I, I just I don't know if that's if that holds water for me that EA canceled it because it was just single player. I, I I don't I don't know. Has anything ever really been leaked about the game other than those screens from like fifteen EA E threes ago? Not much. I think you can read Shire's report about it. Yeah, um, I, I read that. I I just didn't see that yeah. like any like actual like because you know I, that game's no been footage kind or whatever. Of, yeah, like, that game's been quiet like, for a while. Like it was announced twenty fifteen. Yeah, it was announced a long time ago. Yeah, and and usually when games are announced a long time ago and you don't hear much, it's not a good sign, you know. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I I can buy that there was developmental problems as well as you know EA being assholes about a lot of it. But w- with a license that big, I don't know if you could release another Battlefront level bomb. You know that that license is supposed to print money. Um, yeah, you know, if yeah. You put- EA's really not been managing no well, it, it looks like they're uh, i mean from what i hear it looks like they're trying to um completely restructure the like payment thing so i'm i think they're trying to hopefully like re re like push uh battlefront 2 with a new payment the hard thing about a shooter though is once that community's gone it's gone i mean yeah. they're on to the next 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 game by the time you fix your shit is I mean, anybody playing lawbreakers right now yeah exactly <laughs> But I, you know, I, I'll save it for one of my surprises. But there is a couple. There are a couple games out there that have fixed their problems and you know regrown a community. But it is so rare these days, especially for shooters. Um, yeah, once didn't evolve sort of fix things. 
No. <laughs> I was gonna say, oh, they, they just made it worse. <laughs> they did. Then they went like the, then they just closed down. Like I, they had a good idea. To, it should have been free to play to start. Um, the problem was once they finally got around to it, the game was actually really fun. But there wasn't enough. The, the community was already dead. The word was out. Don't buy Evolve. It sucks. You know. Um, and you, it's it's hard to relaunch a shooter. Um, yeah, Battlefront Two. If nobody's, I mean, lots of people are playing it because freaking Star Wars. Yeah. Um, but that the second that community dwindles, they're never going to get it back unless they release new content. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, like like we could tie it back into what we we're talking about right now. If you ever want to kind of take the pulse of a game, look how many streamers there are for it right now. I mean, uh, shooters especially, right? I mean, you'll yeah. find 10 million PUBG uh, people streaming when you'll find a hundred on Battlefront, maybe, you know, that, that's a good way to check the pulse uh, of where a game's at. And I mean, I think that's a bad sign for star Wars. If they're not outselling some game that looks like it was made in the basement. Yeah. Um, so let's continue dunk, dunking on EA um, <laughs> and let's talk about mass effect Andromeda, which apparently, I mean, I think initially its sales were, were strong, but yeah. in the end it ended up flopping. And critical, uh, both critical I, and fan reaction were harsh. This one's hard for me to talk about. Yeah, I think and, Mass Effect Andromeda is the best bad game I played this year. <laughs> like, <laughs> I actually liked it. I liked getting through it. I liked, you know, as I was playing, the story didn't never really connected, but the combat was a little bit better. And I was like, if this is the first game of a new trilogy, I'm okay with it. Like that. That's kind of where I was at the end of Andromeda. I thought we'd get a couple of story DLCs. Do you know what I mean? Like kind yeah, of tighten up kind some of of... clean it up a bit. Yeah, like, yeah. Like and, how and the knife like... of Dunwall is, is much better than the main ba- base exactly. Game yeah, and I would say that especially even you know Mass Effect One and Two both had really crucial DLCs that came out. Um, so I mean, you know, I was like, okay, they'll drop a couple story DLCs. They'll tighten some of this ending up. It'll make it a little bit more sense. You know, we'll get introduce some more characters, some new aliens that aren't so boring. Um, and then you know that was kind of my my thought and then we'll get a, a, a surely we'll get a sequel it's a mass effect game they'll announce the sequel and you know this will be the beginning of a new trilogy and man was i wrong i mean they they just were like fuck this game <laughs> they didn't do yeah. anything to Bioware support montreal it. actually yeah. got shut down yeah and it was absorbed into ea motive yeah i i did not that's the part i did not see coming um was was them just giving up on it I mean, I think there are examples of games post-release getting fixed and getting made better. Um, one of my surprises of the year we'll talk about later, um, Ghost Recon, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, Rainbow Six Siege, perfect example, right? Enough support, enough love, enough, you know, you can bring the community back, you can make the game better. Uh, the, the worst story to me about Andromeda is them just just leaving it, just leaving it a fucking mess. Um, and not paying enough love or attention or care, whatever you want to say, to that really, really good series to fix that mess of a game that they left it at. Um, I, I don't know. It almost hurts to talk about it. <laughs> but like, it, it, it hurts, and it hurts for me because I'm a huge Mass Effect fan. Yeah. And I didn't even buy Mass Effect Andromeda. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I'll ever play it now. I think if it if it hits the sales, it, it'd be something I'd recommend. I mean, I'm sure it's going to hit the EA Vault, so you can play it for five bucks. Um, it, it's not it's not unenjoyable to me. It's just that it's not Mass Effect. I hate when people say that about like Fallout. You know, oh, it's good, it's a good shooter game, but it's not a good Fallout game. Like, 
there, there was enough to keep me interested, but I felt like a lot of the stuff that was being held back in my mind was like, okay, they're going to get back to this. This is going to come back. This is going to be important later. I'm just, you know, if I choose a military base here in the, in the second one, who knows what might happen instead of a science base, but you never get to see any of the choices play out because they just fucking cut and run. Um, so that's why I, I think the game's even worse in retrospect now thinking about it because that's all you'll ever see of these people uh, you know of, of the, I, I don't know I mean there's a lot of weird question marks in design in that game and I, I wonder how much we're made with them planning on a sequel and how much we're like let's get this thing out the door because apparently we need to rush out a Mass Effect title which makes no fucking sense to me uh, so yeah I, it's I, because I they spent they had a five year development cycle and like half that time was spent on ideas that ended up getting scrapped that's why that, that, that's got to be studio mismanagement, though. I mean, at yeah. some point, I mean, so when you hear uh, I mean, we talked about, you know, a little bit ago, like studios getting shut down. I mean, there's reason studios get shut down. I think you got to deliver, you know, um, I mean, oh, it, they, it, they most certainly weren't delivering. Yeah. And yeah. one of the like people complain about um, or they were complaining about how the Frostbite engine was hard to work with or what have you. But Dragon Age Inquisition figured it out. They yeah. were able to create. <laughs> less of a shooter game with this garbage engine. I mean, Dragon Age Inquisition is, is glitchy as hell. Let's, yeah, let's but... be real. I mean, it's, it's, it's approaching Bethesda levels. But they made a functional game, right? It didn't stop them from yeah, doing it. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, why, why couldn't they have shared some of that knowledge with, with the Mass Effect team? That, and that, that, that's, that's another story. I mean, it feels like that game was made in a vacuum in some ways. It, it like... It feels like nobody communicated with anybody about like, hey, in the Mass Effect world, all the Asaris don't have the same fucking face. You know what I mean? Like nobody bothered to tell them that. And they're like, oh, we'll just use the same face. Like why do you make those little changes or do those little things and there's nobody around you who, you know, supposedly is, you know, the keepers of this game that tells you don't screw this up. This is an important game to a lot of people, you know? Yeah, it's for me, it's my big sci-fi franchise. Yeah. Right? Like, I never got into Star Wars or Star Trek as a kid. So, for me, playing Mass Effect was, this is sci-fi for me. Yeah, the good thing about it, though, now is you can just erase it from your memory. They're going to get, there will be a, a Mass Effect 4 that carries on, you know. I the, Some of the complaints I, I didn't care about. I didn't care that Shepard wasn't involved. I don't care. Um, I didn't care that there wasn't much blend over from the original trilogy. I'm okay with that. You know, this is this was going to be its own story. So what I guess what we're probably going to get now, I, if I had to guess, is a Mass Effect 4 sequel after. You know, remember at the end of 3 when, like, the guy's telling his kid about Shepard? Yeah. You know, and, and, like, so all the relays are destroyed. You've got, you know, people flung across the galaxy, but they can't get from here to there. So 500 years after the relay is destroyed – what is the what does the solar system look like as we're just now getting back into interstellar flight or whatever? But you're going to go back to that world. Andromeda is going to be forgotten as much as possible. But I don't think Mass Effect's dead at all. Yeah, I would I would honestly, you know what I'd like to see out of Bioware. I mean, aside from Jade Empire Two, which is never going to happen, <laughs> um, I would like to see a brand new sci-fi franchise. Well, Anthem, um, Anthem's yeah. probably going to be the closest you're going to get for a little bit. Anthem, I, I don't friggin' want Bioware does Destiny. I want, oh, like, you're getting it. <laughs> yeah, I want a, a like a new, meaty single player RPG in a sci-fi world from Bioware. Yeah, I, which I, is I, not gonna happen for another like 
eight years. So. All the big guns are on Anthem right now, though. I don't know what that looks like after it's out the door. I'm guessing all the big guns go to Anthem too, but I think it's going to be hard for Bioware to, to get back to that single multiplayer space uh, or that single player space uh, after you know putting something that big multiplayer out the door. I mean, look, Bungie now—they only make one game, you know, and they've all, yeah, they only made Halo for a long time, but I mean you can keep making one game over and over and over again once you find that formula that works. Yeah, like Dice keeps making Battlefield. Yeah. Fucking up Mirror's Edge every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's move on from dunking on EA because I think we've uh, lobbed enough insults at them. Let's switch gears to another continent entirely and let's talk about the comeback of Japanese gaming, which is really happened in full force this year um it sort of started trickling last year with final fantasy 15 somehow not being awful um you know i was gonna say i feel like we've talked about this like (laughs) before like a bunch yeah Yeah. like like, i don't know if japanese games if it's really been a comeback or as much as like as we think they've always been there i just think they go through weird cycles almost you know like yeah, there's like a 10-year period, though, where um, where the Japanese game development team was just largely ignored or thought of as inferior by by the West. Um, and well, I mean, it, part of that was because Japanese game developers were kind of trying to chase Western trends and really not doing it very well. And but, I, think, I think it yeah. was also kind of like going through a little renaissance where they were trying to embrace a lot of weird stuff, a lot of Suda51 type stuff, you know? And, and not really getting back to... I mean, if you look at the the Japanese games that are hits or, you know, that are part of this renaissance, they're pretty... Gameplay and mechanics and everything else-wise, they're pretty much, you know, very standard games. I mean, there's Zelda. It's it's Mario. Nier, I think, is kind of out there in some ways. But I think if you really look down at, at its nuts and bolts, it's an, you know, yeah. an, an adventure game. Okay, so the thing about Nier, Nier Automata is that um, mechanically, each sort of gameplay segment of it is fairly standard, but the way it mixes and matches those elements is really weird. Right, right. Uh, but, but it's not yeah. it's not Killer 7. You know? it's yeah, not... it's not like it's not like completely reinventing the wheel in terms of how you play a game. I mean, the way you put its parts together, yes, it, I would say it's reinventing the wheel. But yeah, like fundamentally at its core, it's, you know, a shmup or a, or a hack and slash or with some RPG elements in there. Like, it's not doing anything completely out there, gameplay-wise. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been an interesting year for, for the Japanese games industry. Like, New Resident Evil, Nier, Persona, all really critically acclaimed. There's games like um, like Nio that, um, yeah. that have done really well. People are into Yakuza now. Like, Yakuza 0 is actually a pretty big international hit now, which is weird. Um I think the the one thing that hurt this is going to be my one thing with um, it's hard for me because I'm not as much of a console gamer. Uh, yeah, the PC ports have been all over the place, and, and it's always been like that for for Japanese developers. I mean, you get amazing ones, and you get awful ones, and you get ones that are awful at launch, and then get. I mean, it's just like any one, but usually like like Neo is a game I'm really interested in. But I've heard that the keyboard mouse support has been broken pretty much since release. I mean, I don't know how broken. I just, I've just read that. Don't get it, you know. So I, I really hope that somehow that that PC uh, ports or, or whatever start to really hit back up on their radars because I would love to play some of these games in, on my PC in, in a pretty 
you know, in a better port setting than what I've, I'm used to getting. Yeah, it's it's been really hit or miss. Like, like I've heard Nier is good, yeah. It's, the other thing Nier Automata is that um, the gameplay-wise, it translated perfectly, mm-hmm. and it translated without glitches, but they they messed up some stuff in how they translated the graphics over, so it doesn't run as well as it should, but then somebody released a mod that just fixes everything and makes it run yeah. more smooth. Um, then you have Dongarampa V3, which I think is easier to play with mouse and keyboard, but they ported it, uh, they optimized it so poorly that it just like frame rates chug anytime there's a lot of geometry on the screen, which is weird for what is essentially a visual novel. <laughs> that's really weird. Yeah. So, but I mean, that, that's, that's, that's my one little thing. I, I don't, I've got a PlayStation 4, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not in a bad spot, but it, there's just something about playing those types of games where I really get into them. And it, just something about a console where I'm at now, it, it's hard for me to sit down for, you know, six hours in front of a, a, a TV and just get through it. Whereas a PC. So I'm hoping those ports get a little bit better. And, um, sounds like, it yeah. sounds like it's at least something that, that they understand. Cause even like dragon's dogma got a port this year to PC and it was really smooth. I mean, so they, they come around, but sometimes they come five, 10 years later. Yeah, the Final Fantasy 15 is even coming with a PC port soon. So God, I can't wait to see how that looks. Yeah, it looks apparent. It looks stellar, but you're going to need like uh, five oh, I got it. taped together <laughs> I got it. <laughs> to get it working fine. Um, yeah, so it's been an interesting year for the Japanese games industry. Kind of a comeback year, one might say, and it was partly buoyed by <laughs> the release of the Nintendo Switch, which um, like I was a skeptic <laughs> when when it was announced. Uh, I mean, I didn't think it was horrible or anything. I thought, okay, they've got another console on its hands. It's going to be probably do slightly better than the Wii U because there's better messaging this time. Uh, but it's been a runaway success. Like they had trouble stocking it. I had trouble getting my hands on one uh, when I was trying to buy one this fall. So I think only very recently they've resolved, uh, resolved the unit shortage. Uh, I know, Kappa, you don't have a Switch. Radio Cat, you have a Switch, right? Uh-oh. Radio Cat is dead. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I've been on the fence about getting one. I, I don't know what it is. Um, like, I got burnt two consoles in a row with Nintendo. Uh, I, I would say, well, maybe three. You know, like, I got, I got the uh, GameCube toward the end of its life. I got the Wii because it was a cultural sensation. And then I found out it doesn't do so great at playing video games. Um, and then I got the Wii U and I was kind of like, I'm done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and we've talked about me and Nintendo before on this. So, I mean, you know where I stand. Like, I, I could never play a Mario again in my life and be okay with it. You know, I, I, I'm glad this one's great. I'm glad people enjoy it. I don't hate it, but I don't necessarily need to throw a hat on a taxi cab. It's not something I want to do, you know, like. So I, I don't know. I feel like Nintendo and me kind of have parted amicably. And if I get a Switch, it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't surprise me. But it's not high on my list right now. So Kappa, sounds like you're not huge on on the Switch. Um, Radio Cat, I I think you have a Switch. I do, and I love it. And like I was trying to like, um, so a bunch of my friends who don't really even play video games that much anymore have been like interested in them. I, I feel like they're actually more of a thing than you know i expected it to be i i love it though uh what games you you got for it i well okay i've got i just picked up a steam world dig 2 which is 
Actually, a pretty fun one. I, I enjoyed that. That's a great yeah. series. The but... Avocado's founder, Dikachu, is a huge fan. Yeah, I know. I was just chatting with him about it the other day. Um, but my biggest one, I'm, I love Zelda, man. I am going back to it. I kind of messed up and I have to restart my game uh, before I can get to the DLC because I accidentally deleted my save. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> so now I get to spend another, you know, 100 plus hours <laughs> in the game. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I the only game I spent more than 100 hours this year was Persona 5. And oh, yep. I was like, that's fucking way too long. <laughs> At the end of it. I, uh, how, how long did you end up with uh, Persona 5? I think it took me 128 hours to beat. We had a joke on the podcast that basically Merv is never not playing Persona 5. For... <laughs> the thing is, I, I played so many other games while I was playing Persona 5. It's something that I'd pick up for a couple of hours every few days. You know, yeah. I think that would be that yeah. eventually maybe we could do a podcast on how we play games. I think that would be an interesting one because you kind of play the opposite as me. Like I at any given time, I have like five or six games installed. But if I'm in the mood to play a shooter, I play Destiny. If I'm in the mood for an RTS, I've been playing StarCraft 2 co-op. Like it's just like I, I hear that some people can like binge like one game 100 hours. So I've never really been able to do that. I'm like. I've usually got four or five games going at a time. That's and, me as well. I don't okay. I don't sit down to play. Sometimes it'll happen. Like, there'll be one game that I just sit down and play. Like, that was me and Nier Automata. That's basically the only thing I played for two or three weeks. And yeah. I just had a lot of late nights with that. But if a game doesn't grab me that much, uh, generally it takes me a couple of months to get through a game. And I'm playing four or five games at a time. Okay. That's, that's pretty much what I do as well. But, like... I think what going back to the Switch, uh, that has been a game changer for me in that like respect. At least with Mario and Zelda, those were two games that I just like powered through, and I just couldn't stop playing. And every other game went by the wayside. What percent do you guys use it uh, portable versus hooked up? Okay, I'm I'm very weird in how I use it, in that um, I play it in handheld mode on my commute and in bed uh, before going to sleep. And usually when I have it docked, it's uh, I have my exercise bike set, in f- set up in front of my TV. I take a Joy-Con in each hand and I bike while I play video games. Oh. So Jeez. I almost never use it like as a couch experience. If it's on I... my TV, it's like it's my exercise game. So then... It's actually good. It's actually both good and bad because I exercise more than I normally would because I, I'm like, I get to play video games while I exercise. Um, and I'll like just be on the bike for like more than is healthy. Like you should only really <laughs> bike for like 35 minutes at a time maybe, but I'll just go for like an hour. I'll be like, oh shit, my legs are jelly. Mm-hmm. So uh, you got to yeah. be careful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I play with a pretty healthy mix, I'd say. Maybe like... 50 50 or it, it all depends on the situation which is why it's so great because if i'm like you know at home and no one's here then i'll be on a uh, big tv but if someone wants to watch tv i'm totally cool just switch into handheld and they yeah. can use That's the big cool. one so i like that aspect of it and then uh i do the same thing as merv i'll play it in bed before i go to sleep and it's a nice little treat <laughs> yeah it's some games i think are just meant for handheld mode like Golf Story is like a perfect handheld game. Mm-hmm. And there's some games that you just need to play on the TV. Like, uh, 
Xenoblade and, and Super Mario Odyssey, I've been playing them sometimes handheld, but oh. they really are meant for the TV. How, how are you enjoying Xenoblade? Xenoblade is, like, I'm only 10 hours in. I know it sounds ridiculous to say I'm only 10 hours in, <laughs> but it's a JRPG, right? So yeah, this thing like is the tutorial, be, the JRPG. Like this thing is be like 200 hours long. And yeah, you haven't I, gotten an airship yet. That's how I used to judge, judge my JRPG progress. Have I gotten the airship yet? <laughs> I, I've, see, the thing about Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is that you're pretty much on an airship to start. Oh, see? <laughs> so there goes your scale. Um, but yeah, speaking to, to the games that have been on the Switch, um, Nintendo's got this really... I mean, it's it's a pretty obvious release cycle when you think of it. But what they've done is every basically every other month, they have, or every month sometimes, they have a big game and they put all their promotional muscle behind that game. Right? So they did that with Super Mario Odyssey. They did that with Mario Rabbids. They did that with ARMS. They did that with Splatoon 2. And they, weirdly enough, did that with Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which I don't know if you guys remember this. The original Xenoblade Chronicles wasn't even going to get localized for the West yeah, until like Operation Rainfall happened, right? And people yeah. campaigned to get it localized. Um, and like both Xenoblade Chronicles and Xenoblade Chronicles X ended up selling around 900,000 copies overall. They put the promotional push of like their other major titles behind uh, XC2, which is pretty impressive if you think about it. Yeah, like this is supposed to be a niche game. No game in the series has sold more than a million copies, and they're treating it like um, they're treating it like Splatoon, which is ridiculous well, I, to me. They've got I, me on the fence. I'm I'm looking to buy it. I think it makes sense from Nintendo's standpoint because um, I, you know I think they need a couple more games to ro- round out their their stable because a lot of that stable has been around for 50 years you know now so i think that might be why they're maybe pushing that um you know a new game but from what i've seen xenoblade looks good it looks like a very you know competent cool jrpg i like the style um most of the commercials even seem to show the combat which is weird for a jrpg commercial you know like usually that's like oh whatever and there's combat but no like it seems to kind of focus on that i thought that was kind of combat is like the combat is chaotic. Yeah, that's what I'll say. It looks like it. it in the commercials. It's you're doing. Um, it's MMO style, so you you have auto attacks, and you have attacks that you can trigger by yourself, and there are combos. Um, but positioning matters a lot, so See, you have and, to and... make sure that you position your character in the right way around the enemy to do maximum damage. Uh, managing aggro matters a lot. It, there's a lot of strategy, and it's very difficult to think on the fly. Like it's like I've wiped at least seven or eight times so far, just fighting oh, yeah. enemies at maybe one or two levels above me. I, I think it's smart though, because I'll tell you, I'm more interested in buying a Switch for that game than I am for a lot of other games, because it just feels like something new, right? Like if it, it, it's a new, well, I mean, it's not new; it's a two. Don't get me wrong, but. Um, you know, Xenoblade wasn't exactly well played, but it, it's something I'd be interested in getting into. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a smart move. And, and honestly, like seeing those commercials had made me want to get a Switch more than, and it, definitely Skyrim commercials, which was the one <laughs> before. And I was like, okay, you know, I played Skyrim like what was it five years ago now? Yeah, um, I mean, it's cool that you can play it on the go, but they still haven't fixed major bugs that are in the original Skyrim. And you're not there. Look, I, I, I don't do the whatever pc master race whatever they call it. i'm not big on that 
But look, there's only one way to play Elder Scrolls games and Fallout games, and that's on <laughs> PC. Do you know why? Because of the fucking console. Yeah, you can fix everything, right? It, with Between mods and the console, you can fix it all, right? Yeah. I've had quest, quest givers don't spawn. Okay, you go look up that guy's ID, you know, do place at me, his little NPC code, boom, he's right in front of you. I mean, I don't know how people can play those games with how broken they get on anywhere else. So, but that's just my Skyrim digression. But, I, I mean... the I, that's not going to move me, but that Xenoblade stuff looks cool. If I see a couple more games like that, I'm probably going to be a Switch owner as well. Yeah, I think maybe for you, Xenoblade and, and Zelda, and surprisingly, like, like hear me out on this, I think you'll actually like Mario plus Rabbids. I think I will too. I, I love yeah. XCOM, and um, it looks very XCOM. Um, and I, I, probably my favorite Mario series, and this is where I'm a little weird, is probably the, the Paper Mario stuff. Um, Hell yeah. It, and I think it looks a little bit closer to that stuff than, than some of the other. Yeah, platforms. it's so it's much like it starts off way easier than XCOM, but it eventually gets much, much more tangled. Like it never yeah. has as many mechanics as XCOM, but like it gets to the point where you have a dizzying array of options. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd play Zelda, but I got to tell you guys, I heard everybody talk about the way you guys talk about Breath of the Wild. I heard them talk about Skyward Sword the same way, and Skyward Sword is one of the worst games I've ever played. So, I, I mean, I've always kind of take the Zelda with a grain of salt, um, I, but I, I've heard so much good stuff about Breath of the Wild starting to kind of kick in that, yeah, it's probably that good. Um, yeah, but- I... I don't. I've never played it, and people are like, "You own a Switch? That you don't have Zelda?" And I was like, "Well, uh, I've never played a Zelda game before. I don't know when I'm going to start." I'm the uh, only one here. Yeah, you're Zelda? the only one on this podcast right now who's played. What Breath of the is Wild. going on here? <laughs> well, because I bought an Xbox One X instead. So. Oh, yeah. So that launched. Uh, yeah. Speaking of new consoles, the Xbox One X uh, launched, and it was marketed as as quote-unquote, it's the most powerful console ever. Um, personally speaking, I think that's a really stupid marketing yeah. gimmick because every console at some point at release was... I mean, not every console, but at any given point in time, there is a most powerful console ever. So yeah. it's kind of ridiculous. But um, from the perspective of, of being an actual machine, I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's going to be a very niche product, like only very few people are going to buy it, but it's, I think it's sort of Harold's start of, you know, 4k gaming being a thing. Yeah. I, I think, I think if you've got the TV, it makes sense to buy one. That's the best way I could probably tell people. And if you're going to, if you're interested in the Xbox lineup and your friends play there and all those other caveats, but, um, I didn't buy the, the, the PS4 pro cause it felt like a half step. Right. Yeah. And the Xbox one S was really just the slim model that comes, seems to come out, you know, two years after every console anyway. Um, but the reason I made the, the leap to the X is I've had the 4K TV for a while now. Um, and, I, I mean, it, it's hard to say. Because I game in ultra-wide uh, on my PC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 1080 Ti with, uh, you know, a 34-inch curved monitor. Everything looks good. So that's what I compare my uh, Xbox One X to. And I would say that that graphically, it's up there. Um Xbox games tend to look better to me in some ways. Uh, it's not just a, a matter of the size, but a lot of I think they do a lot of, of, of whether it's programming or, or, or you know things with the graphics to make things look a little bit differently. 
but going back and playing some of the other games, I mean, I've really, I've really enjoyed what I've played in, in the, on the X so far. Um, and Microsoft seems really committed to getting a lot of free remasters, remakes, whatever they're calling them out the door that'll, that are upscaling to 4k, uh, which I think is good news. Um, yeah, you and, can make your old games look really good. Right. Yeah, I mean, like I was, I went back and I was playing uh, Halo Five just you know to, to kind of see it, and it looks good. Um, and I mean, that's I guess probably Microsoft's flagship, so it should. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it it's good for what it is. I'm hoping that more developers start to take advantage of the power. But what I'm worried about is at what point do people say, okay, well, you sh- this game's only going to run this way on the X and this way on because right now. There was a lot of rumors with Destiny 2 in particular, but other rumors that like Sony wouldn't let Microsoft make big improvements to Destiny 2 because they had a lot of the exclusive rights for it. So they didn't want it to run significantly better on the Xbox One X. So supposedly like things like uncapped frame rate weren't included in the Xbox One X release. I don't know how true any of that shit is, to be honest with you. But I mean, it's 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 all weird rumors based yeah, on speculation. That, that's, I just don't want that to be the next front of the console wars is that games are getting you know, handed out in a, in a, a state than they could be. Yeah, yeah. On one console to benefit the other. Right. I mean, it sort of happened with watchdogs, um, where they, they kind of gimped the PC version. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, there's no, there's no proof that they did that on purpose. Uh, and in all reality, it seems like the reason they gimped it is because, uh, they, they had to take out, um, features that were a little unstable and have time to make them look good on time in time for launch. That, that, that's my main thing. So I, I don't I don't know where we're going to be in five years, you know, on the Xbox One X. But for right now, if you've got a 4K TV, you're interested in I, I, it only makes sense um, for me. We just kind of did a big console reshuffle. So the old I had a launch Xbox one. Um, it, it sounds like a jet engine, but that's in my kid's room now. He got he inherited that, you know, and so all the consoles kind of moved around. But um, I mean, it's it's one of those things. If, if you're in the market, you got the 4K TV, you might as well take advantage of it if you're going to get a console. And PS4 Pro was really kind of disappointing to me when they announced all the specs to it. I was like, it, it just I don't know. It's not it's not as big a leap as I feel like the X was. I feel like Microsoft wasn't playing around when they they put yeah. the hardware. At the X. I mean, I haven't felt compelled to upgrade my PS4 to a Pro. And that's partially because yeah. I have one of the special edition PS4s. So I don't want to. Well, uh, I, I mean, the reason I got a PS4 Pro is because I didn't have a PS4. Yeah, and, yeah that it makes sense. No brainer. So. <laughs> but I mean, like, this has been a year I've actually been really kind of happy with the way Microsoft's going with a lot of their directions. They're the ones pushing crossplay right now. I mean, no doubt about that, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I like that they said, "Look, we're going to make this Xbox One X for even though we know it's not going to be for everyone, for the people who can take advantage of it. It's an option." You know, I, I like that. I like the idea behind that. Um, everything, you know, that, that they've been out there saying, I think has been kind of, you know, kind of good. I love the play anywhere. Um, I like buying a game and getting a PC version and an Xbox version when I do buy it. Um, you know, so I mean, they're, they're out there doing good stuff. They got that Xbox library now where you can, what is like 10 bucks a month or something. And you get, uh, access to a ton of games and they've been really kicking ass on the backwards compatibility um that list is i don't know if you guys have looked at it lately but that's a pretty damn impressive list yeah they got most of the halos on there now yeah I mean, they got most of the call like, of duties on there that's yeah yeah wow. and the funny thing they're doing it with halos but they have the master chief collection out so it's kind yeah. of redundant but, it, but they're doing it anyway yeah i mean so i i think that's just a, a cool way to kind of keep you know treating your fans well and that that's what i i 
I feel like you know, remember that when that weird switch happens where it was like everybody loved Sony, hated Microsoft, and it kind of kind of went around the other way around 360. Everybody loved Microsoft, hated Sony. I kind of feel like it's going back around again. Um, you know, where you know two years from now, I think Microsoft's going to be the good guy again in uh, consoles. So wait to see what happens. Yeah, like when you're on top, you act like a dick. Yeah, uh, and when you're when you're the underdog, you can you make overtures to gamers to uh, crossplay alone. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know how physically hard it is to i i heard games have accidentally had crossplay, so it can't be that hard um but i mean i i don't know why sony's dragging their feet it, it's one of the gaming stories of this year that just drives me crazy because i think about my group of friends and and how we all game now and we're all over the place you know yeah. um, like some of you are on pc some of you are on yeah. playstation and destiny 2 is the best example i played it on ps4 a ton right i got friends over there but I went with the PC version. Why can't we play together? I mean, I get the keyboard mouse thing, but they could at least let you group up for raids and stuff and, you know, keep versus to the console versus uh, PC. But, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a hard scenario for me right you know now. You know, I know that, that Sony's bullshitting about um, about crossplay. Friggin' Nintendo allowed crossplay for Rocket. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, and and uh, that Minecraft Play Anywhere is PC, Xbox, Nintendo, Android, and like the old school Java, right? For that Minecraft Play Anywhere, I, I'd have to look uh, it up, but it, yeah, it's basically it's, everyone but Sony. I mean, it's, it's literally it's, Sony's throwing their weight around because they're the console kings this generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like they really like I. I'm speaking only for myself. They had, they were able to reel me into the Sony ecosystem with a lot of games that I wanted to play, but they're not really doing so well on the exclusive front anymore. Like, yes, I'm going to keep playing Yakuza games. Yes, you keep making Digimon story games, I'm going to play them. But like, if it's just my Yakuza and Digimon console, that's kind of sad, right? Yeah, and Uncharted oh. felt really flat. That uh, that Lost Uncharted Legacy? came out this year. Yeah, Persona I, Five I, is exclusive. Oh yeah, Persona Five is exclusive. Um, I, I but it was also it was also on PS3. So yeah. Oh really? Yeah. I think what's going to happen is a lot of that stuff is going to start making its way to Nintendo. That's ten, that's usually what tends to happen with when Nintendo does well. A lot of those Japanese companies start to support Nintendo as well. Yeah, um, like with, the, the new Valkyria Chronicles is coming to Switch and PS4. It's also yeah, coming to Xbox Shin One. Me. I don't know which Xbox One owners want Valkyria Chronicles, but it's going to be there for them. So, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so yeah, we, Xbox One X has been um, an interesting leap forward for Microsoft. Um, also, another smaller, less probably less significant console release. Nintendo released their their retro Super NES. Woo! Ugh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why so, you guys kill me with these fucking things? I, I didn't buy one. I'm not gonna fucking. Okay, buy good. But um, <laughs> they, the reason it's notable is because it had the never-before-released Star Fox 2 on it. Yes. Which probably should have never still been released based on what I've read. Um, better than Star Fox Zero, <laughs> from what I've heard. <laughs> um, so, Radio Cat, you have a, a Super NES classic. How, how are you enjoying it? You know, I actually do enjoy it a lot because... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you sound so defiant. Because I, yeah. <laughs> I know Kappa's just like... Oh, my God. Emulated, dude. You have a gaming computer. (laughs) I know. And I I don't know. He wants to get his ROMs legally. Okay. Oh. Oh, I I never uh, owned an SNES. It's it's pretty much the only Nintendo console I never owned. And so 
you know, there is, I could go and just emulate, but I like having this, like, the controller to actually, like, hook it up to the TV and, like, you know, it, it it's kind of like throwback and I get to experience a lot of the games that I missed out on. And now I've heard it's super easy to um, add stuff to. Oh, so to I'm, hack it and yeah, yeah, you bought a USB stick with a Nintendo controller. <laughs> I know, but I, I might, you know, it, it so I can still use it in many ways i'm i'm happy with my purchase all right i'm I'm glad i'm i'm if you're happy i'm happy for yeah i mean i'll put it that way i'm not gonna try i I tried god knows i tried (laughs) (laughs) so if you're happy with it uh, speaking of smaller games that that uh people can play uh ign acquired humble bundle this year yeah yeah that's a weird acquisition yeah and i i don't think it's necessary i mean humble bundles I think adding the store, first of all, kind of was a mistake for Humble yep. Bundle, Agreed. and then at, and then adding that monthly bundle, it kind of felt like less like what Humble started out to be, and more of like a Steam alternative in a way. Um, I mean, they're selling and, Steam codes at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but so does Green Man Gaming, which a lot of people think is super shady, and a lot of other like those re- key resellers. So Humble kind of got itself into a market that it hadn't really belonged in in the first place, and I think that's what got. Um, IGN probably interested less the humble bundle part of it and more the humble store and the uh, the monthly I don't even remember what they call it monthly but, bundles yeah they're called yeah so people get a subscription I mean so if you're selling subscriptions and a, a digital game store those things print money right I mean there's mm-hmm. hardly anything else to them so that's probably why they bought it the the bundle yeah. itself I mean. Remember if, when like each new humble bundle would come out and you'd be excited and you'd probably yeah. buy it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I bought a humble bundle. I like his I used to just give away keys and people were like, Where do you get I'm like, I spent three dollars for forty five games or whatever, you know, right. like you know, like it's it's one of those things where I don't I don't mind buying I buy I bought the fucking Sakura bundle. I used to just buy every bundle that came in, you know? Because you spend a dollar and you okay. get yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. That Sakura bundle was this year, right? Yeah. Earlier this yeah. year. Let's talk about that for a second because that whole thing pissed me off. Um, look, I, I'm kind of weeby. I think we, we can all agree that I'm kind of a weeaboo, that I like my <laughs> Japanese games. I'll even play the occasional visual novel. I'm cool with that. Don't make the face of your Japanese games. If you're going to make a, a bundle of Japanese games, don't make the face of it. Like a bunch of shitty titty games. Yeah, I had no idea that were even that. And then I was like, oh man, <laughs> what if I bought? <laughs> yeah, don't don't make that the face of your like. There are so many other visual novels out there that aren't shitty titty games. Yeah, I. Right? I it's I, not that hard to find them. They're like Steam has dozens of them. I thought they were like, um, I thought they were like RPG Maker RPGs, you know? And, yeah. Uh, because they use kind of the same art, if that makes sense, you know. And I really like. I thought it was like an RPG series because they all had names like Dungeon and like Spirit and stuff. Oh, and no. then If the word Dungeon is there, 60% of the time, that's a dating sim. Yeah, I had <laughs> no idea. So it was like Shrine and like, I was like, okay, so I was like, here's a dollar. And I got like, and I think it was like the the Honey Cam games, which I actually like. Um, uh, not the Cam Studio, the other one, the Pop. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fun fucking game. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I yeah. say that. <laughs> but it's, then it's like all these visions. I was like, "Fuck!" I I don't know why. I like. I'm pretty sure I read 
somewhere like it advertised it. it was like this is an indie rpg where you like capture monsters and collect loot and and like like it made it sound like an rpg i was like fuck a dollar yeah, or whatever but the monsters have boobs and you can fuck them yeah i had no idea <laughs> <laughs> i think like, i got like 18 minutes played on this game which is probably when i was like ooh. <laughs> so, it's like but, oh yeah, yeah that those are tits <laughs> yeah but i yeah. mean I, i'm not I'm not above buying those, but I buy every humble bundle and I used to do that forever. I mean, and that's why I always had these codes to give because it's literally just like a dollar a month would get you so many games. But now they're doing this thing where it's like one game with like five books and stuff like that, you know, or it's just like, give me the games, man. That's why you guys got into business in the first place. Like here, here's a good example. It was the racing bundle that was last week, right? So you know the pay what you want, you get F1 2011, F1 2012. Woo, a little behind there, right? Pay more than the average for F1 2014, F1 2015, and then you get a bunch of coupons for their store for the DLC, like 50% off the DLC, right? Yeah. And you get a 40% off F1 2017, and then if you pay more than $15, you get F1 2016. So really all they're trying to do is get you to pay 15 bucks and then go buy the newest version of that game, right? Like, you know how games used to do, like, buy the new version and you get the old one for free? Like, I think Bayonetta, yeah. like, if you buy yeah, Bayonetta... Yeah, buy Bayonetta 2, you get Bayonetta 1. Right. Uh, buy God Eater 2, you get God Eater 1. Yeah, so I, that's kind of like the equivalent of what this humble racing bundle is, right? Like, no one's buying this bundle for F1 2011, right? That, that game's fucking six years old now, so... Yeah. They're just trying to get you to buy their new one and giving you a bunch of DLC money off the of DLC to get to encourage you to buy a new one, which I think is a shitty direction for hum- Humble to go. And it's not kind of what that was about. Yeah, uh, I'm a little worried, too, because like they I wonder if they'll still have, um, you know, they had Ninten- they've had a couple Nintendo bundles. They've had PlayStation bundles. Like, yeah. I, I feel like IGN might kind of do away with like bun- I think they might just limit types of bundles now I don't know I, I think more than anything what they're probably gonna do is tie it in so like let's say you go to IGN and read a review they're yeah. gonna be like go to the humble store like click this link to buy this game now I think they're gonna try to like leverage synergy and all that other corporate shit like that, <laughs> that that's just, my it's see the thing is even if there's there's there is always gonna be a firewall between you know editorial and and marketing there always has to be um but it's still gonna look problematic from the outside yeah i mean i i read game informer but i know who publishes game informer you know like (laughs) it's gamestop and yeah i mean they're like you know the firewall is there but yeah how porous is that firewall that's something that as a reader you could just never know because you're not inside the newsroom yeah, my, my my guess is that they're gonna leverage it as as a marketplace, less than mess with the bundles. I mean, that's that's me being an optimist. I guess I think the bundles are still gonna kind of exist. They might not. They've been bad for a while, though. I mean, I don't yeah, think, I think they'll, I don't, they'll just leave it as is, more or less, yeah. and then do what you're suggesting. Um, all right, I think there's one more news story that we want to talk about, and this is probably gonna be the one that um, that inspires the most passion, if you will. Um, this year, over the course of earlier this year, the first half of the year, three writers left, left Valve. So Eric Wolpa in, uh, in February, Chet Falashek in May, and followed by Jay Pinkerton in June. So Valve basically has no writers left. Yeah, they don't make games anymore. 
Yeah. yeah. So Valve is not really making story-driven games anymore. Um, further to that, in late August, former Valve writer Mark Laidlaw, I believe he left the company several years ago, uh, shared a cryptic letter that essentially was the planned plot of uh, some version of Half-Life 3. Um, it later came out from people you know, talking around, doing some investigation that this was one proposed plot for Half-Life 3. There are a whole bunch of other proposals on the table, um, but nothing ever really became concrete on that game. So it sounds like Valve just doesn't make story-driven games anymore yeah and this yeah. one hurts as a pc gamer it really does i mean it, it we've it's we've been known it's been coming for a while i think anybody who actually thought half-life 3 was you know even close to being out is probably you know been kidding themselves for a while but uh man i'm telling you it's it, it's it's like the end of a, of a era in a way that i just feel like they just gave up because the the market was still there. People still wanted it. People would have still been excited, but um, it, I, I don't know. I don't know where they ended up going with with Half-Life 3. The directions that Laidlaw put out there sounded cool. I mean, it sounded like I think what most most fans probably would have um, guessed that it was going to go in, but there's a lot left there, and, and to hear that they've given it up to basically make hats and they're, you know, their weird studio, yeah. Their weird <laughs> studio setup. Of whatever you about. feel like doing, you go do. But nobody felt like making Half Life Three. But you're telling me people wanted to make artifact. I mean, well, come on, guys. That's yeah. like I, I want to continue one of the iconic PC franchises, or I want to make, uh, you know, another skin for Crystal Maiden. Uh, yeah, I'd rather make another skin. Yeah, of course you would. It's probably easier, you know. But it, it's hard, man. It's it, it's it's a sad time when I have to give up on on Valve really making the games that i know and love and yeah sure it's you know steam i use it whatever but yeah that was that yeah, was a like, tough we're not, one to let go we're not going to see another half-life or portal well that's not true portal bridge constructor is coming out next year but that's not really developed by valve yeah Valve's even portal was kind of like a, yeah they brought it into their um you know into their house after it was already a, kind of a thing um but yeah, I don't know, guys. I, I, I'm sure people have less emotional reactions to it. Like, oh, yeah, it makes sense business-wise or whatever. I get it. But, I mean, same argument I made for microtransactions earlier. But, man, it's... For it, me, it's... I would say the thing is I've never been a huge Half-Life fan. I mean, I like Half-Life, but I don't love it. Um, for me, the, the sad thing is I know these people are talented. I know this is a talented group of developers. I just want to see what new things they would have come up with if they had continued making story-driven games. Right. And now we're just never going to see. Yeah. I mean, but it all it all kind of says, says where the money is, right? I mean, you know, we were talking about it a little bit earlier, you know, uh, single-player experiences. Are they – what's going to make more money long-term, Half-Life 3 or another skin for a League of Legends character? That, uh, maybe Half-Life yeah. 3. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know anymore. That's the thing. Cause I mean, when you've got 10 million people playing, you know, league of legends, right. What, what What's the latest? Dota? Well, yeah, but Dota. Oh too. yeah. Like you're talking about, uh, yeah, just in general. I mean, general. those skins probably make a ton of money with how much work goes into them. Like what's it cost to make a half-life compared to what does it cost to make a skin for, you know, uh, one of those heroes. And then you got, you got the player base and how many people buy. And I mean, I mean, the profit margin on those types of things is probably insane, but it's it's just I mean, sad. It's, it's digital, so the profit margin is it's all profit. Yeah, and got to buy zero anyway. marginal cost. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's rough. It, it, it's rough to give up on on 
what was you know a dream then became a joke and now it's like okay yeah it's like you go through all those stages of grief with half-life right <laughs> i think we can finally put the nail in the coffin of half-life 3 and i'm just glad that now we can close that chapter of, yeah. of the gaming yeah, of gaming yeah we close that chapter by it'll never be finished <laughs> yeah. That's a way to close like, it. it's i think now like we've been pulling the band-aid off sort of little by little and grabbing hairs here and there and now we just ripped it off you know i feel and like I'm glad it's those, off now like one of those people who's like uh, you know people talk about closure and it's like i just can't get closure <laughs> like, it just uh, doesn't feel real to me like i need to see the body you know <laughs> like but we're uh, we're still totally gonna get Left for Dead three though, right? <laughs> Probably. Hell but, yeah. But Left it, Left How for Dead's like okay. I, I don't usually get like angry on this podcast, but fuck it. Left for Dead is 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 Valve's worst franchise. It's a garbage series of games. The shooting sucks. <laughs> zombies could go die. They're fucking everywhere. I fucking hate zombies. Left for Dead isn't even fun to play. Payday just outshines. Yeah, Left 4 Dead in every way, shape, or form. It's there's no point. You might as well play Payday. Payday is actually fun. You Left 4 Dead makes, is a garbage series of games, and you know what makes they don't need to make any more. What makes Payday <laughs> fun is that you're not playing against other people. Do you know what I mean? There's like once you add that layer, uh, like Payday is just you against the computer, right? And you yeah, know, but I mean, same with Left 4 Dead. But Left 4 Dead no, is just no, garbage. You, you can play the oh yeah, there's the, the versus mode. You. Yeah, and, but, and that's. That's what – it sucks. I mean because all it is is stress, and I don't, I don't need that in my life. <laughs> also, if you ever play Left 4 Dead online, the community is just garbage. Yeah, that's, that's the big one. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. I can't tell you how many times – like it was three of my friends and one other rando. I can't tell you how many times he dropped a C-bomb on us. Yeah. <laughs> he just kept calling us a C-word over and over and over again. I was yeah. just like – Sounds about right. Dude – Go hug your mom. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come on, man. Um, all right, so that's the year's gaming news, I think. Is there anything else? Are there, are there any stories that we missed that you guys want to talk about? Um, no, not that I can think of. All right. That is literally everything that happened in gaming this year. <laughs> um, so now we're going to switch gears a bit, and we're going to throw it over to some of our community members who are going to come on the podcast and talk about their top three games of the year. And then Kappa and the Radio Cat will return to talk about their favorite games of the year. All right, it's Merv here with our dear friend Ben, podcast regular, also known as Eternal Flesh. And he's going to tell us about his top three or four games of the year. You want to clarify for us, Ben? Yeah, sure. So I figured um, my number two game is Near Automata, and we already did an entire podcast talking about fucking every single tiny little piece of that. So I don't really have anything new to add there. So it'd be more interesting to listen to me talk about another game rather than hear me repeat myself, basically. But y'all should play Near Automata, because it's friggin' great. Oh, yeah, uh, it's amazing. It's my number two game of the year. It's fucking fantastic. Anyway, uh, so tell us about your, your number four game of the year. Okay, my number four game of the year is... I'm going to put a big asterisk here because I haven't finished it because it only came out on Xbox on Monday. Uh, but it is Hand of Fate 2, the sequel to a game probably none of you have played. Uh, somebody must have played Hand of Fate 1 because they made a Hand of Fate 2. Um, what, do they, what do they change from the first one? Okay, well... Well, um, first, explain, I guess explain what the whole Hand of Fate series is about. Yeah, because it's weird. Um, so Hand of Fate is a 
roguelike action RPG collectible card game game of chance. There's a lot of shit in it. Um, yeah, it sounds which, like sounds like there's a lot of stuff in it and might end up being kind of messy. Um, but you say it sort of makes sense how it all fits together? It's hard to describe until you play it, but when you actually play it, it all makes perfect sense. Basically how it plays is, say it is uh, like a grid-based roguelike game where every square you go to has a new event that like you meet someone or you battle someone or you go to a shop or something and you don't know what that event is until you land on it. And how the event is determined is there are cards placed on a table and you're moving across the cards and the card gets turned over and that is the event. Um, so say you move your token onto a card and you turn it over and it'll be like, oh no, bandits have attacked you. And then that'll go into combat, which like zooms in and it's basically Batman Arkham like combat with the counters and dodges and all that kind of shit. Okay, so there's like this this element of, of chance from from the cards, and there's the the combat. So where does the deck building come in? Okay, well the deck building is because the whole like major like story of the game is you are playing a card game against this like mysterious dealer character, right? And he will give you certain challenges. And so is the mysterious dealer, the titular hand of fate. No, maybe okay. I don't know. I... Maybe. He has <laughs> hands. Uh, okay, he has multiple hands. So he's one, <laughs> one of his hands is the hand of fate. Okay, good to know. <laughs> I think it's the left one. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm imagining like the master hand from, from Super Smash Brothers coming out <laughs> and just like tossing cards. Um, yeah, so... Uh, he is actually... Because that is something I should probably mention. He is like... So you're playing cards against this dude sitting across the table from you and he's like talking to you and like kind of like explaining the story and all that kind of stuff as you go along which is really cool um so it's like yeah, a so, it's like a framing device for the whole thing too yeah the like because the story is basically your character has met this dealer person and this dealer has a magical card game and the stories you're playing through in the card game is your character's life up until you met the dealer oh, okay so it's it's like it's like a flashback tail kind of thing going on yeah and but yeah so sorry we got off track from the deck build so the deck building is say like you will go the storyline that the dealer gives you is like you've gone to a town and you need to get rid of like the zombies attacking the town right so when he makes the level with the cards and everything it'll be a mix between cards that he has chosen for that specific level and cards that you have chosen from your deck to put in there so you like when you move to a thing, you have a random chance of a card that you've chosen or a card that he's chosen. And so you can like choose cards that are entirely beneficial to you and he can choose cards that just fuck you over basically. Okay. So you got this, this uh, sort of push pull maxman thing going on with, with your card choice. Yeah. But the thing is like, say you'll be leveling, you get like a whole bunch of new cards and everything, right? You have no idea what those cards do until you land on them in a level. So, like, you can build your entire deck completely out of, like, cards that you don't know what they do and just fucking hope, I guess. So, I guess, so there's, like, some trial and error, too, if you yeah, kind of build the wrong deck. And that is basically, that's the core of the first game. So that is basically the core that they've built this game on. But I'd Oh, say so they added Fate, more for Hand of Fate 2. Oh, God, Hand of Fate 2 is, the best comparison would be Assassin's Creed to Assassin's Creed 2. Like, that kind of jump in quality. Okay. Like, because um, Hand of Fate 1 is, it's a good game, but it's much more like a proof of concept than it is like a really like fleshed out game and everything. 
Um, in Hand of Fate 2, there is a character creator, which is all, I'm always a sucker for. Um, so you actually get to like make a character. Um, Does your character you know, like, like appear on the cards? Uh, your character doesn't appear on cards, but you it's a third-person view when you're in combat. Okay. So you get to see your character there a lot. Um, also, the little um, icon, like the little... You have like a little Monopoly piece that you're moving across the cards that will reflect how you designed your character. Oh, that's really neat. So it makes like, um, a, like, it's like a tiny chibi version of you kind of thing going on? Not chibi at all. Just like, little, like a like Monopoly, like a gold like okay. version of you. Not yeah. like a big head or anything. Sort of bears, bears your likeness a little bit. Yeah. And like you can see it like if you change your weapon in the inventory, like it'll like the little weapon on the little piece will flash out and get changed like daggers or whatever. But um... Yeah, so what they've added in the second one is, in the first game, there was only one, like, method of, like, because, uh, like, say, if you are, like, you get an ev- you land on a card, and the event is, like, there is a rushing river, and you want to try and jump across it, then there'll be, um like, a little three-card Monty minigame, where you have to, like, one of the cards will be marked as success, and the other three will be failure, and you have to, like, guess the right one, otherwise you'll fall in and take damage kind of thing, right? Right. And so in this game, they've, like, there are games that you can get good at, which basically, because there's a whole bunch of more mini games. There's games that you can get good at that are basically like the three card Monty, which you can actually kind of like track the cards as he's doing them. Or there's like this weird like I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a laser thing that you have to like hit stop at the right point where it's pressing on a thing. Or there's like a wheel of like a wheel that you have to stop at the right time. And there's rolling dice, so the more random something should be the more random the game will be okay that makes sense yeah i I can sort of see what you're what you're getting at so something's meant to be if something's meant to be like a 50 50 shot you'll be rolling a dice you'll be rolling dice yeah okay got it but then they've expanded on that a lot more as well because (laughs) probably the biggest thing they added in is um companion characters you'll get when you're building your deck you get to choose your events uh, equipment, which is like what will be available in stores and everything as you go through it, and now you can add companions, which is like a companion character in combat to, like, that'll give you like um, like so buffs s- and stuff, or yeah. So say, I have two companion characters I can choose from. One is a berserker dude, and one is a bard. So if I'm with the bard in combat, he will just like run around in the background shooting fireballs as I attack. But if I stand next to him, he can cast like a shield on me. Whereas like the berserker dude will like instead of doing the shield thing, he will do like this big charge into combat and stun enemies but so they work in combat like that but they also work they give you advantages in like the games of chance and everything as well so the bard character is like a trickster character he will let you completely redo a failed game of chance or like the berserker will let you like win in a contest of strength that you have to do if that makes sense yeah it does it seems like they're essentially modifiers for the card games yeah, and then if you use one of them, they will be like unavailable for the next three turns. Like they have a cooldown, so you can't just spam it to win. Um, okay, so like the bar gets tired of, I guess, telling yeah. tales or singing, whatever he's doing. I guess. But the other thing they added, which is really cool about that, is so those characters have specific cards that you can put as the events you get in. So like, uh, if you have the bard character on your like party, you can land on a card that is a goblin talking to the bard and, like, doing a thing. And if you succeed on that, you'll unlock a new card that is the next bit of the bard's story. Okay, so your your companion characters 
um, have their own like have their own side stories that you sort of yeah, like through times. Learned... So are they sort of like the the weapon stories from from Near Automata? Like as you upgrade your weapon, you unlock more and more of the story, but except for more, more fleshed depth. out. Like because say like the to say the Bard one, I've done like two bits of his story so far, and the first one is like the he's talking to this goblin dude, and the goblin makes you do something for him. You have to like eat poisonous flowers or something. You have to guess out of three flowers he gives you and choose which one to eat and get lucky and not eat the poisonous ones. Otherwise, you'll take a bunch of damage. And then, so that unlocks, he gives you the second bit, which gives you the card of going to, like, the Goblin Undercity. And, like, you unlock a bunch of stores and everything kind of in there, just all done in text and everything from, like, the next card you get to choose. Okay, so, like, it's it's a game that, that continuously sort of builds upon itself as, a, as it goes on. Yeah, pretty much. And all right. Um, so it sounds like it's really, really full feature. Is there anything else that you want to tell us about that you really like? The only, like, I would say the only other thing I'd want to say is that, like, it does have some technical issues. Like, there's a lot of long loading time on it, and there are kind of, like, some graphical hitches and everything. But those are, like, some pretty minor weaknesses in what's otherwise just a really cool, creative, inventive game. Yeah, it's it doesn't sound like anything I've ever played before, and I'm really intrigued. So, uh... Next Steam sale, I might check it out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All right. Um, it is on Steam, though, right? Uh, yeah, Steam, PS4, Xbox. Okay, good to know. Uh, all right, what's your number three? Um, number three is... Can I take a drink of water? I'm really thirsty. Yeah, drink away. This is, like, the least professional podcast ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm joking. Y'all, y'all can drink water. Um, you can do the whole Rubio sip. Nobody can see you sipping, so it's all good. Um, yeah, it's fucking summer here, and it's disgustingly hot. Yeah, I, I'm in I'm in California, so it's just always dry. Are you on fire at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, luckily I live far away from the fire, but I know people who were affected by the fire. So. That's scary. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's never going to burn down to where I am because I live like in the middle of the city, so uh, I'm yeah. completely safe. Uh, but yeah, people who live up in the hills, uh, they got screwed. I mean, it's the rich people who live up in the hills. So, <laughs> um, you know. Speaking of disgusting heat, though, great yeah. segue into my number three game, Assassin's Creed Origins. Oh, neat! Uh, I've heard <laughs> that this is sort of a return to form for the series, and. I've been told it's the best entry since Black Flag slash Rogue. Would you agree? Or I would say it's the best entry full stop. Like, okay. It is, I would say, more than a return to form to series. Like, and like people that know me know I am kind of mad on Assassin's Creed. I have a whole shrine to it in my house. Um, so I might be a little bit biased here, I have to admit. But yeah, uh, I mean, they, I've been hearing this from people who are even like... I mean, probably not Assassin's Creed haters, but people who are kind of Assassin's Creed skeptics have even said this game I've is pretty good. I've been hearing from people, not so much Assassin's Creed haters, but people that got sick of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of people that did that for very good cause because they got shit. I'm not even going to lie. There's a lot of really bad Assassin's Creed games. But Assassin's Creed Origin is basically like they sat back, looked at what Assassin's Creed games were, said this is all shit. Let's get rid of it except for the bits that work, which are just like the basically the climbing. Like that's 
really the only thing left that's like from the previous Assassin's Creed games and like assassinating dudes. Everything else is completely different. Yeah, they've heard they completely revamped the combat. They changed stealth a little bit. Um, they've made it. They've essentially added RPG mechanics. What it feels like is that Ubisoft sat down, looked at like what are our favorite games, what are the bits we like from those games. Let's steal those bits and make them Assassin's Creed. So like, combat is now Dark Souls. It is like, um, left bumper is light attack. Sorry, right bumper is light attack, right trigger is heart attack, shield on the left bumper, like lock onto them, strafe around. It, it's just Dark Souls. It's a bit faster, though. Yeah, that, that seems that seems like the uh, the kind of combat that's become popular in recent years with, with games like... I think it's the same similar system that's used in, in Nioh and maybe even The Surge? I don't... Don't quote me on that. Though. Yeah, The Surge is Dark Souls. The Surge is like sci-fi Dark Souls. Um... Then, basically, for the entire, like, structure of the game, it's just The Witcher. Or The Witcher 3, I should say, because The Witcher sucked. Um, <laughs> yeah, it like, did. <laughs> it is, like, you go to towns, there are dudes that do quests, and, like, one thing that Im- constantly impressed me through the game is, like, you get a quest from a dude, right, and he'll be like, ah, oh, my, like, wagon got stolen by bandits in the desert. So you think, oh, the quest is to go, like, uh, kill the bandits in the desert and get his wagon back, right? But right. that'll, like, every quest feels like that's stage one to like a four-part stage quest so like this quest of the dude that um got uh his wagon stolen by the time you bring his wagon back he's like been moved into this new house and he's like there's a fucking curse on my wall like written in ancient hieroglyphics can you sort this shit out so then you have to go i thought thought you're gonna say he had a curse on his wagon (laughs) (laughs) no it's like this ancient hieroglyphic message written on his wall and then you have to like go around and find anyone else in town that also has ancient hieroglyphics written on their wall. Um, then you put it together, which gives you vague directions to a temple in the middle of the desert. This... Then you have to find and like break into this like sunken temple and find the treasure. And that's the actual end of the quest. That sounds very Secret World-ish. With like, it... piecing together uh, code puzzles and stuff. Oh, there is an entire series of subquests, which is you get riddles and fucking figure them out. Like, like it's just written riddles of, like, um, one of them is, like, in the area in, like, Komentar, like, one of the zones in the game. Um, a tree stands alone as the fallen bodies of its parents look at it. And that's it. Just figure it out. Which means, like, you have to go to this area and find an area where there are, like, all these trees that are knocked down and there's one tree left standing with, like, two trees fallen over pointing to it, and you go behind it, and you find, like, a legendary weapon. So, like, it, it's almost like it's taking the spirit of the Sphinx and kind of spreading it out in, in all these riddles. Oh, yeah, and there is the riddle of the Sphinx that you have to solve as well, because the Sphinx is in the game. We're in ancient Egypt. Um, yeah. But um, honestly, I- what really set it apart for me is, like, like, I love Assassin's Creed. The quest things are cool and everything. But I have never seen a game with the amount of attention to detail that this game has. It's bordering on obscene. Like, if you go to YouTube, look up Assassin's Creed Origins details, you will find 100 videos of, like, 50 amazing details you missed in Assassin's Creed Origins. And if you watch through all of them, 
there will be different ones in every single video. So one thing I've heard, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm apologize if I get this wrong, is that um, they based the the interior design of one of the pyramids on some unproven theory. Uh, oh yeah, like there's how like some built. hidden two, yeah, like how there's some hidden chamber inside, and then they discovered that that hidden chamber actually existed, and somebody sent that like tweeted that information along to Ubisoft. They're like, are you gonna patch this in? And Ubisoft's like. Actually, it's already in there it's because there, bitch. yeah, we based it on we based it on this theory, uh, and they, they confirmed the theory. So now, well, I guess we were right all along. <laughs> yeah, but there is like, like there is stuff like there are the equivalent in the game of um, explosive barrels are like uh, pots of oil. So if you like shoot a pot of oil with a flaming arrow, then the pot of oil like catches fire and sets everyone on fire, right? Right. But like. If you do, like, the dodge roll through the thing, you will smash through the pot and get yourself covered in oil. Then if you run along, you will leave a trail of oil everywhere that you go, and you can set that on fire, which will go back to the pot of oil. But then if you jump in water, you will leave an oil slick across the top of the water. And can you set the oil slick on fire? Yes, you can. (laughs) Sweet, it's just like the Ohio River. (laughs) (laughs) But there's, like, stuff like... If you go into the desert for too long, I can't even see this on my game because I'm playing it on a regular Xbox, but it's apparently a lot clearer on like 4K with like the camera mode to zoom in and everything. Like yeah. bikes' lips will start getting dry. Oh wow, that's like the, real attention if to you detail. Go into the camera mode and look at like the eyeball on the camel you're riding. It has a completely accurate reflection of the entire world, like around it. Like that's that's nuts because reflections are. Reflections are pretty costly in terms of graphical processing yeah. power. On a fucking camel, like if you jump into the Nile River and like swim around and everything, and then you stop swimming for a while, you'll just start getting like dragged along in the current. Like if oh, also if you there are hallucinations if you're in the desert too long, you'll just start like seeing things. Oh, weird. There's like yeah, you'll like see like my favorite one I saw is like there's an old dude just standing in front of you like off in the distance, and if you're right up to him. Like he's like on a, got like a little um walking stick and everything. If you stand in front of him, he will dissolve into his dust, and the walking stick will be stuck like in the ground. And then as you approach the walking stick, it turns into a snake and attacks you. Then it dissolves into dust. Oh, or like fun. Uh, like the first time you said old man, I was like, oh, it's a friendly guy, like Tran from New Girl, and apparently not no. this guy. No, there's like um sometimes you'll just start like hearing yeah. the sounds of battle, like that don't exist if you're in the desert for too long. Um, there's just, it's just I, like it sounds like there's a lot of detail in here. Just I beat that game after like 82 hours in it, and like there are still quest lines I haven't touched, and like and the one thing that really set it apart for me is they're still adding stuff for free. Like there's been a uh, new like giant boss fight with a god added in every couple of weeks. And like so, just dropping in content left and right, which yeah. I, I appreciate. Um, because if we're going to be paying sixty bucks or like I don't know five hundred Australian bucks for games, um, then you know we want them to be these nice, meaty experiences. I mean, you laugh, but I did buy the two hundred and eighty dollars collector's edition. Yeah, I'm only judging you slightly for that. <laughs> All right, so we know your number two is Near Automata. What's your number one game of 2017? My number one game of 2017 is 
I had to choose it purely based on just looking at how much time I've put into all the games I've played this year, and it's For Honor. For Honor's fucking amazing. Yeah, so this this is probably going to be, and I'm, I haven't played it, so I can't say anything about it. For some people, this is going to be a kind of a controversial choice because it did it did you know release to a little bit of controversy. But I've heard that it's become uh, become a nice little robust, um, albeit not as popular as you'd like it to be, uh, fighting simulator almost. It is surprisingly pop, like because I um probably just after I beat Assassin's Creed, I'm like fuck it, I'm going to get back into For Honor. I put it back in again, went into Duel. It took me about like five seconds to find a match. There's still lots of people playing it. Uh, that's good to hear. Cause, uh, and that's on yeah. Xbox One, which I think is the least popular platform it's on. Okay, yeah, because also on, on P- I'm assuming the least popular is PC, because the least popular is always PC. Um, and it's also on PC PS4. is actually the... I'm pretty sure PC is actually the highest, like, sustained play like it didn't have as many sales but it had more people sticking with it if you know okay. what i mean yeah so higher higher loyalty if yeah. you will to the to the brand so what did you enjoy about for honor for honor is like basically the, there's there's a lot of shit in for honor i'm not even gonna lie i there's like about seven game modes and i only ever play two of them because the others suck like there is um dominion mode which is like capture an area stay in the bases like capture, those are all shit they're just not fun to play. So I only ever play the one-on-one duel or the two-on-two brawls, which is basically like duels with two people. Um, but what I love about Piranha is like twofold. One, I feel like grounded melee combat in games is now basically solved. Like, just do it this way. It's, there's no reason you should not, basically. like Yeah, if you're doing first-person melee, this is what it should look like. Third person. Oh, it's third person? Yeah. Huh. It's like, um, basically the combat is like expanded Dark Souls. I keep pre- like comparing it to Dark Souls, but like but people have taken that system and iterated upon it for a reason. Yeah, it's basically like if you took the PvP from Dark Souls, added um fighting game like mix up like high low mix ups to it, and like fighting game character move lists and everything. That's basically where you're at with For Honor, um. And it's one of those things like, if you made Skyrim, but put four on a combat in it, that would be a much better game. If you made The Witcher Three, but put four on a combat in, it, that's just a better game. Yeah, I think I think I've heard you actually say this about Four Honor before that you should just take that combat mechanic and slot it into a bunch of other uh, action adventure like, games. One of my biggest disappointments with Assassin's Creed Origins was like, fuck, I wish they just used the four on a combat. Yeah, that, that I mean that would have been an even higher attention to detail for that game. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I also For Honor also has a single player campaign, right? It has a single player campaign. It's not amazing. It's not bad. It's it it's works. There. Like like it's not like fucking the like shitty Street Fighter Five one, but it's also not like um, Titanfall Two where it's worth buying the game just to play the. Like more yeah. single player game. I mean, it's definitely I'm gonna not. be I'm gonna be honest. I played maybe three or four matches of the Titanfall two multiplayer. I played the single pl- I played the hell out of the single player. Um and I feel like I got my money's worth just from yeah, the campaign. I, like even I was like really into Titanfall one. After I played the single player campaign Titanfall two, I played like a match or two of the multiplayer, like I don't care. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. and the multiplayer is not bad. It's actually really good no, multiplayer. It's, it's, it's just really like, good, but it's not the single have, player. And yeah, holy it's like, shit, that single player. Yeah, that was. I think I named that like my third or fourth best game of 2016 because that, that was a damn good game. Um, anyway, for honor. Though. Yeah. So yeah, for honor. Um, anything else you'd like to tell us about this? For honor also has because um, I know loot boxes is a fun thing to talk about at the moment. Um, yeah, and for um, honor does have loot boxes. But I think it probably has one of the most fair implementations of loot boxes in a multiplayer game I've ever seen, and I think other games would actually do well to kind of copy from it. Um, right, because the Battlefront Two was just uh, at least at least their oh. initial plans were just not really acceptable. I'm gonna say. Yeah. So basically, how it works in For Honor, right, is um, you get a currency called Steel, which you get from either playing the game or like just buying it with real money. You can use them to buy loot boxes, which gets gear for your character. And so the gear, on top of being cosmetic, it like uh, will also like increase different stats and everything. So like your attack range, how much like attack you do when some like how much damage you do through someone's block, all that kind of shit. But like, so how they've balanced it though is if you your character levels up, so you start a character and you're level one, and you can get your gear and all that shit. And then as you level up, you Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, but say if you started playing now, right, and you had like five hundred dollars to spend on microtransactions versus my character that's like level forty something and hasn't spent any money on microtransactions, no matter how much money you spend on your character's gear, you're never going to get anything in the loot box that's higher level than your character. So you're only going to get like level one gear until you actually level that character up, which means. It's basically going to give, like, say your mace has three different stats. It'll have, like, plus one to attack, but minus one to reach. Or you have another one that has, like, plus one to reach or minus one to attack. Right. And so all the items are balanced around that, and you're never so going you to get So you can't, anything. like, pay to out-level yourself, essentially. No, you can't pay to level, and you can't get gear that's higher than your level. You need to put in that time, otherwise you're fucked. All right. So it sort of levels the... or I, shouldn't, I don't know if it levels playing field, but it does make it so that um, time investment you put in doesn't feel like it's wasted. Yeah, like, the basically, you're always going to be, like, at the right strength for your character level for the time you've put in. The other thing it does is gear, like, gear stats only affect certain game modes. So in a duel, gear stats don't do anything. So if you're fighting, like, a level 60 dude wearing all epic gear and you're level 1 in all grey gears, you're the same strength. Like, it is just a skill difference. The gear stat only goes on in, like, the big, like, like 8 versus 8, like, big war scene kind of things. Okay, yeah, that's that's actually a really nice approach because it helps not alienate newer players. Yeah, so, like, yeah, and you can just, um... do And I do jewels anyway, so who gives a shit about my gear? I dress up my character to look pretty. Um, this, I, I mean, yeah, that that's... Part of what made Overwatch so successful, right? People yeah. dre- people buying skins. That is the one complaint I would have for the game, other than like the bad game modes. When you play the game, you choose a class. You don't choose a character. Like I think if they'd made it so, like it's like I play a Conqueror. It's a character with a shield and a flail. Like if they'd made it instead of playing as the Conqueror, I played as like Bill the Conqueror. Joe. Yeah, Bill, this dude with uh, um, 
Actually, no, my comparison would be uh, Krav Mordo, the dude with the flail and a shield from Mace the Dark Age on the N64. So say if I played as Krav Mordo instead, right? Okay, I can see that. <laughs> I, I, I was hoping you could play as Bruce from uh, Shadow of War. Is he the orc? Yeah, the orc guy <laughs> that you're like, I wish we could romance him. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. But, like, if you had actually characters that had, like, personalities and everything, because they kind of give them personalities in their taunts. Like, I like the Conqueror because all their taunts make them look like an idiot. Like, they hit themselves in the foot and, like, wince around in pain and all that kind of stuff. But, like, just if they actually had, like, characters that had backstories. Because that's one of the things I think Overwatch did really well is, like, I don't even like playing Overwatch, but, like, you get invested in the characters, which you can't really do in For Honor since they're not characters. They're just generic classes. Yeah, That's really... that, that that makes sense. It's really, you know, when you have strong character design, uh, people are going to like imprint on those characters or want to be, um, or since they want to be like them, but want to know more about them. Yeah, like you're never going to see anyone fucking cosplaying as the Nabushi, or actually you probably would, she's got a pretty cool design. But um, like you're not going to see like the kind of like cosplay and like fan comics and everything of all that shit like you do with Overwatch because there's not as much to connect to. Yeah, you know what? Um, this is actually a more more interesting point than it sounds like. Uh, Jim Sterling says the, said the, the way you know that Overwatch characters are, are recognizable and popular is that there's so much porn of them. <laughs> yeah, no, that tracks. Alright, so I guess... I mean, I'm not going to look for it right now, but if you want to, uh, you can, and you're sitting in your computer at home, not at work, uh, you can search for For Honor Porn and let us know what's out there. Uh, <laughs> please, uh, just comment on the avocado. Let us know. All right. Thank oh, I'm you for... I'm definitely doing that for my home. Yeah. Thank you for sharing uh, our uh, your top three, ga- top four, I guess, games of the year. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right. And... Uh, We'll see you with uh, some other peeps. We're going to share their top three as well. Alrighty, I'm here with Otaku to Mike and Pulp Robot. And uh, these two fine folks are going to tell me about their top three games of 2017. So how are you guys doing? Mm, pretty good. Mostly Only sick. pretty good, not like super excellent. Well, sick. So, yes, only pretty good. Hindered my plane for the last couple weeks. Oh, I know. Well, the one advantage of being sick, if there is any advantage whatsoever, is that it's an excuse to play a lot of video games. And uh, I'm sure you've played a lot of video games this year, Mike. So uh, why don't you tell me what your top three of 2017 are? Start with your number three. What's your number three? Well, just as a general overview, I know a lot of people have talked about how what a great year 2017 has been for games. For me, it's been most shown because uh, four of my previous top games of the year all got sequels this year. So, yeah, unfortunately, two of them, I haven't had enough time to really necessarily make the list. Pandemic Legacy and uh, and uh, Fire Emblem Warriors. Both of them are very good games. I just haven't spent enough with them to necessarily call them in my top three. So for me, the number three, that was a very difficult choice for me. Probably actually um, Shovel Knight Plague of Shadows. Oh, the DLC Plague of Shadows, um, Spectre of Torment. Yeah, the DLC for Shovel Knight that came out this year. Yeah. It was a tough call there. um, But that Shovel Knight just keeps getting better with every DLC there is. So 
I can't wait till the next one comes out, and hopefully they keep making more. I know there was talk that King's uh, the King one might be the last one. Yeah, they they've put out two DLC campaigns so far, right? Yeah, Spectre of Torment and uh, Shadow of Death, or Plague of Shadows. Okay, so there should be yeah, there might be one more on the way. Do you think they're gonna make a Shovel Knight two at some point? Or do you think Yakub will move on to something else? You know, that's really hard to say. I would really like them to because they've done a ton with the game just with the DLC. But after, I mean, this game has been in pro- effectively in production for five years now. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised the studio wants to, you know, diversify a little bit. Yeah, branch out and do something else. Um, yeah. So what would you, re- uh, you really like about Plague of Shadows as, as compared to, say, the other, the other bits of Shovel Knight? Um, well, each of the DLCs, the control mechanisms are always slightly different, which makes things a lot more interesting. Like, you'll come across the same levels in all three versions, but because you jump differently, you move differently, you have to get through it in different ways. So it's always a new learning experience and pretty interesting to see, uh, to see how you have to get through the levels each time. All right. So it seems like, uh, it seems like they add new sort of minor variations each time that, that change the flavor of the game while maintaining the same core that everybody loved to begin with. Exactly, yeah. All right, so that's uh, Plague of Shadows. What's your, your number two game of the year? It actually has to be Breath of Wild. I know it's going to probably shock a lot of people that it's not number one, but uh, Breath of Wild uh, just couldn't hold it up to quite make number one for me. Great but- game. Can't quite put it at one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been getting accolades left, right, and center at one uh, best game of the game awards this year. Um, it's I've been told that it's a kind of a, a stunning reinvention of of the Zelda formula. Zelda's been more sort of traditional action adventure RPG for a while, uh, with more I shouldn't say corridor levels, but you know, you got your your overworld and your dungeons and things like that. This is, you know, a full open world Zelda. And how, how does that compare to, to previous entries? It's not as big a difference as you might think, especially compared to something like um, Ocarina of Time or whatnot, which were always pretty open world. They just would kind of cordon off certain areas so you did certain dungeons. This goes full open world. You don't really notice it as much. Um the biggest place you notice it is because you can easily get sidetracked and just keep being more and more sidetracked as you're chasing shrines you find until you realize you're halfway across the map from where you were meant to be. Thankfully, it has a teleportation ability, which is a lifesaver for that. Oh, yeah. If you didn't have fast travel, I can imagine that this would be a very different oh, game. Oh, yes. Uh, that would be a lot more aggravation in there. Yeah, so it's... Um... I've I've seen you know bits and pieces of this. I've seen trailers, but you have what, a switch. What, How do you not have Breath of Wild? Uh, okay, so I bought my switch with Mario plus Rabbids, and then I bought Super Mario Odyssey and Golf Story, and after and then now I just got Xenoblade Chronicles two. So I'm going to go back to Breath of the Wild at some point later, uh, because I I just it just happened to be the time of year that I got the switch. I just didn't have time to slot in Breath of the Wild into my into my switch playing, unfortunately. Um, so why, why don't you tell me what's what sort of sets apart uh, Breath of the Wild from other open world games? Because I keep seeing that uh, 
people say it's it's a refreshing take on on the genre, but I don't really know much about how it differs from say your Skyrims or your Fallout's. Well, I'm not a huge open world guy, so that's going to be a little hard for me to answer. Um, maybe Pulp Robots played more than I have. For me, when I play Fallout, I get bogged down in the side quests, and when I get to the main quest, I just don't care anymore. Breath of the Wild simplifies that by really almost making the main quest very minor. It never attempts to really build it up so much. It's a very short main quest, which is why people can beat the game in under an hour. And it's really just all about the exploration. You don't have huge quest chains. It's all about just going to new places and seeing what you find. <laughs> so, yeah, you, I've heard that the main quest is relatively short, but do you, do you like level up or get new gear? How exactly do they make it so that you don't just beeline for the main quest? Well, they they don't. If you want to, you could just beeline for the four bosses you have to beat and then go to... Or actually, you don't have to beat them. Um, if you want, you can beeline for Ganon and fight him with three hearts. It There's nothing that stops you. And I, I've seen there are Let's Play videos of people beating the game in 45 minutes with three hearts and a shit ton of luck. <laughs> right. I, I can imagine speedrunners are trying to get that down right now. Oh, uh, yeah. They'll, they'll do it. It's... Yeah, what and, you get is, as you do shrines, you get more hearts, which makes you, you know, more survivable. And if you beat the four bosses that you're supposed to chase, you get special abilities from them that help you later on. But that's okay. the only thing that def- that would make you want to beat them before fighting Ganon. So it's all like a system where there's XP and then you choose which skills to level up. It's It's very much more like... You you kind of need to train by um, by going around the open world, learning how to use your abilities, and then, practically speaking, you get more health, which makes battles easier. Yeah, exactly. You get more health and you get more stamina, which makes running and climbing easier. But yeah, that's that's all you get. You don't get uh, extra levels or anything. Yeah, it's not like Link unlock. It's not like you can level up. I don't know Link's jump or whatever. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that that seems that's a very different structure from, you know, mo- most open world games. They, they started more like Zelda actually, and then it's over the past, I'd say, decade of development, they've moved more towards giving people XP and level, leveling up and things like that. Especially like the whole Ubisoft uh, open world genre has moved in that direction. So it's it, it's almost like Zelda's not really reinventing things, but kind of going back to the open world uh, genre's roots which I think it seems really neat to me that, you know, maybe we were right all along. We didn't need to go on this big XP chase and detour. I mean, it seems right to me. Cause like I said, I, I just can't get through fallout. I don't have the patience to deal with the side quest stuff and breath of the wild. Didn't give me any of that trouble. <laughs> yeah. I've been t- hearing people thinking like 150, 200 hours into this game. Um, I mean, I wish I had 150 hours that I could spend on a game, uh, but people are really, really like. Well, they just one. dropped more DLC for it, I think, a couple of nights ago, which now gives Link a motorcycle. So if you really want to get into it, Link's got a motorcycle now. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that he's just like, I love that it just came, completely came out of nowhere because you think of Link riding like a horse, right? They even riding on Epona, I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah, and now... Now he's got like a motorbike. He's like, "Fuck you, horse! I don't need you no more." <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so that's Breath of the Wild. What's your number one game of 2017? Total War Warhammer 2, oh, which is a nice. sequel to one of my uh, my game of the year from last year. Oh, wow, which, it came that quickly? Yeah, actually, which really surprised everybody because they'd always said they were going to make them um, three games in the series. And then this one, I think, basically got announced in the summer and then came out in um in like August. It was like three or four months after it was announced, it was out already. See, that's refreshing. You don't have to go through the gigantic promotional cycle. They just tell you the game's on the way, and then it's there. Well, the, the thing with Total War Warhammer is the first one came out last spring, and since it came out, they dropped six or seven DLC packs up until like a month before this one came out. And then this one came out, and there's already, I know, DLC in the work for this one, um, where you can actually play the two games as one. It merges the giant map together if you've bought both games. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, Pulp, Pulp, you were saying something about Total War? Yeah. I was just going, that's cool that they mixed them together like that. I, yeah. I haven't actually... I haven't actually tried the giant map because the first Total War had a really big Total War map. Uh, Warhammer 2, I never even got to like a quarter of the map, but almost a third of the map, I never even saw it because it is huge. So playing them together would be um, an insanely large map. (laughs) So what if they change from the first Total... I'm not going to call it Total War Warhammer. I'm just going to call it Total Warhammer. Um, What if they change from the first Total Warhammer? So the big change is they tweak the way um, agents or heroes, as they're called now, work. It used to be a hero could either do combats, ingrain himself with an army to do combat stuff, or he would do overworld map stuff. But their skill trees were a mess where you'd often have to level up overworld map stuff just to get to the combat skills. And it made them a pain. So they completely redid all of the skill trees and made it so that heroes can actually function in an army while still doing their overworld map stuff. And they split up the way they level so they uh, you can actually focus on what you want the hero to do, which makes them a lot more effective. They also... Uh, one of the biggest graphic changes is the overworld map and then both the combat maps look gorgeous now. There's a lot of... Uh, active stuff on the overworld map just things moving by and when you go in the combat map there's a lot more um terrain features so you get chasms going across the map which create choke points and whatnot which creates for a much more interesting uh, battle experience and i think yeah. my final big change um is they change the way city building works where if cities have unique build change building chains they get uh, extra building slots just for them. The first uh, Total Warhammer, you could have a city with four or five unique buildings. It was a, a faction capital. And if you built those, you couldn't actually make the city function because you couldn't build the buildings you needed to, to do anything in the city. So now some cities can have a lot of extra building slots so you can get their unique buildings and basic buildings you need to function. <laughs> So it sounds like they added some more flexibility in how you kind of construct um, your cities. Yeah. This I'm looking at screenshots right now on Steam, and this looks amazing. Like you, do, I when I when I was a kid, strategy games were like the ugly games, right? And then if you wanted to play a game that had cutting edge graphics, you played you know your first person shooters, your action adventure games. 
but this looks gorgeous, and I wonder how it doesn't fry people's computers. Well, t- Total War games in general have always been really good looking. I don't know anybody who's ever run one in max graphics because if you actually um, zoom in all the way, you will see every individual person with the details of all of their individual models, like gear they're carrying, and then when they fight in combat, they'll sit there swinging their swords, and there's 2,000 models on the screen running around. Yeah, I don't know how, how you don't... <laughs> if, you want, if you want it to look as good as it does in the screenshots, I assume you need like three graphics cards running in parallel. You know, I, I won't lie to you. I actually usually run it on really low graphics, and it still looks amazing. That's why I've never seen what it would look like with absolute best graphics. I, I think you could run um, VR off your computer before you could run Total War on its best graphics. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I assume there's probably some Twitch streamer out there who like streams it in 4K or 60 <laughs> FPS, and it probably looks amazing, but also they probably are going to set their apartment on fire one day. <laughs> <sighs> So yeah, this this looks really neat. And I do you think would it be a good entry point for the Total War franchise if you don't know anything about Warhammer, or is it really for for the fans? So what I've always said in the past with Total War games is all of them have their own strengths and weaknesses. So just find the time period that you like and start with that one. I changed that with Total War Warhammer, which is just a leap ahead of all the other games that I think it is the one to start with. And Warhammer 2 is such a leap ahead of the first one that they actually went back and repatched Rome, which is like five years old, with like, it was like almost a gig-sized patch to make it effectively like Warhammer 2. So Warhammer 2 is the one you want to start with if you can. Okay, it's it sounds like something I might chuck out because I've, I've been meaning to play more strategy games. I thought I just always hated strategy games. I played Mario Rabbids this year and I ended up really liking it. So maybe... There is a strategy gamer in me somewhere. What I will give Warhammer 2 that also does better than Warhammer 1 is there is something of a story for each of the factions and it actually conveys the story really well. Enough so that late in the game, if you make it all the way, which can be kind of long, there's something of a twist that, frankly, I should have seen coming and I didn't. And it was enough of a twist that it made me mad. I felt betrayed by a by the faction that uh, is screwing with you and during the twist, which is, you know, a good feeling. Uh, the games that listen to emotional response the way it means to. <laughs> yeah, you typically don't think of, of strategy games as eliciting that kind of emotional response. Usually it's like, um, you know, a first-person shooter can do it really well because, you know, you're playing as that protagonist. So to see that a strategy game is capable of that as well, that's that's really neat. So those are Otaku to Mike's top three games of the year. Pulp Robot, man. What are your three favorite games of the year? What's number three? So three is, I am going to fully admit, it is completely chosen on pure nostalgia. Uh, it just blinded me, but it's Thimbleweed Park. Oh, nice. Yeah, that that came out this year. I thought yeah. For some reason, I thought it came out last year, but yeah, I guess it came out this year. Yeah, no, came out because I grew up on the LucasArts Adventure games, and those were like my bread and butter as a kid. That hit every point for me. I knew it was going to be up high no matter how I ended the year. It was going to be there. Yeah, it's it's really it's really kind of a love letter to the old adventure games down to, like, you have an inventory with verbs, just like the yep. old one. Yep. It even has the whole, I'm going to beat my head against the wall till I figure out this puzzle. Oh, wait, I'm an idiot. That was obvious now that I see it. 
Yeah, I I kind of I kind of love and hate that feeling. You know, that's why I don't play that many adventure games cuz I love the feeling of solving a really tough puzzle, but I hate just running around from map to map um trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do next. Um so but yeah, it seems like it, it seems like it was really neat and how are, how are the puzzles compared to uh, uh other adventure games? So there's two difficulties. There's easy and there's hard. And because I'm insane, I went with hard. I'm like, I can figure this out. I'm smarter than when I was a kid. No, no, I'm not. (laughs) I spent a good chunk of the game going, okay, do not Google answers. Do not Google answers. Do not Google answers. They are hard. They are up there with some of the old games and hard. Not like Discworld hard where you're like, this makes zero sense, but... The really annoying, almost annoying hard ones. The ones that you know what to do, you just can't figure out exactly how to do it. You're like, oh, okay, so they're can't... like the the rubber duck puzzle from The Longest Journey hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I remember um, I remember playing through The Longest Journey and I had to, especially some of the early puzzles, just had to look up the solutions. Uh, but some newer adventure games like Tokyo Dark never had to look up a solution. Broken Age, I only had to look up one, and that was the stupid snake puzzle that everybody had to look up. Um, so I think they've gotten kind of easier and more sensible. So it's in some ways nice to see, uh, for the sake of nostalgia, to see some of these old, um, old puzzle designs come back. The hardest puzzle for me was you, because you switch characters, and you have two FBI or government agents you switch back and forth. One of them winds up in a sewer, and you're supposed to drop a coin down into the sewer. The air character picks it up and goes to a phone and calls a number you find on another screen as the first character. Oh, wow. That is really convoluted. That took me probably the longest. I think that was a good hour when I solved it. I was like, okay, I'm going to bed because this game actually just made me angry for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds... It sounds like an evolution from, I mean, there are the old games that had you switching characters like Maniac Mansion, uh, but then more recently there's also The Cave, which I believe Ron Gilbert also worked on. Ron Gilbert is the reason I kept an eye on Thimbleweed Park. I'm a big fan of his, as you could obviously tell, so him and Tim Schafer, I will check out any game that their name is on. Yeah, especially um, now that, uh, I mean, Ron Gilbert's kind of, doing his own independent thing these days. Do you think he has another adventure game in the pipeline? Um, I think he's hinted at it a little bit. He has stated many times he wants to finish the Monkey Island series, how he originally planned it, and I just keep hoping he can. Yeah, I mean, Disney's going to hold on to that license till the end of time, unfortunately. Yeah. But if they ever find it in their hearts to to sell it off to a company like Double Fine, I would be all about it because they don't need it anymore. They got pirates, man. Yeah. They don't need. Monkey and the Island. Monkey Island series is in my top five of all time. So, I've actually never played the originals. I've only ever played Tales from Monkey Island, which people tell me isn't that great, but I actually really loved it. So, I'm thinking, you know, I want to see the old, the older Monkey Island games, and maybe a new one updated with, you know, modern graphics and all that. The remasters they released a couple years back. No, oh, nice. Yeah, I, are, I heard about those. Are amazing. I love that you can go back in between the eight bit graphics and the current like weird painted thing they did, but they kept everything perfectly like similar. They removed a few of the unwinnable, un, 
intentional unwinnable situations where like you could accidentally glitch your game to the end. Oh, you like soft lock it so you can't beat it. In the first one, you could accidentally uh, get rid of an item you needed through a glitch, uh, and you yeah. could not pass any further until like towards the end of the game. So you would have to start all over. Oh, that that sucks. I that happened to me in uh, Resonance, and I had to give up halfway through because I just broke a puzzle and I couldn't beat the game. So I was like, "Fuck this! I'm not playing this game no more." Uh, so yeah, I, anything that takes out unwinnable situations from adventure games, I'm in favor of. Yeah, that's right, Lucas's so that was... art's whole thing is that one. They made it so you can't if the game works properly. There's been a few glitches where they're like, shit, patches now. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't patch games really back in those days, so it's nice that uh, they they can take care of those glitches now. So that was your number three, Thimbleweed Park. What was your number two? Horizon Zero Dawn. Oh, nice. Uh, that's a game that I really wanted to play, but I just didn't have time for it this year. So what do you like about Horizon Zero Dawn? First of all, it is super pretty. Like, it just looked amazing to me. And my TV's kind of old, so it was pretty intense to see something that pretty on my TV. Is it? Uh, did you play it on the, the vanilla PS4 or the PS4 Pro? Uh, just the vanilla PS4, because that's what I got. Okay, nice, because... Uh, I have a van- well. I have one of the special edition Uncharted PS4s, so it's teal, but it's like a vanilla PS4. So I was thinking, if it looks good on on the vanilla, then it's something that I, I might want to check out. So, what else did you like about the game? Uh, so there's all those like robot creatures or whatever. I always called them robot dinos to me because that's what they were. Yeah. And when you play the game, they kind of give you little hints on how to fight everything. But because I'm insane, I'm like, no, I won't figure this out on my own. So I really liked every new one I found, finding out how to take them down. Yeah, you made like a little puzzle for yourself. Yeah, as you can tell, I tend to go towards puzzle things pretty quickly and easily in my world. But that and I really actually like in open world games, I never really relate to the main character most of the time because I get bored with them because they have no personality because they're supposed to just go wherever you go so, to facilitate everything. Right. But I really liked Ellie Lowy. I thought she was an interesting character and really kind of fun to just watch her go through a story. So she actually has a real personality as opposed to other action game characters who often don't. <laughs> yeah. It's not a super complex personality, but it's there enough to make me go, okay, There's, I feel motivation to help this character complete the story. Unlike fallout or skyrim where halfway through the game I'm like i'm bored yeah i mean when you create your own character the game kind of has to allow for more possibilities in terms of uh the personality you express but when a game gives you a character they can direct your experience a little more and it makes that it makes it easier for the game to give a set more nuanced personality rather than painting in broad strokes with uh, player choice. I described Horizon Zero Dawn to my boss as Assassin's Arkham Tomb Raider because that's like three of his favorite series. He gave me like a ten cent raise over to like recommending this game this year. He's like, "You got a raise." Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should give your you should give your boss video game recommendations more often. Oh yeah. 
The problem is we play very different games. He's really big into like the Call of Duties and stuff. So I'm like, eh, I don't play those. Yeah, just just I don't know. Maybe maybe pick up uh, Call of Duty World War Two. I'll get you a raise. You can talk about the the DLC. I don't know anything about Call of Duty. Talk about the zombies. Just, just watch a lot of Let's Plays of it and pretend that you're playing it. <laughs> yeah, nobody's going to know the difference, right? <laughs> yeah, I shot that dude and then a little kid insulted my mother. Yeah, just that's pretty much all it is. You know what's actually sad, though? It's not usually little kids. It's like fully grown adults who do most of the, the shit talk in online multiplayer. It's like, dude, you're 28. Get a grip. I played a Call of Duty online with my boss because I could borrow a friend's copy. Oh, nice. Uh, he was one of those shit talkers really quickly. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, That's kind of horrifying. Um, the next day at work, he was like, we don't talk about online interactions. I'm like, we don't talk for the next week. I'm, I'm angry at you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hopefully, hopefully he he uh, matures in that regard. Um, so, you enjoyed sort of the puzzle solving aspect to figure out yeah. how to take down these big monsters in Horizon Zero Dawn. I also love their designs too. So, just why I just sit there and watch them move around and stuff for a while, and just going, this is completely okay with me. I can do this for another hour. Yeah, they, they, it looks like they really put a lot of thought into how they're going to animate these beasts and give them a mixture of um, animal and machine qualities. Yeah. There's <laughs> one of those things that the ones that aren't super aggressive, there'd be a small part of me that was really depressed to kill each one for the scraps I need to improve my character. I'd be like, ah, oh, there's that cute little deer one. No, it's dead. Any of its parts, I feel a little bad. Yeah, it's almost like because they give it that animal quality, you're not you're you don't feel like you're just killing a machine. You feel like you're actually killing an actual living being. I always have problems in games like Far Cry Three was really big in that whole you have to hunt animals and skin them to upgrade your character, and I always struggle a little bit with it. So, well, yeah. Red Dead Redemption had a achievement for killing all of the buffalo, so. A lot of people made Buffalo go extinct just to get an achievement. I did it. <laughs> yeah, people will people will do pretty much anything for an achievement, um, especially like people who who actually you know go out, you know, chivo hunting as they call it. They will do all sorts of shit just to get their gamer score up. Um, me on the other hand, I like this. I game on PS4. I get trophies occasionally. I just don't care. I somewhat care about Steam achievements. Switch doesn't even have achievements. Um, so I'm not really into into hunting for, for every achievement. But you never know. Some people really like killing those animals. My brother is one of those people. I'll just get tech from him. God, they're playing him. Okay? <laughs> yeah, some people just really love killing animals. Um, so that was Run Zero Dawn. What's your number one game of 2017, Paul Robot? So I had to check to make sure it was still okay giving you rules, but you said so on the call out that I could choose Persona 5, and Persona 5 is it. Yeah. I sunk way too many hours into that game. Yeah, that game took me, I think I looked at my in game clock, 128 hours. I think yeah. with 
all three playthroughs, I probably clocked in 250 somewhat. Oh, that game wow. annihilated two months of my time. I am a little ashamed of it. That game, I got that game on on release. I think it was April 4th or something of this year. And I beat it in October. <laughs> you see, that's my hesitation with playing Persona. I really liked uh, Tokyo Mirage Sessions, but then Persona games taking 150 hours to beat? I'm not sure I want to stick that much time into an RPG. Well, how long is Tokyo Mirage Sessions? It's, it's pretty long, I, right? I beat it in about... 75 to 80 i want to say persona I mean, a 5 lot of is, that is cutscenes too persona 5 is doable in under 100 if you're not slow and stupid like me or you don't run around like i do i was just like we're just going to run around just check every single thing out every single time for the first month of the game yeah eventually i i did that for the first week of in-game time and after that i was like i can't do this otherwise i'm gonna be here for 200 hours um but yeah, it's uh, it's a very lengthy and also very meaty game. There's a lot of content there. My two game genres are something involving puzzles and JRPGs. So that's speaking my language, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- this is like if you want games, where, if you want to talk to people who like puzzles and JRPGs, I don't think you could have assembled like three people who want to talk more about puzzles and JRPGs. <laughs> Um, so you've, uh, you enjoyed like the JRPG aspects. So how'd you feel about, um, the changes they made from Persona 4 in terms of the structure and the combat? Uh, I actually like the combat a little bit more in five because four star four would be a little, I don't want to say difficult to get into a little more complex and not a good way to me. But I was a lot younger, so I'm not sure how much that... I haven't played it since then. I really loved it, but I was also a younger, stupider person when I played it, so... Persona 4 used to do... um, Used to make things like... like It didn't have the baton pass feature, which uh, made strategizing against weaknesses a little harder. Um, It didn't have... um, Whatchamacallit? It... It would kind. It wasn't as clear up front about what the weaknesses and strengths of each... uh, each persona was i remember it took me probably three weeks in persona 4 or i got it from gamefly and it took me like three weeks to just get through the first dungeon because i just could not make it heads or tails of the combat system then so i just play it a little bit get frustrated turn it off have to start all over yeah it's a it's a pretty hard game up front and then it gets easier and then it gets hard again right at the end it's kind of all over the map persona 5 though is um i mean i played it on easy because i'm a wimp not safety i'm not that much of a wimp um but i i played it on easy so i could go through in in 120 hours if i'd played it on on normal probably would have taken me 200 hours i'd still be playing it right now i had to play through a second time just because the twins are a secret I'm just going to spoil it. There are secret boss you can fight. And oh, yeah. Yeah, the first time, I, I'm like, okay, I got pretty good personas. I'm a pretty decent level. I think I can make heads or tails of this, or at least decent. No, nope, nope, dead, dead instantly. Yeah, so Persona 5 not only changes up the combat and, and structure a little bit from Persona 4, it also 
like the the style is completely different. I mean, the music also it moves from R and B and pop to acid jazz, which I think was a nice, was a neat um, and and very rock based music. I think it was a neat transition that they made. I uh, love also, the soundtrack. I just like it constantly keeps popping up on my YouTube playlist. I'm like, all right, we're doing it. Cool. Yeah, you, you keep playing like you'll never see it coming over and over again. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, they've the the style too is very different from the previous Persona games because now they got the graphical power to make it look kind of anime esque, which they couldn't do before. Uh, like in Persona Four, everybody looks like friggin' chibis, and it's really weird. Uh, playing Persona Five, I have a friend who was. I got it on launch day two, and he uh, couldn't play it for two weeks due he was going on vacation at that exact time. He was oh, not no. happy with his spouse. His spouse actually, I think, scheduled it so he didn't spend two weeks playing that game. <laughs> but the first thing I texted him after playing it for like 10 minutes was, this game is literally just style. It is awesome style. Just, yeah. Yeah, it's just the splashes of color everywhere. It looks like it looks like there's splashes of paint, and then when you go through the menus, they're all at, at weird angles. Um, they really put a lot of thought into how they're going to present it to the player. It's not. It's it feels very lively. It's not sterile like the JRPG menus of other games. And sterility is sometimes an artistic decision. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's refreshing to play something that's so vibrant looking. Where you aren't so. bothered when you open up the menu and go, oh. Here's all the things you're like, this is still entertaining to see every time three hours later. Yeah, that, yeah, that was so definitely they, Tokyo Mirage sessions. They were oozing style in that one. <laughs> yeah, they I for what I saw, it looked like um like they really went with for Tokyo Mirage sessions, they really went with like the whole idol aesthetic all over the place, which uh I'm I wouldn't say I'm a necessarily a fan of it, but I'm really intrigued by it. Yeah. I just been ahead a lot of the color that you're talking about, Persona Five too. But yeah, it's it's dynamic all over the place. Yeah, it's something I, I really appreciate about it. And um, narratively, Persona Five is is actually, and this is what I've been telling people, it's actually like a blistering critique of a lot of aspects of, of Japanese society, which I don't think a lot of Western gamers have fully appreciated. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I grew up watching anime so i kind of picked up on some of that because i honestly i kind of fell out of following anime and games for the most part for like four years a couple years back where i just kind of like dropped it all through personal issues but i picked up on that and the only problem i really had with that is towards the end of the game it gets involved into uh the japanese government yeah. And I know jack about Japanese government. So I was just like, what? Is that the president? What? So I had Google a whole bunch of things and did not help. Yeah. I mean, it's not totally accurate uh, as to how the Japanese government operates. Um, but it's meant to be uh, like, it's it's actually, what, from what I've been told, um the posters that uh, Shido puts up, his campaign posters, are like a parody of Shinzo Abe's cam- campaign re-election posters. Okay, I didn't hear that. I did notice the critique of the whole you you are assigned of a crime 
your life is over because I know that was a big thing in Japanese culture for a long time that's starting to get some blowback. Yeah, and it's so it's it critiques, you know, the criminal justice system. Um it goes after corruption and um and also uh people who people who abuse their power. Um there's also a, a pretty strong critique of workplace sexism in there. It's pretty much a rebuke to um, to a lot of I don't want to say more conservative elements of Japanese society, but more uh, backwards isn't even the right word. People who outdated, are, yeah, outdated is probably a better way of looking at it. It's a rebuke to a lot of outdated yeah. ways of thinking in Japanese society, um, which I, it do, doesn't play maybe as well in in the West because. You know some of the some of the issues they're they're speaking of are extremely specific, uh, but overall, I think it's 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 pretty bold for a piece of media to to be that overtly political. Why well, saw is a lot of Westerners for some reason saw it, saw it as like a rebuke rebuke of Trump, and I'm just like I don't get how you got it there. I don't see it in there, and yeah. I just kept seeing articles and think pieces about how it is, and I'm just like I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, even the AV Club's own review uh, compared it to uh, kind of a, a contest between Trumpism and uh, the Sanders revolution, which is a little bizarre because the game came out in Japan long before Trump won the Republican primary. Are, are yeah. you going to be surprised by the AV Club trying to make something about Trump? That's been their MO for the last year and a half. Yeah, I mean... Not not to rag on, on the site, I, because I think this is this is a sentiment I've seen sort of outside the AV Club as well. It's just it's an ill-considered one because it even if there are some parallels, it's just not at all what the game is about. And if you try to map American conservatism to Japanese conservatism, you're gonna run into some hurdles. So. I always felt like they were just whitewashing the entire like idea of the game every time they brought it up. I'm just like. No, it's a Japanese experience. It's from their perspective. There's nothing to do with our entire culture. They don't care. Yeah, I mean, it's if you... How do I put this? If you center your discussion around what it's saying about American politics, then you're just flat out wrong, I think. And But I do think it's all right to draw parallels and say this part of aspect of, of Japanese society is, has some equivalent in American society. I think it's fine if you're commenting on the game from that perspective but if you're knocking the game for not being a um a strong enough critique of trumpism i think you've kind of missed the point yeah i can agree with that it was just one of those things i just saw article after article i'm just like i don't get it people why why i mean it's a tendency i think for uh american commentators to center everything around um america um, like if you comment on if you comment on issues in in say in politics of countries that aren't as insane, like say if you're talking about Kiwi politics or Canadian politics, um, and the issues that that they face, um, uh, an, an American will be all too eager to tell you, well, Donald Trump is worse. I'm like, yeah, of course he's worse. Doesn't mean that there aren't problems elsewhere. Um, so I don't know. I think it's I think it's kind of an an American way of thinking. I can say that I'm Canadian, um, 
but it, it's it's just how how people have been sort of trained to to filter their experience. People filter their experience through what they know. Uh, it's just a shame that people aren't really um, thinking of what the game is trying to say specifically. Yeah, I don't know. I actually really like. I keep hearing complaints that the story kind of fizzled out at the end, and I'm like, I actually liked it the whole way through, personally. Yeah, it's I, I'm not I'm not like a huge fan of how it ended, but I think it, given what it's trying to say, I think it really couldn't have ended any other way. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie, I tend to have a weakness for the trope of everyone gathers around the person at the end and it helps them like power through. I have a weakness for that. So it already had a pretty sizable yeah. way of just going, yep. Okay. I'll, I'll buy it. Yeah. I'll buy it. Very shown in anime, but I'm behind it. Um, yeah. So those were your top three games of the year. Thank you. Talking to Mike. Thank you, Paul robot. Uh, and we should have, um, one more segment for uh, other people who are going to tell us about their top three games of the year. So don't turn off your computer yet if you're listening to this podcast. All right. I'm here with uh, Science's Badminton, Wolfman Judo, and Andy Tut Olympics. How are you guys doing? <laughs> okay. You're going with the sport analogy. Okay. It just, I it just felt that. right to do this time. It just felt right for the Christmas season. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. doing great. Olympics are, uh, are the very Christmassy kind of uh, event. Winter Olympics, Winter Olympics. Yeah, They're coming up pretty Those, soon. Oh yeah, it's not Olympics year this year, but Dong uh, Chang is happening soon. So yep. we'll all learn about this South Korean city we've never heard of until this year. So <laughs> great That'll stuff get nuked is going to happen soon. I, I'm I'm assuming. Yeah, let's, let's <sighs> hope that things. That is... Let's hope it doesn't come to that. That is maybe the darkest way we've ever started one of these. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. Yeah. Christmas, guys, hey, Merry Christmas. Merry yeah, Christmas. Speaking of nuclear weaponry, <laughs> uh, what about Wolfenstein 2, eh? Lots oh, of nuclear weaponry go. in that game. Um, look, all I want to do is kick a Nazi in the stomach. There you go. And you can do that. Definitely. I mean, you, yeah. could, you could just do that in real life. You can just. Yeah, they're, they're real life Nazis now. You can just walk up to one and. Kick him in the stomach. I mean, to be fair, there were always real real life Nazis. That's true. They just are a lot louder now. Yes, and that's it's true. kind of sad. Okay, and, let's let's, but let's move talk on about happier things. Depressing. Let's talk about our top three video games of 2017. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready. Sweet. Yeah. Andy's Andy's ready. So Andy, why don't you tell us I'm your ready. number three game of 2017? Is your body ready? Oh my god, my body is ready. Um, but I don't think my psyche was ready for my number three, which was Resident Evil 7. That oh. game scared the shit out of me. I, it's been a really long time since I had been scared playing a game. I think the last one might have been Fatal Frame, the first one. You guys oh, ever man. play that with the camera? You take pictures of ghosts? Yep. No. I mean, like, Louis- yep. I was going to say Luigi's Mansion. That's a vacuum game. Not a- <laughs> I think I, think I just, like, mentally merged. Scary game, though. I think no, I mentally I merged think- Luigi's Mansion and Pokemon Snap in my head. <laughs> I don't know how I, I, I mean, No, but it's actually kind of really close to Re- Luigi's Mansion in a weird way. Uh, yeah. I'm yeah. also going to say it's not, like, terrifying in the way that, like, playing Resident every time I play Resident Evil 4, I immediately get, like, a really satisfying bit tough pit in my stomach. 
Oh really? But, I, yeah. I, I treat Resident Evil Seven uh, for more like an actiony game, though there's some bits in there that really scare me. But uh, I, mostly it's action. I think. Well, I'm I'm gonna just go on this quickly, which is basically just that it's. I think it works because it undercuts a lot of that, like the empowerment you get from an action game. But I, I just like kind of Luigi's Mansion is kind of a goofy horror game. Like it oh, yeah. has its place. So, so seven. Yeah. What's up with seven? Yeah. So what's Sorry. up with that? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, yeah, Seven, maybe not as scary as Luigi's Mansion, but, you know, uh, <laughs> it tried its best. Uh, no, this game was, was fantastic. It was scary, and uh, it just, it felt it felt good to play a scary Resident Evil game again. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Five or Six. Uh, I don't think most people were. The last one I really liked was Four. Um, I think that's a pretty uh, common, um, you know, idea uh, or, you know, common for people who play Resident Evil games um, to say that. And 7 was just, it, it was so, uh, like I said, it was just so scary and just, it, it felt, um, it almost felt like they made a different game and decided to throw Resident Evil's name on it. I'm, yeah, it's just, first person this one, right? Yeah, totally different. They'd never done that style before. And I was, I was initially, when I first heard about the game, I was very turned off by the idea. I thought, um, VR is stupid. I don't want anything to do with VR. Resident Evil in first person, it's going to be, you know, Call of Duty or something like that, where you're just going to be running around shooting zombies. I'm not interested. I don't want anything to do with it. Trailers came out. It's mm. dark. It's grimy. It's got this weird videotaped aesthetic to it that it, it just, it, suddenly I was intrigued. It was like watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the video game. And it, it's, Sorry, I just wanted to say something. Because it's funny that you mention that, because what I think is really interesting about Resident Evil 7 is, you know, it's mostly a Japanese studio that made it, but the creative director, for the first time in the series history, was actually a Westerner. It was the guy who did Spec Ops The Line. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, Yeah, they they, they tried... Uh, they they uh, figured they will try American horror this time, like more with like yeah Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it wouldn't have worked if <laughs> if it was like, um, you know, you had to have like a one dude that's like directing it that's um, you know, from the U.S. So he can like, um, yeah, it's got a very very American feel. To yeah, it the writer is also a Westerner. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think that is something that's important because, and actually, this got talked about in the AV Club a couple months ago. But one of what? the real the AV um, Club, which we're talking about. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. We we still love those guys. Yeah, uh, um, which yeah, is continue. That Sorry. basically the first Resident Evil and basically every game up to Resident Evil Four worked because they were a Japanese studio dissecting and playing with and interpreting like predominantly American horror tropes. And then once Shinji Mikami left the series after Resident Evil 4, they basically kind of just gave up on that. And it just became yeah. about Resident Evil and about the tro- the Resident Evil tropes, not the tropes they brought in. And I think what's cool about 7 is it's as much as it tells its as much as it professes to be this like return to the you're just this one guy trapped in a mansion, it's actually being as radical a departure from Resident Evil as Resident Evil itself was a departure from other games. Right. I guess, yeah, I guess. It's, it's reconnecting with that um, with that Japanese interpretation of Western horror tropes. Uh, yeah, but it's also like 
I think like because of like there's less dissonance between um like um what they're trying to do and like like in Resident Evil 4 it it tries to be like an a very American kind of style movie but obviously everyone at the team is Japanese and it's obvious that it's like it's very strange when you're playing Resident yeah. Evil 4. It's like it's, it, it has these catchphrases. It has this, but it's not really all there. You can see that it was directed by Japanese people, and that's that's yeah. cool. It, it's weird. It's not um, great. Yeah, it's great. I, I, it's also, fantastic. It's why it's probably why it's I think the best post 9/11 video game ever made. Oh, why, why is that? Um, Resident Evil 4. Yeah, seriously, because the whole thing is basically that it's a game that's set after this, like, really horrific, like, destruction of an American town. The U.S. feels vulnerable, and up comes this sort of odd backwoods population that's, like, sort of vaguely weird. It's, like, it's not, like, a one-to-one thing, but there's this sense of, like, of this weird notion of terrorism as as this actually, like, very concrete concept, even if it's... Like how it manifests is vague. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I might have to replay it again to see if I get that from it, but I, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I, be- I, don't, I believe. I don't know. It. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Resident Evil Seven turned out great. Uh, what was your number two game of the year, Andy? Oh, going straight to number two. Okay. Uh, my number two game. Uh, it was uh, uh, Yakuza Zero. Um, and I also throw in there uh, the remake of one a little bit. Um, the reason I like Zero so much uh, was because uh, it, it's, well, it was the first Yakuza game I've ever played. And, uh, um, well, I guess I should say that I played to uh, its full extent. I had played Part 3 in the past, and I didn't like it because I was expecting kind of a Grand Theft Auto clone uh, in Japan. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, but it's totally it, different. It, it, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, it's not like Grand Theft Auto at all. You know, Grand Theft Auto is this huge map, and you can do anything you want in it. Yakuza, it's a little tiny part of Japan. You just run around a few city blocks, and you can't, you know, you can't even punch jump. people. No, you can't even do any. There's no cars. There's no driving. There's nothing. Uh, all you can do is get into fights with with different gangs of dudes. Pretty much the same oh, five yeah. dudes over and over again. <laughs> but it's it's fun. Like in, in Zero, um, I guess going back to kind of this 80s thing with like the videotapes in Resident Evil 7. Yakuza 0 takes place in 1987, 88, something like that. Yeah, so during the, kind of, the Japanese boom years. Yes. And so it was just, it, it was so cool being in that era in a different country. Because he's, you know, I grew up in America, so I, I know what it was like here. But seeing how it was in Japan, you know, it was it was just cool. It was interesting to see something different from their perspective. Um, the mini games were some of the best parts. I think everybody talks about how much they love the mini games. They're a lot of fun. Uh, I can mm-hmm. sing karaoke in that game, <laughs> you know, all night the visu- if I wanted the to. Visu- visualization of uh, what's happening in, like, the mind of Kiryu when he uh-huh. is singing karaoke <laughs> is the best thing I've ever seen. If you, yeah, because he just, like, ends up in all these wacky costumes out of nowhere. Yeah, Kiryu is the main character. And if Wait. you sing karaoke, he's like... I, I, okay. I love the one where they're where they're all kind of, like, in roller skates and they're, they're, they're uh, skating around that yeah. big kind of, like, heavenly golden palace. Yeah. Uh, Wolfman, you, ha- you had a question about all this? You, no, because, Andy, you're... It's interesting you say this. 
you're saying that a video game can have mini games that are good and, and exciting. <laughs> yeah. And Merv knows it, really they <laughs> they don't have to be this like hideously broken system that takes five minutes where you can't actually rely on the controls and then after you fail it, there's some like bad, wacky, humorous dialogue that makes fun of you. <laughs> I'm sorry. What is this referring to? I think Wolf. I think Wolfman has is just coming off a stint of playing ukulele, and he's uh, he's where I was like four months ago when I played the game. So you're okay. saying I should not buy ukulele for uh, <laughs> buy it for, the for like ten, buy it for like ten dollars maybe it's... I guess if you're if you're really itching for a 3D platformer slash and... mini game collection. Yeah. If you... Yeah, if you're basically if it's like okay, you beat Mario Odyssey, mm-hmm. and then you want another 3D platformer, you well, you buy a Hat in Time. Oh, okay. <laughs> after you get out the Hat in Time, you buy Snake Pass. All right. Well, that's not really with, a platformer, but I see where you're going with this. And then when you're done with Snake Pass, you could, um, I guess maybe by then Nintendo will have a. Uh, either the Nintendo 64 Mini or Mario 64 on the Switch, and then you buy that. Right. And then okay, eventually... so... <laughs> so... What you're is saying is, okay. is, is after 10 or 15 other games, then I should get ukulele <laughs> when it's a dollar. Yes. <laughs> what, I, what I'd say about ukulele is that... I mean, okay. This is it's like, not... It's like this turned into a slam podcast. Like, what oh is it? <laughs> okay, what I'd say about well, ukulele... Well, Yakuza and ukulele both start with Y. I can understand how we got <laughs> Yeah, there. okay. I'll say it's not... An, awful game and it's certainly not the worst game i played this year uh it's a game that you really just don't need to play go play banjo kazooie go play dk64 they're much much better games okay and dk64 isn't a good game no like it's okay no let's not let's not let's not let's not we've had the dk64 talk anyway back to back to yakuza zero um one of the things that that I found really interesting about it is its approach to storytelling is very different from most video games and I think this is a point that I've made elsewhere on the internet uh which mm. is that a lot of video games take after movies in the way they approach their story and the tech storytelling techniques they use whereas Yakuza 0 seems to style style itself more after a cable drama almost it feels yeah. more like you're you're playing a TV show rather than playing a movie, if that makes any and, sense. And, and I would say not even a cable drama, but more like a soap opera. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah, very it very, it's very heavy. Like, yeah, and a lot yeah, of it, a lot of men declaring how much they, they love each other and the honor that they have for, for one another while at the same time beating the shit out of each other. Yeah. You know, it it's it's very like it's it's so macho, but it's also very homoerotic. It's a very <laughs> interesting game yeah it's very much like a like a primetime j-drama almost yeah yeah it it feels like a like a tv show in your like it has episodes and like um yeah it's styled after also like uh, an 80s like a soap opera sometimes it's weird it's i i i I have seen it played i have not played it myself but i've seen a large chunk of it being played and i it's 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 also entertaining to just watch it being played because there's so much story and talking that you're Mm -hmm. like okay i can just i think experience it uh via like uh watching it but the combat is pretty good from what i've heard right the combat is is, yeah i really enjoy the combat a lot i mean 
just uh, uh, unlocking a, a new heat heat mm-hmm. move that was always uh, a fun for me. It was always it was fun picking up all the different items around the the town because you pick up signs or motorcycles or right. you know poles that are sticking out of the ground. Just beat the hell out of people with them, and you do this heat action where you'll like crack a, a a bat over somebody's head or you'll you'll spin around with a motorcycle and knock a whole bunch of people over. It's it's or you slam an orange into their mouth and like. <laughs> yeah, and then you just and then you just start punching them in the in the stomach a whole bunch of times. You just tap X and there's some weird there's some weird hit moves <laughs> out there. Like if if you haven't seen the weirdest hit moves of Yakuza series, you should check it out. Okay, I'll have to find that online. I yeah. just really enjoyed picking up traffic cones and beating people with them. Oh yeah, I don't know what that says about me, but. That was that was the highlight of Yakuza Zero for me. I like the um, I like the uh, um, capoeira style when you have when you like kick uh, like make one dude kick one uh, the uh, other dude you're fighting with in the nuts. It's pretty good. <laughs> I think my favorite style was the one where let's just straight up break dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Majima's break dancing style. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, literally I'm... a fighting style. It's just like. We're, we're, okay, Majima's walking by uh, There are two main characters in the game There's Kiryu and Majima Majima's walking by a bunch of breakdancers Who aren't engaged in combat whatsoever And he looks at them, he's like Hmm, I think I can adapt that to a fighting style Yes <laughs> yeah, Sorry, not Capoeira breakdancing I, I've, I've mistaken it with Eddie Gordo style Although, yeah, I guess that's close I guess Also I guess Some might argue they're the same thing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, breakdancing and capoeira, I don't know if they're exact same thing, but, like, breakdancing used in fighting is capoeira-like, I guess. Uh, all I was going to say for this one last one is that between Yakuza 0 and the new uh, game's Floor Kids, a breakdancing game, um, do you think we're going to be hitting a breakdancing renaissance? Um, I mean, I don't maybe. But I'm not I, don't, sure. I, I think it's very 1999. I don't know if we're going back there. You know, I think if, if we're, we're going back anywhere, we're probably going back to like 1959. But I think we 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 kind of exhausted our political content at the start of this recording. Um, all right, Andy, what's your number one game of 2017? Well, uh, my number one game is probably not a surprise to many people because it's probably the best game of the year, hands down, and that's the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. So, sure. yeah. So no, I've, I don't think I've heard this game there. was worth uh, only a seven out of ten. <laughs> Wait, who gave it a seven out of ten? Oh, you didn't hear oh, about this controversy. Uh, oh, Tim's trying to relitigate this. <laughs> he uh, he he liked the game, but he didn't yeah. love it, so he gave it a seven out of ten. Okay. And okay. fanboys be angry, man. Oh God. Oh, um, whatever. Uh, yeah. I don't get that. Like, if you're, it's, that's fine. If you don't like the game, that's that's fine. And people have their opinions. But yeah. why are you going to get mad at somebody for having that opinion? Who cares? Yeah, what I don't know. Like, people are stupid. People just, are angry. Anyway, let's 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 move the beyond in, that. The invalidation of somebody's opinion sometimes just 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 boggles me. It's just it's so yeah. odd. It's like it's like if like uh, uh sorry, this is going to go off topic, but like that movie um, Lady Bird, right? That had the highest rating on Rotten Tomatoes of all time. And then one guy gave it a bad review, and then suddenly everybody is flipping out like he's like it's suddenly the shittiest movie that's ever been made. It sells a ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a fucking great movie. Who cares what one guy thinks? I just I don't get it. Anyway, that's my I, I apologize. 
No, no, that's no, fine. no. Um, look, we've all been making um, weird digressions, myself especially. I don't think you should ever feel bad about that. It's an important <laughs> point to make. And yeah, let's yeah. talk about ukulele a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, God, that fucking game sucks. Jesus <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't play ukulele. Uh, <laughs> all right, um, but yeah, do play Legend of Zelda: Breath of the, Breath of the Wild, yes. which Andy um, liked because. <laughs> Why did I like it? Well, um, first of all, I gotta say this is probably the best Zelda game that's ever been made. Um, for me, previously it was Wind Waker. I really love the style and art of Wind Waker, and then this game uh, has just blown it out of the water. Um, I've talked about other open world games in the past. I've talked about how much I like Grand Theft Auto. I, I like Yakuza Zero. Um, so to have a Zelda game that ha- is is open world was uh, so fun. You know, and I guess you could argue that they've always kind of been open world. You could explore and go anywhere you want. This one had a new feeling to it. It wasn't just going from screen to screen and you kind of do some stuff in that screen and you move on to the next one. This one was just it the whole world is a screen and it's an infinite screen. You know, you could walk around for, for hours and do something different for that entire time. Um, that's why I liked it. And just that, that first trailer, I don't know if you or not maybe not the first trailer, but the second trailer the one where Zelda speaks and tells you to open your eyes and that music comes up, the very subtle kind of uh, piano keys. God, I could watch that trailer <laughs> over and over again. It is a fantastic trailer. and it, it just, the feeling I get, that feeling of, oh God, here I go. I'm about to start a great adventure. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to find some things. I'm going to see some things. I'm going to be surprised. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to cry. All of that is encapsulated in that trailer. Um, and just playing the game for the first time, you wake up in that shrine, you walk out of the, the door. Um, I don't know, did you guys ever play Oblivion, Elder Scrolls Four? Yeah. I played Skyrim um, Oblivion. I don't, think, Actually, we, I don't and... think we need to relitigate Merv's... Uh, um, uh, let's yeah. say not wholly positive opinions on Oblivion. Oh, wait, um, I did play Oblivion for two hours, and then I got bored. Okay. Well, okay. Oh, so, 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 so that, so that aside, in Oblivion, you, you start off the game in this prison, right? And you're right. just, yeah, yeah. You know, and you're in this building, and eventually you open the door and you walk out, and there's this huge open world in front of you, and you're like, oh my if god, where do I go? <laughs> yeah, like, it was I don't really know what impressive. Do. What do I find? I was blown away. The same thing happened in Breath of the Wild. You wake up, you you walk up that corridor. You've got no clothes on. You open the chest. You put on your shirt. You open the door, and it's just like, bam! Here's this world. Go do whatever you want. It's yours. I'm intrigued and... by Naked Link. Naked Link. Yeah, yeah. You, you were naked when you. I was naked. I was naked when I woke up. I had to put on clothes. Well, we all are. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I sleep. I sleep in pajamas. Oh. I don't know what you guys do. Well, I sleep like... in pajama pants. But yeah. when we are born, like yeah, it's. More... it's... Deeper oh, it's a symbolic it's... awakening. Yeah. God, I mean, it's the, literally. Like in... It's basically yeah, the, the, like a clay futurist Tron womb. Yeah, yeah. It and you find like a magic that. iPad that's basically like the light in Plato's cave. I, I, right. I, I let me let me rephrase my question. Do you see Link's butt? Uh, well, okay. No, you don't see. No. Disappointed voice. So, no. like, so Link's wearing underwear. So he's not yes. truly naked. Say, okay, he's not naked. He's he's disrobed. Down to yeah. his his undergarments. So okay. okay, I'm losing interest in this game. 
<laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, anyway, yeah. So, so you wake up, you wake up, and you you walk up this uh, this corridor to this platform, uh, and then, sorry, before I interrupted you with fake horniness. Oh no! I like like I said, it's it's the same feeling I got when I played Oblivion. Was was uh, I thought I was in this super tiny confined space, and all I had to do was open up one door and suddenly the whole world was open to me. And that was just just the idea of that. Just just thinking about what am I going to be doing five hours yeah. from now? What am I going to be doing ten hours from now? What am I going to be doing you know, a week from now when I'm playing this game? Who knows what I'm going to be doing? But I bet all of it is going to be awesome. And and it was. I mean, you know, it it's not a perfect game obviously there's things that i didn't like about it you know i think a lot of people were upset with the the weapon system um having things break not having enough room for stuff um but i think you can quickly get over that if you just accept that you know all of your sticks and swords might break but you're gonna find another one soon you know um yeah uh, so you keep kind of adapting your playstyle to what you see and what you pick up, you adapt on the fly. Yes. Huh. That's, that's a, a really unique approach to, to open world games where, you know, you either, either open world games don't really tend to bother too much with, uh, with weaponry, like they just give you a weapon and then you're on your merry way, or you have this one, like one or two weapons that you upgrade throughout the game. They don't really do the whole like inventory thing unless they they're going like full on RPG. So it's a it's a unique well, approach to take definitely. Well, part of the reason is that it's not just an open world game and it's not just like an action adventure game or a puzzle game, but Breath of the Wild is also a survival game. Mm-hmm. Like it's a world that like I think in a lot of these sort of open worlds it's like the whole world's at your fingertips and you can do anything and you and the whole game caters to you the player who is this like power god and so pure and everything like all of those kind of weird things we get and admittedly zelda gets to that after you hit a certain point in the game but it's a world that you have to survive it's a world that you like it's it's not just like something for you but something you have to understand and you have to challenge see it's interesting that you bring up that point because uh, there's the other open, major open world game that came around, out around the same time as Zelda, which was Horizon Zero Dawn, which also sure. made a lot of critics' top ten lists. And it's mm-hmm. also a game where it, it doesn't have all the same survival aspects uh, or mechanics that Zelda has. But this is also a game where you're like um, an ins- almost an insignificant person in this larger world where these gigantic robot dinosaurs who can just like kill you by stepping on you. Yeah, so it's yeah. interesting. To, it's also kind of like you, to, you, in both games, you kind of, in different ways, you 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 find yourself like thinking about surviving. When I'm fighting a giant robot in Horizon Zero Dawn, there's there's this feeling of insignificance and like trying to like you know beat this giant thing like with everything I have and utilize everything I've got, and it's a little bit like a survival game at times and. But in a different way. Yeah, I think the the commonality is that um, both of these games succeeded by sort of inverting the typical power fantasy you see in open yeah. world games, 
and they both succeeded wonderfully in that regard. So maybe this is this is sort. Of, I I don't want to say it should spark a trend because I think games should you know go out and do their own unique things. But it's interesting that they found this formula for mm-hmm. um, for refreshing the open world genre. Yeah, yeah. And there's yeah, there's going to be copycats for sure. I mean, anytime yeah. something's successful, there'll be copycats. So mm-hmm. if they're good copycats, uh, great. If they're not, oh, yeah. then you know it's going to be mafia. So <laughs> though I do, though I uh, um do kind of have a little bit of suspicion as to how much they're going to go all out for breath for Breath of the Wild style of like climbing or freedom. Yeah, well, you know, you 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 you, no. you can you can put elements from that game into oh, other yeah. games. It doesn't have to be like a carbon copy. Yeah, it also requires some really thoughtful level design if you're gonna. Oh yeah. Op- if I you're mean, gonna like break the game that much, then you have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, that's foreshadowing for my part of this. So let's actually get to your part of this, Wolfman. Oh. What's your number three game of 2017? My number three game of 2017 is another one that is um, made um, more than a few top ten lists, and it's one that has, I believe been done on the talked about on this podcast and will be talked about after i'm done and that is near automata um oh yeah we we did a whole episode about it god i i have not played that game can you believe that yes i can this has been a crazy year for video games yeah (laughs) yeah i will say you should play that game eventually but there's no shame in not having gone to it yet it's on my list yeah Yeah. so anyway wolfman what, what did you appreciate about near automata there's, I think, two things at play in Nier. Um, the first is that it is a fantastic example of a Platinum Games game. Um, that doesn't really sound right, but you know what I mean. The people who did Bayonetta and uh, and the Wonderful 101 and Mad World and before the people who did Okami and Devil May Cry and Beautiful Joe. Um, it is a balletic, exciting, wild, frenetic action game. It can switch genres from being a, like a beat-em-up brawler spectacle fighter to a shmup, and then actually most of the time it's both somehow. Um, it's constantly- Yeah, like, I, I basically just, anytime I got into combat, I just held down the fire key yeah. and went to town. It's um, it has all cool like mechanics and systems. It's just this incredibly satisfying thing. It's got this incredible chip system, which has cool meta elements, and it also just allows so much wonderful player choice. Yeah, yeah. But can, there's yeah, it's sorry. also a game sorry where where those player choices are actually meaningful. Like a an offense focused um, character is going to play very differently from one that focuses on healing or one that mm-hmm. focuses on hacking. One thing that I found was like an early frustration I had with the game was that it felt like the amount of like, you know how when you get hit in a video game, you have iframes, invincibility frames for um, there. I found it really frustrating early on when I was fighting boss fights and didn't feel like I had any, like I keep getting chained into attacks, which Mm -hmm. I do think is a little frustrating early in the game. And then I realized, but then I actually started like, 10 hours later, however many hours later, I started interacting with the chip system. I was like, oh, hey, there's a chip for extending the invincibility frames after you get hit. There's yeah. chips for um, natu- for causing you to auto-heal. There's chips for like actually healing to pay- based on how you do damage. It's great. Yeah. It's this it incredible- feels very granular. It's, it's a, a lot of things to like tweak in, in that system. Yeah. 
Um, but the other half is this um, is the Yoko Taro half. It's the weird, oh, yeah. like this incredible abundance of humanity and empathy. It's a world where, like, even the villains kind of are tragic, and everyone's just kind of screwing around in this kind of sad hell, looking for something. It's yeah, it it it's sweet, and uh, and it doesn't this is sound be... sweet from your description. I know it doesn't <laughs> sound I'm... sweet when you're. It's it's a game that I would say has, while it it does depict um, immense suffering and cruelty. It's also a game that comes from a position of empathy for yes. the characters it portrays. I, I think it depicts uh, uh, humanity in a way that, like, uh, w- with all its issues, it's like also, hey, uh, is it worth it? It, it asks that kind of question. Yeah, uh, it's not it's a cynical game yeah, no. by any means. It's more of a it's, a... it's a game that can only be made by someone with a deep abiding love for humanity. Yeah, I, I think it it like um, shows humanity and says, okay, this is a beautiful thing, but you also have to pay some a, a price for like your self, you know how how self conscious you are about like and, and like your um, how especially you yeah especially the Pascal story. I'm not going to get into like spoilers here, but um, yeah, there's some. There's some really neat parts to that that part of the game. There, yeah, there's a part near the end game where you go to this really beautiful location that was this kind of haunting, sweet area, and all of these like peaceful denizens of like of machines have basically like cut mouths into fake mouths into their bodies and have become like mindless zombies. And it's tragic because just like a few hours ago, they were these like kindly, friendly characters. Um, yeah, and Like, it's uh, this is going to be a recurring refrain for me for the next three games. But this, I I think, like, if there was one thing that was uniting all of like the best games of the year, and even some games that were not great but good, it was a few things. It was a sense of inventiveness, of exploration, of being willing to ruthlessly interrogate an idea. Um, But there's also a sincerity, like. There's an earnestness and a kindness and a humanity in near Automata that you kind of wouldn't necessarily think so from the like gothic Lolita robot ladies <laughs> or yeah. the giant yeah. like robe or the giant like factory robots named after um, the founders of communism or whatever. Yeah, um, and it's interesting you mention um, you mentioned the like the the maiden butler costume designs for the robots because. Um, when you start playing the game, you're just like, this is just some dude indulging in his fetish. But then when you get it, later into the game... It's a little bit that, though. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. It's like, let's be real, it is a little bit that. <laughs> but once you get later into the game, you realize this is, like, it's also deeply symbolic of the relationship between the the machines and their human creators yeah. and how they see themselves in relation to their human creators. Like they see themselves as these servants of humanity and it's, it's actually kind of thoughtful in, yes. in a weird way. Um, so what I thought was just like, okay, I, I'm playing like this, the stupid 
fan service game, or at least that's what I thought for the first you know a couple of hours. And then once I started to understand what the world was portraying, I'm like, okay, this wasn't something that was thoughtlessly done. This is something that you know the people behind this game put a lot of put a lot of uh, brain power into thinking about. Hey, yeah. hey, Merv, um, go off a little tangent here. Do you think they kind of did that same thing with Ultra Despair Girls? Um, I know we had talked about kind of their that weird tentacle scene. Um, do you think that they were kind of doing what? the same thing there? What are we talking about here? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're going off on a, on, a, on a huge tangent here. Do I think they're doing the same thing Ultra Despair Girls? Um, yes and no, but without spoiling Ultra Despair Girls for our listeners, I can't really go into detail about why. Um, I'll just say they clearly have opinions about abuse, and I don't know what their opinions on other things are, and I'll leave it at that. Um, okay. So yeah, Wolfman, that's his take on Neurotomata. What's your number two game of the year, Wolfman? My number two game is another one that combines inventiveness and a frenetic enthusiasm with a genuine sincerity, and that is Super Mario Odyssey. The freewheeling, <laughs> wild, kind of deranged uh, Mario game that, much like, again... Resident Evil 7 and Breath of the Wild and I'm sure a bunch of other games that that I can't get to at the top of my head is a game that's straddling um, philosophies and values old and new. Um, Uh, By the uh, way, great Charles Martinet impression, Science. Thank you. It's me, mildly (laughs) offensive Italian stereotype. Okay, now now, now you're pushing it. (laughs) (laughs) Mario stereotype. Mario is a river to his people. Yes. I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if that's In New Yorkers or say. Italians. Um, anyway, that's like the only word in Italian I know. Um, anyway, uh, Wolfman, so it's, uh, you say it's a game that straddles both old and new philosophies. What exactly do you mean by that? What I mean is two things. On one hand, Mario 64 is a very open return to a design of sandbox style that was made in Super Mario 64, a game that pretty much wrote a lot of the book on three-dimensional like game design and also ended up inspiring a lot of stuff like Grand Theft Auto and basically open worlds as we and sandbox design as we know it. Um, so on one hand, it wants to return to that. And it does have, like a lot of Mario games, a number of references to classic Mario stuff. Um, there is a post-credits costume that puts the nose on that a lot. There is an, the main like iconic location is New Donk City, a crazy metropolitan uh, circus that is filled with references to Donkey Kong. Yeah. Um, How good is the name New Donk City? It's the best it's, name. It's, it's, it's a so game good. that it's a name that's so bad. It's good. Yeah. It it's really fantastic. Is. You could only get away with it in a Mario game. You couldn't use that name in anything else. Can you imagine yeah. if Final Fantasy had New Donk City? <laughs> We'd laugh at it. Oh, I'm definitely laughing at it, but I'm also sort of laughing with it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's it's It's, self-aware. But that's the thing. It's earnest. Like, it's not... At no point is Nintendo being, like... At no point is it backing off from the silliness and the kind of doofiness of it. It's just, like, it's okay, because 
it's okay. Like yeah, it's embrace. It's okay because it's Mario. It just yeah, leans into well, the wackiness. That's, the thing. that's why Mario can have realistic people in his world, and Sonic I don't think can as much because Mario treats it all as like equally weird to everything else. Yeah. Like the norm, like the Day of the Dead people are just as weird as the realistically proportioned humans, or who are just as weird as the snail people or the robot I mean, watering can yeah. people. Just, yeah, as it, we- it, just as weird or just as normal. Fair enough. In, yeah. in Sonic, <laughs> it's like it's taking to like, oh, this is serious, and we're going to do a story about this, and you're like, no. No, please, for the love of God. And here it's yeah. like, oh, if Sonic just weird... didn't talk, it would be a much better game. I'm yeah. going to disagree only because I, as I've said before on this uh, podcast, the best Sonic, uh, the Hedgehog property is Sonic Boom, the cartoon. Uh, because okay. it's literally yeah, well, just yeah. low rent The Simpsons. I get it. Yeah, that's okay. fair. But that's also the cartoon that you're not playing. As far as Sonic games go, yeah. Sonic yeah. should just say... Like, hello. Sonic should have like two catchphrases. And that's like all I should say. Guys, I knew we had to um, do a Sonic bit in this game yeah. of the year. This guy. So I'm glad we were here. I mean, well, did anybody Sonic else games... play Sonic Forces? Sorry. No. no, no I think I'm somebody. A... I think uh, yeah. a lot of people yeah. like Sonic Mania, though. That made some top ten lists this year. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, There's some Sonic games this that's, year. That's, some that's good, in some my top bad. ten for sure. There are of all the Sonic games that came out in 2017, those were two of them. And one of them was good, and one of them yeah. was bad. Um, sorry, what I was trying to get at, though, is that, like, so on one hand, Mario, you know, is an old series from a century-old company. It's old bones, and every Mario game kind of has to, straddle, has to like, struggle with, you know, being nostalgic but not too nostalgic. And I think the way it... What makes Mario Odyssey work, aside from the fact, is that it is very excited, much more so than, say, Super Mario 3D World on the Wii U, which is a great game, but very traditional, great in, like, a very traditional way. It's just experimental, and it's exploratory, not just in how you explore the game, but as the game itself. Like, it kind of reminds me of playing, like... You know how, like, you'll find something like Snake Pass or, like, an indie game that's all about one mechanic that gets, like, interrogated? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, so, like, that's kind of like every transformation in Mario Odyssey. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's, like, they're not as deep, but I love the fact that it's this game that is just completely willing to throw its, to, like, turn itself on its head. Yeah, um, there's, like, 15 games in this one game. Like, when you, um possessed like one of those my favorite bits were where you when you possess one of those weird harmonica enemies that can like stretch and there's like yeah 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 yeah. oh no no the the tropical wiggler yeah Yeah. the tropical wiggler yeah and then it's like like 15 moons based on operating that thing and it's like oh where you can find the moon here and you kind of have to like stretch yourself around this block and like uh, 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 dodge enemies with the stretchy power and like it's it's very interesting the way they like the mario moveset may not be up to everyone's standard and i get that i really like it but i understand but like there's like 50 other movesets in this game and a lot of them are extremely satisfying yeah it's just like i'm to me it's just like this wonderful exuberance like and 
there and there is a lot of you know bloat in the game. There's a lot of ideas that don't necessarily work as well as they should. Um, some mini games aren't that fun, or some of them are okay but shouldn't have gone on as long as they did. I think it can get away with that more just because it. Like, in Mario 3D games, there's, like, rewards for getting 100% completion. What's cool about Odyssey is all of the good rewards basically cap out at about half of the moons. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't want you to do everything. Or it just wants you to do what you want to do. Um, so the bloat and some of the stuff that doesn't work as well, I like because it's not... Um, because it's, um, it's experimental. Like, it's experimental in a way that just... Mario games aren't, and usually, and that's really cool. Like it feels like the centerpiece of Odyssey is this, and I'm sorry, I'm going on so much about this. Uh, but the centerpiece of Odyssey is in New Donk City, where you go to this festival, and the festival is that you basically recreate Donkey Kong, except that the level design is drastically different, where you're walking on walls and you're walking on upside down, and the 2D level starts to like twist and turn. It's something that just physically could not be done with older technology. And it's like, in the background, there's fireworks, there's people celebrating, there's that like, instantly iconic song. It's just yeah. this joyous thing, but it's a combination of old and new, taking old ideas into new context making new ideas but with like the workman like i like ideals that powered those older games yeah, yeah not, combining... not to mention the iconography of yeah, those old they're, games they're that combining... now have like they're i shouldn't say exploiting but they're they're working off the cultural cachet that yeah. these these icons have built up over yeah, the past 30 40 years mm-hmm. yeah the and game could have ended I... there and i would have been happy <laughs> i mean that I'm, was a I'm... fantastic stage I'm very glad that they are like referencing like Pauline and Jumpman and like yeah. they're going deep in a way that like no other Mario game I think has like so, ever. So Pauline has to show up in Mar in the next Mario Kart, right? I hope so. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, as more than, like more than uh, a, a cart driving lounge singer. Yeah, and also if she shows up in Smash Brothers before Daisy, I kind of would laugh because Daisy <laughs> uh, fans who are, ang- are very aggressive about Daisy being in the new in the next Super Smash Brothers kind of annoy me. <laughs> I mean, she's I know she's there and basically there in one of the Smash Brothers is like a palette swap for Peach, right? It, well, she's not yeah. in, that's not a, it's in the palette swap. It's just Peach with brown hair. Like they it's yes. not a different character. It's like it's literally just Peach, but wearing a Daisy costume. It's not considered a separate character. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, that's what I meant, right? Yeah. It's like I mean, pal- like told, the Peach Palace Swap is essentially Daisy. Truth be told, there's not much to Daisy. No, there isn't. But there I is mean, a lot. She of says now. Yeah, definitely. she does say I'm Daisy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, good for you, Daisy. We know you're Daisy. Uh, although I, I do feel kind of sad for Luigi because he had a whole year to himself. And he didn't get to spend any time <laughs> with this lady. So, yeah. yeah. You know how, how these things go. Luigi can never catch a break. Truly yeah. one of the worst years ever, the year of Luigi. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do like bad. Luigi, though. I do no, like Luigi. I feel bad for Luigi. Also, they should make like a. If there's a Luigi's Mansion 3, which I'm sure is in the works somewhere. I would um, like it to be. Luigi's Mansion 2 was very good. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's something we're going to see eventually. They might announce it for the, the Switch at next E3. And Maybe. Yeah. We're all going to... Luigi's really going to have his real year then. 
Yes, maybe. Hopefully. Yeah. I like it. Um, there's I mean, one last thing I was going to say. Go ahead. Sorry, on Mario Odyssey, which is that um, I think I just want to pay certain attention to the costumes. Because the costumes are really good. Like, they're super fun. And that's another, like, old meets new thing, because there's tons of references to them. Like, the... Um, the like the poncho is a reference to a like a kicks adaptation for Game Boy that had a Nintendo brand. The the safari outfit comes from Yoshi's Safari. The coat the chef hat comes from Yoshi's Cookie. The paint hat might come from Mario Paint, but it also might come from a Japanese only unreleased Nintendo 64 DD game called Mario that's based around Mario Paint. Sure. See, I've literally never heard of any of these games, but I believe that all these are references that they would have put in there for fun. Yeah. yeah. But they're not, um, like, forced. They're just like, oh, of course Mario has a safari hat in the safari area. Yeah, because it has to do with uh, the the worlds that Mario's exploring. Yeah. Um, although, I'm not sure what the boxers are a reference to. <laughs> they're, they're to boxers. having fun. Having yeah. fun. They're mushroom uh, friends. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, they're, I guess they had to acknowledge the internet in Rule 34 at some point. I mean, um, there's one after the game. It costs 9,999 coins. It is one of the funniest, like, jokes. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about, and I'm about 6,000 coins short. So. <laughs> it is so goddamn hilarious. Uh, talk to me in a few months and then I'll, I'll let you know what I think of it. Yeah. All right. So that's your number two game. What is your number one game of 2017? My, well, you know, May, my number one game of the year is, of course, Sonic Forces. No, wait. No, no. It's it no. Mass Effect and Drum. No, it's It's no. ukulele. It's ukulele. Uh, no, why, it obviously. Wait. Wolfman, got... you're reading your top three worst games of the year come on yeah i mean okay yeah obviously his number one is stay state democratic people's republic of korea which is the greatest visual novel ever right no it's actually going to be the loot boxes section of star wars battlefront 2 like literally just clicking (laughs) on the loot boxes um in all seriousness in all seriousness what is your number one game of 2017 okay so it's going to need a second to build up um so, like I said, this was a year of experimentation and a year of exploration and a year of just great ideas. Um, this was a year, like I said, of experimentation, of innovation, of exploration, of sincerity, of like trying to go back to a basic concept and ruthlessly interrogating it and going as far as you can with it. The least interesting games, all those ones I mentioned, were either nostalgic relics that couldn't adapt, they were, or they were so desperate to take in modern trends that they didn't understand, or they were cynical in how they approached uh, their games or how people took in, took them. Or they were just plain shitty. <laughs> yeah, so they were just plain shitty. And so to me, but like all of these wonderful games, Resident Evil 7 and Yakuza 0 and Prey and Nier and Mario and the other Mario game, which did anyone really expect a Mario and Rabbids XCOM ripoff to be one of the best games of the year? It's impressive. Um, no, I think what I wrote I wrote a piece of, about it for the avocado and I, or a short blurb about it. And I said, there's literally no reason for this game to be any good. Yeah. The rabbits are terrible. Half the jokes involve toilets and Luigi's running around with a goddamn sniper rifle. 
Um, it's interesting because I just looked at this while um, we were about to record, and apparently the creative director, David Soliani, who has enchanted the internet's heart because he cried when Shigeru Miyamoto called out his name at the Ubisoft E3 press conference, apparently he actually pitched a 2D Wind Waker port for the GBA that didn't get um, taken. Interesting. Oh, I like this, that article. I didn't read it, though. Yeah, sorry, but all of this is to say that to me, all of this hope, all of this idea, all of it really comes together in the opening moment of my favorite game of the year and one of the greatest video game experiences I have had in my entire life, and that is The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Link yes. comes out of the cave, going onto that cliff at the center of the Great Plateau and looking out at this incredible, gorgeous world, a world of mystery and surprise and fear and danger and humor and heart. It, all it, it, what it said to me was this, all of this world, this can be yours, this, but it's not going to be given to you. It's something you're going to have to understand. It's something you're going to have to learn and respect. It's, those opening hours, trying to slowly learn the mechanics, realizing just how free the whole aspect of climbing can be, because, God, that I have never felt freer in a video game. The, like, exploration of all of these mechanics, the realization that all of these are systems, like, a, like an immersive sim, the chemistry system where fire always makes sure that grass and wood burn and rain puts them out and makes it hard to climb and thunder will affect metal or and so you can get hit by that or you could throw a metal weapon at an enemy and hit them like it's this incredible experience of just everything working together and this whole notion of freedom and of reliability all of that like every part of the game is done in service of that Nintendo could have made a perfectly serviceable open-world Zelda. It could have had, like, a same linear plot structure of other Zeldas or of an Assassin's Creed game, and that would have been fine. People would have liked it. It would have probably done well and gotten good reviews. But they didn't do that because they wanted to make something... They wanted to capture this idea of how we always viewed video games when we first play them, the obtuse stories and the sense that there's always something more in our imaginations. The, like, yeah, that, that sense of wonder and mystery that, that seems to be missing from a lot of modern games. It, like, Zelda, to my understanding, reintroduced that to a lot of people who felt it had been missing. Yeah, I... So this is shameless self-promotion, but um, at the early, at either the end of last month or the very beginning of this month, I published an article um, for Source Gaming where I basically talked about the level design of Breath of the Wild. Um, and the reason for that is that um, at a Japanese um, CDEC conference, um, the directors had talked about how they designed their world. And what they called it was a triangle rule. Basically, they visualized every single object in the game, a mountain, a town, a fortress, as a triangle. And you could go around it, you could go over it, you could interact with it directly. And that is how, in every single, in the reason, and now what happens is that when you put all of these triangles together of different sizes and different shapes, you start to see, like, you'll look in the distance and you'll see just over the horizon, there's some odd structure. Maybe it's a town, maybe it's a weird desiccated tower but maybe it's got something and maybe you want to go off and find it right now. And you do, and you can do that because the game accommodates that, but it also doesn't just give it to you. It 
makes that exploration a challenge. Um, and it also means it's great level design because you have these specific mountains that you can instantly realize that's a mount that's important. That's important. I know where I am spatially. I, um, I was playing Mass Effect Andromeda and every mountain in the damn game looks exactly the same. It's, I was playing ukulele and Merv, you know that how completely unnavigatable that game is. Yeah, that game needs a map and does not have a map. <laughs> and that's what I... Zelda Breath of the Wild has some flaws. I like the weapon switching system because I like that it makes sure you can't ever hold on to something perfect permanently, but it doesn't... It's very Halo-ish, actually. Yeah. Like, and the way it, you keep switching weapons. And I like that in concept. I think that it also suffered um, in practice. And, you know, in a future game, Nintendo can work with that. But I, I don't want to see them fully abandon that. Um, like, I it's think something that can use some tweaking. Probably. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, yeah, there's, I, there's I, 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 like... think, I think the, uh, yeah, what you said, Merv, it, I, I, could, I think it could use more of that Halo... Um, you know, philosophy because, like, where, yeah, it, where Halo, it, it, it like yeah. you, you, you should work for different enemies and your sword should work for other enemies. And as it is, like, every weapon works for every enemy, it's just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a combination of, of resource management and strategic choice, which yeah. is what makes what's made it really work uh, yeah. for yeah. the original Halo, yeah. Continue, uh, Wolfman, sorry, yeah. Uh, but to me, like, no other game, honestly, I can't even remember the last time I had an experience like this. It would have been Mario, probably Mario Galaxy, and then before that, Resident Evil 4 or Wind Waker. Like, it's, what, like, I've played games that I got really, like, in love with the aspect of playing them. Like, Just Cause 2, in retrospect, is this inc- unbelievably grossly repetitive experience, but at the time, it was really fun. Um like but like this is something different this was like a deep intensity a it's a game that you really got absorbed in uh, honestly it it was the deepest i've ever gotten absorbed in a game and for the longest time yeah i know you told me you sunk like over 150 hours into it yeah (laughs) so like that that's a game that can really hold your attention um So that's your your top three of the year. Uh, three excellent games, I would say. Science, why don't you share with us your top three of 2017? Oh God, I'll I'll look like a like a cynical person here because I am. I'm going to like be a little more critical. Like uh, I, I I do love my top three games, but I recognize that all of them have some issues. Um, that I'm 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 going to talk about a little bit but obviously i'm going to praise them also um so like number three is what remains of edith finch uh which which is a wonderful uh i guess you could use walking simulator um uh yeah at this point i think it's it's gone beyond pejorative to just yeah yeah i think it's a descriptive uh it's one of but i think it's the best one of these games um while i think Soma had the better story when it comes to walking simulator games because the story in Soma is fantastic. If you haven't played Soma and you're not into like horror games, you should still play it because it's an amazing science fiction story uh, that utilizes video games to its uh, benefit. Um, 
like the way it, uh, video games tell stories. And this game uh, does that better. Um, the narrative, how it unfolds and how, um, because you explore this house in this game, right? You, you explore this house of your family, uh, all your brothers, sisters and uncles and, and so forth. You, you come back after a long time and everything is sealed up and you have to like find your way throughout the house and like rediscover the stories of your family, how they died, uh, because all of these stories that are in this game are the last moments of their life. Um, you find the different objects uh, in their rooms and they kind of like tell this story about the last moments. Um, yeah. Each of these little stories is, is told in a completely different way. Um, and that's when this, 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 um, the, it, it utilizes the interactiveness in such an amazing way because each of these stories is you interact with it in a different way. Like some are a first person platformer in a way, some are like a weird, a, a little bit of a Pokemon, Pokemon Snap kind of thing. Uh, others are like uh, a weird exploration of video game history suddenly. And like, there's like so many different ways they 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 reinvent how you can like um, uh, interact with this game. Like, uh, I, I was really impressed and surprised every time I've I've came into a room and and started to explore someone's final moments. Uh, yeah. Merv, did you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I, I've played the game, and what really struck me about the way it's structured is that it is two things. One, when you go into it, it seems like you're just playing a Gone Home clone, and then yeah. it reveals itself to be something much, much deeper. Yes, and I definitely. didn't know anything about the game going in. All I know mm -hmm. is that it's made by the people who made The Unfinished Swan, yeah. and a bunch of video game reviewers really liked it. That's literally yes. all I knew about it going in. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, something was similar. I came in, uh, the only thing I knew about it was that it had this incredible level set at a cannery, which is yeah. one of my favorite sequences in a game this year. Yes, it's it's a fantastic sequence. Yeah, I'll say the one that reference the one that uses sort of a Roy Lichtenstein kind of comic panel art style. That was one of my favorite sequences. Uh, oh yeah, games. yeah. The Tales from the Crypt. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just fantastically uh, told. It's it's it's, it's I great. I really loved it. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about about the game is that a lot of these these walking simulator type games, it seems like they're almost like they definitely play off Western video game tropes, but it seems like they're almost constructed for, and this is not a criticism, by the way, but it seems like they're almost constructed for a non-game playing audience. Yes. So as long as you understand like the very basic how to move in 3D kind of controls, you can play these walking simulators. Yes. Ian Finch is a little different. Um, it presumes a knowledge and familiarity with video games that a lot of these walking simulator type games don't. Um, and it plays with it. It plays yeah, with it plays the concept. With that. Mm -hmm. like, but like even down to the, to the opening of the game, if you aren't used to exploring, you won't be able to figure out how to enter the house. Yes. Right? Like that's, mean, that's actually a, like a mini puzzle in the know, game. I, I do think that 
I think you can make an argument for that being an issue because I do think that one of the great things about walking simulators is that they can have a like allow people who are not as skilled or experienced with games to play them. Yeah, low 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 skill entry level. Like you, yeah, you can I mean, like I was saying, it's not it's not a critique of of other walking simulators, uh, but I just wanted to point out this particular characteristic of, of Edith Finch because I think it's it's a different approach. To game yes. design, it definitely generates a different feel. Um, if it were as as accessible as say Gone Home is, I think it would have a different kind of vibe. It would feel less like um, it feel like more of a guided experience and less like um, and less like solving the feeling the of, of like you're solving how to explore this. Not even solving. Yeah. Like it's you get less of a feeling of exploration. Yes. Um, so it's. I don't want to even say it's a trade-off. I think it's there's just different approaches to to telling these stories. It's nice to see a game in the genre take a slightly different approach. Yeah, I think it, like it's a collection of fairy tales. It very often feels like it, and each of them has their own like morals at the end. But also, it's a it's a celebration of video games because how many different ways it spins the gameplay and like tells you like these aren't incredibly deep systems when you you are in like each of those stories has but they're like different enough that you're like um especially the canary level which i think explores video game history in a weird way um, that's like it's like an explicit yeah um, an ex- like an explicit exploration of of that yeah and also it's very cleverly tied into the story that yes. that particular segment is telling. Yes, it's beautifully um, made. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to highlight is that it's it's very intuitive how all these mm-hmm. systems work. Yeah. As yes. long as you have familiarity with the medium, you know immediately how to interact with the system once you once it's presented to you. Mm-hmm. And I, to do that yep. for like a half dozen different stories, I think is a really amazing feat yes it, yeah. it was obviously very challenging to make this game uh and and very satisfying also probably uh yeah. what, what i'm gonna say negative about it is that it's 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 very short um i would love i know it took probably a lot of time and they probably cut some content that you know if they would left it in it wouldn't be as good obviously so you 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 like polish the game you 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 make the best version of the game you can but I'm still a little bit disappointed that it's only like two and a half, three hours long at most. And you can I, replay that, of course. Yeah. yeah. I do think, like, had it gone on longer, it may have not been as satisfying. Like, yes. I love, like, there's a part of me that would like to see, like, one of the characters who didn't get, like, a, a vignette to have seen that. Yes, yes. Yes, it's, it, it, I'm the same, like, I think that it would have dragged on a little bit if it were too long. But yeah. definitely an hour longer, I think, like would have been more satisfying to me. Like I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like it was badly paced because at the very end, I felt like it was the end of the game. Uh, it was well, well told story. Yeah, um, it doesn't, it doesn't sneak up on you. Yeah, it doesn't suffer yeah. the the the, uh, the new Colossus thing that like Wolfenstein Two is like. Oh, it's over, I guess. No, <laughs> you definitely feel that it, this game is going to be over soon, and and I would love to be like I can explore these stories again, of course, and I will. Uh, it's definitely worth a replay. Yes, it definitely uh, worth. It. What I what I'll say about 
um, the length of the game is. I think if they had made it too long, I'd start wondering about um, why thematically the stories don't all connect or why there's no grand unifying message. Mm-hmm. And the the sort of the relatively shorter length helps it feel more like a collection of, of vignettes or a collection of short stories that are connected by a motif rather than some grand unifying message. Yes, I would yes, actually but, say I think there is one besides yes, the fact that it's there is there is, but, but it's yeah. like very slight. I think like it's maybe not as pronounced I as as I would like. Also, that's another critique. Um, but do continue, Wolfman, in what you think, like, it, you maybe explain it better than I can. Yeah, um, a while ago on uh, The Avocado, I made a joke that um, basically Edith Finch is not a walking simulator, but an Edward Gorey simulator. Okay. Um, yeah. With these very, like, dour, like, kind of morbid humor uh, jokes. But um, in retrospect, it's actually, it's like a lot more human. And I think the... I mean, it's very much a slight um, theme, but the main one is basically the idea of people being trapped in this notion of a curse and how much of it is self-perpetuating. It's one of the few, it has like, it kind of brushes up against some like possibly Lovecraftian ideas, but it also does it. But I like that it's not explicitly supernatural. Yeah, and it's actually one of the very few times where I actually prefer the more mundane explanation, which yes, exactly. is very much, I think, a testament to how satisfying the actual, like, the denouement is. Yes, yes, it's very satisfying to, like, find that these stories are, like, not, like, like the more you explore the house, I think, and the more you look around for more information, the more you find out it can't, it kind of doesn't have a supernatural thing going on for it. It's like just, um, just, just this, these people that are maybe paranoid and maybe like there's a, there's this, um, you know, but, but yeah, so I don't want to go on a too long of a tangent. I, I just wanted to say like, yes, it, there is a, uh, through line, uh, yeah, but I don't think it's if there pronounced. is, yeah, yeah, if there slight. is, I'd say it's it's almost. If, if there is, I'd say it's, it's something along the lines of attempting to cheat death is pointless. A little bit, Which, and like well, and like uh, the destiny of these people and how they view their lives in 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 correlation to family members and how how it is like to live with family and to carry on the legacy of this family because this is also a story about this legacy, right? Because it yeah. starts from the very days of like pre-immigration, like uh, your grand grandfather from another country and how his way of life has led led him to like a cursed end and um it's it's all connected but i would say that it could have been made a little bit better um and also like adding maybe a little more time to it like in the playthrough that would have like allowed this connective tissue to like really stick like everything together um so yeah that's our those are my little complaints about it uh, but overall, I think it's like the best one of these walking simulator games that I've played and also uh, like a very satisfying way of telling a narrative like that I yeah. haven't. It's had... a hauntingly beautiful. Yes, it's a hauntingly tales, beautiful game. And I so, want to say yeah, one ahead. last thing. The house um, 
is as already rocketed to the top of my favorite video game houses. Oh yeah, yeah. It looks from like when you first see it, it's like, what the fuck am I looking at? It, it's very like <laughs> fantastical in yes. that like series yes. of unfortunate events, Harry yes. Potter kind of way. Yes, yeah. it's very you know like... what I guess it's like the burrow from from Harry yeah. Potter. It's yeah. like where the Weasleys like live. Yes, yes, it's like very quirky, but but it's all explained in a satisfying way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I and I like that it's it, it sort of justifies its size. Yes, unlike Gone Home, which is just set in a mansion that middle class people can afford for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I like that it that there there's a justification for this gigantic cabin in the woods. Yes, uh, within the game. Uh, so that was your number three. What's your number two game of 2017? My number two is Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, Ooh, not number one. We're gonna yeah. start some fights here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Unceremoniously, uh, number two, Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, yeah, I, I I really liked it. I think like it's my favorite open world game ever, uh, possibly. Uh, I made more time with Fallout New Vegas, but whereas Fallout New Vegas, I very much like for the story and the writing. Uh, I like Zelda for like just interacting with the game. Um, I I think like. As I said on on, on Avocado, uh, I think like it it shares a lot of its DNA with Shadow of the Colossus uh, in a way that like is is like for me it's almost like if they played Shadow of the Colossus and said, "Wow, I get a feeling of like and when I'm exploring these these lands, um, I'm getting this weird strange feeling of like wonder and like." Maybe I'm getting a little bit lost, but it's okay. And all of these environments are strangely haunting and beautiful. And maybe we should do something with this. Because that's what basically Zelda is. That like, uh, There's a lot of um, exploration and getting lost and um, having an adventure. Like The geography of the world pulls you in. To the world, when you see something, it yeah, it's like catches your attention, and in a very Nintendo way, they like um, polish this idea to an incredible degree. When it's like in other games, it's like I guess I can explore this quest or whatever. In this game, it's like you see it, and it's instantly interesting and recognizable. Like the geometry of the world, they like it's instantly. Oh hey, I want to go there. I want to see what's there. I want to explore it, and yeah, my, my criticism is that when you get there, it's, there's there's like the, the the reward is boring. But it's not a game but, about <laughs> rewards. Listen, yeah, it's a game where listen. the reward is. Rano. Yep. Well, it's, it's a perfect sorry. metaphor for life. You know, not everything you do is going to be exciting and fun. I, I, I'd say the like, journey there was fantastic. Yes, the journey yeah. is fantastic. There's no reward that's interesting in this game. I'm <laughs> I, um, I well, will also say. Go ahead. One thing to that is, yeah, the exploration is its own reward, and I don't mean... And also, I think that even beyond the actual, like, tools you learn... Because in the end, like, there's this... Um, one of the most iconic parts of the game is this um, is a, um, a challenge called Eventide Island, which is oh, yeah. at yeah. the very bottom uh, right of the map. Um, yes. Um, basically, you go there. It's very hard to get to. It's very far away. You have to learn how to move a boat, which is something that the game does not or, teach you. Or, or you don't have ice in powers. my way. Yes, I was using ice powers. It took me a long time to get to that. <laughs> God. Um, <laughs> uh, so you get but there, that's... and then you hear the voice of the um, like the 
the dead mummy who runs the shrine. And he's basically like, you can come in here and get my treasure, but you can't just, but I've seen how you use all these new powers and weapons or weapons and tools that, you know, you think you're so hot stuff. So now the only way to get to that is you have to conquer my island without any of your gear. So you wind up nude again. You don't yeah. have any of your weapons. All you have is your extra, whatever hearts you've accrued in the, um, the pow some powers that you may have gotten. Yes. And that's it. So you yeah. end up literally having to grab the same kind of old, weak, shitty sticks and you and you're fight and they have a giant mini boss, like a guy who's really hard to fight under normal circumstances is there. And you yeah. have to well, you don't have to beat it, but the fact that like it puts you in a scenario and ultimately you can win this because you're that good, because you've trained over hours, and that's the real reward. Yeah, that's the real reward. But the real reward of that island is another one point to your collection yeah. of points, and the same that you get from defeating one robot in another place. Um, <laughs> that's very, very disappointing when you do so. But then you think like, okay, but I had this grand adventure. But then at the back of this, but at the back of your head is like. Yeah, but you didn't get shit for it. But you're like, yeah, but I had an amazing adventure. So it's I'm picturing yeah. like two gremlins inside your brain just arguing yes. with each other. Uh, yeah, whenever I'm playing this game, I have these gremlins. Like I, I really love the exploration. I I think the combat is a bit dull. Um, but it, there's a lot of combat in this game. But it's not the focus of the game. So I'm. I, it's not. It, it's not a big problem for me. Um, yeah, the only main problem is that there's no real point to all of it. <laughs> like, the only point to it is that you are having this experience, but I am maybe trained by video games, okay? It's it's a, it's a way that they have been made, that I, I think that I should build up something, that I should be striving to something, and not maybe a negative, right? Like, I shouldn't look at video games like that. And I don't look at video games like that when I'm playing Edith Finch. And story games, but when I'm playing a gameplay-focused game, I I usually look for um, an escalation of sorts, uh, a, a way of like accomplishments, uh, like a series of challenges that I have to overcome that I get something from them, and like simply overcoming the, these challenges should be its own reward, and and I feel like it it not always is in this game. So um, what what I actually what you're saying reminds me of this other game that came out a few years ago. This is gonna sound like a weird comparison, but have you played Antichamber? Yes. By any chance? I, I did. I have. Yeah, that's sort of the central message of of Antichamber. Mm -hmm. To think of games as uh, instead of thinking about games in terms of typical reward structures, mm -hmm. maybe should we we should be thinking about games in terms of in terms of the experience that they give us. Yes. And... Yes, and I agree with this criticism, but this game doesn't like truly convert me, you know? Okay. Like, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, I kind of hated Andy Chambers, so that's, yeah, that's yeah. a whole other <laughs> ball game. It, uh, it, it, it did some interesting stuff, but it, yeah, it, it was annoying at times. <laughs> so, but, but uh, it's interesting to see that you can arrive at the same message from two completely yes. different games and yeah. two completely and this, different angles. And this game doesn't really like push that message. It's just like, 
it, it's there, you know? It's like, if you want to enjoy this game, like, you can't look at these systems. You can't look at, like, oh, the climbing is limited at the beginning and it's very annoying. And, they, oh, I my weapons break. And I love blah, the blah, climbing. Blah, blah. My yeah, favorite I, thing I, this year. Sorry. I know you do, Wolfman. And I do love the climbing. It just, at the beginning, is very frustrating oh, yeah. when you, like, can't do it anything with the climbing yeah. because it's so limited. I mean, um, would say you can actually go a lot further than you ever expect. Like, you always... Like, yeah, still, yeah, you uh, can push yourself to, like, climb things that you wouldn't think you could climb. Uh, I agree with that, but... Yeah, it, no, I get that. I'm, what I'm saying is, like, you shouldn't, like, even if you have problems with these things, that those things shouldn't cloud the very core of this game, which is, like, a very, like, ungamey game, like... It's there's nothing like it this year, I think. Like, there's it's not a game, uh, like about like collecting shit and like pointless, you know, looking at things in a pointless way because a developer wanted to have it, you know, oh hey, look at this. Like, I guess I should look at it because you told me to look at it, not because I wanted to see it, and um. It's 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 a very unlike every other open world game that I've played. Like yeah, it's, it's, everything in that game is is purposeful. Yes, yeah. it's purposeful, and um, I I I love it about it. It's 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 amazing. Like every other game, open world game, it makes me feel like I'm in some kind of like a, you know. Um, like a machine that just gives me snacks every time I press a button. Like uh, it, actually, it's... Skinner box. Yeah, Skinner box. Yeah. I, I said that in, in, in on the avocado. Uh, it's it's it, and this game it just says like there's no like um, carrot on a stick that better than just like your curiosity and like um, y- y- you the wonders of the environment we've built and that just you looking at it. And I appreciate it more than I see the flaws in this game. And I see a lot of flaws in this game, but the very fact that I so enjoy like exploring this world, I could do it, and it doesn't even have to have a point to it. Um, It could go on for hundreds of hours, and I just can look at this world they've created. Can I, one last thing I was going to say? Yes. Um, is that it in Mario Odyssey? Um, this is, do one of my absolute favorite things, which is quests where you're not where the you're given no waypoint, and what you do is you get a photograph of a place or mm-hmm. like a weird um, abstract image of a clue, and you have yeah. to just go into the environment and find it, and that's it. And the fact that Zelda that's also something, yeah, that's something a Hat in Time did this year as well. Um, one of the cool things, though, especially for Zelda, is that it actually makes that one of the main quests. Like, yes. you have the quest to free the Divine Beasts, but you also have this other main quest, which is to track down these specific things at the specific locations. And all you get are these photographs, and they're photographs that take you all across, like, the land. Yeah. And they and, usually show you, like, a, a monument that you will recognize, probably, if you played the game enough, because they're so recognizable and like usually yeah. towering like it's either a castle a mountain or something that immediately oh. immediately yeah, yeah some some a, landmark or, yeah, yeah. Sm- or even though something like a, a short grove of poplar trees yeah and it's still designed in a way that you kind of recognize where it could be 
Um, that's just uh, like highlights how well the geography, the topology of this place is like planned out in like a meticulous manner. And like you very much see that everything was not like generated, but like finely constructed, which is also yeah. like unlike many other open world games when like playing older games, like, yeah, right now. There's Fallout. a real synergy between sort of the 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 visual appearance of of the game and and how you interact with yes, it. Yes, yes. In Fallout New Vegas, it, it mm, very often feels pointless. Like, there's a rock here because they wanted a rock here because I guess so, because there was nothing here. I mean, there's a rock there so that you can't get uh, to also, what's on the yes. other side of the rock. Yeah, also. Like, it's limiting. And well, in this game, everything is I should like... say, if you, if you fuck around a bit and, like, jump around <laughs> okay. the rock and kind of clip well, through it, then you can maybe. get to the other side. But it doesn't feel <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, everything is designed... In this game, everything is designed for you to experiment with it and to interact with it in a satisfying way. And even when something feels hard... They didn't like feel like it should not be the way you interact with it. They only felt like it isn't the optimal way to interact with it, but maybe the quicker way. And if you do it, yeah, okay, then you succeed at it, and that's your story, and that's great. Yeah, there's um, definitely room for improvisation there. Yes, yes, which so, I think is is really neat. Yeah, so that's why it's my second best game of the year. I think like it does a lot of good things in a in a genre that I didn't think I would ever like because it didn't do anything for me ever. Like uh, with its gameplay, open world games never like interested me, but this one did. All right, so that was uh, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. Yeah. What is your number one game of 2017? Ah. And since you're going last, it's the greatest game of all time, obviously. Yeah, obviously, yes. It's <laughs> flawless. No, it's it's not flawless. It's uh, Nier Automata. Um, yeah. Man, I, I love this game so much. Uh, oh, my God. It's like... The, okay, I, I like... Um, the, the, some of the best games I ever liked in, like, whole my life uh, are, like, games that... Um, play around with meta narrative and like subversion of expectations, um, and also that utilize the like the same goes to Edith Finch, like utilize the video game aspect of it to tell its own story that cannot be told in any other medium. Like it's very the the story in Near Automata can only be told in Near Automata, not in a book form, not in a musical form. Not in a movie. I mean, form. there were there were near stage musicals. I mean, they're <laughs> I, telling yeah. associated stories. Yeah, but I, that I that's exactly the thing. I don't think it it can work like as well as it does in this format. Um, yeah, you couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Like obviously, there are stage plays and there's different kinds of near stuff. Yeah, but the story of near automata could only it's, be told through a game. Like, it's, uh, yeah, it's interwoven yeah. with the format like in a way that inseparable um, yeah. because of how it presents its game endings because there's there are many game endings that you reach and like that's part of the gameplay um, and like the way it like um, I, okay I'm gonna say right here that the biggest flaw I have with the game is that I don't think the combat is very good uh, it's like mediocre Um and it doesn't really matter which weapon you choose. You can just like fight through the game, and that the game doesn't really ask you to experiment with its weapons. Um, it's the 
it's 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 a thing yeah. that I, I yeah. I'm gonna be frank. I just picked the one with the highest stats. Yeah, exactly. Memorized the combos I, for it. Exactly. I picked the small one because I think when I I, I want to press buttons a lot, I want there to be a lot of hits. Yeah, so I, I don't pick the big lumbering ones. <laughs> I picked the small one and I picked the heavy one so I have a quick attack and a heavy attack. And that was my basic, uh, yeah, till the end of the game you can just go through the game with these weapons. But that doesn't matter. Because the way that it really surprises you, engages you, like it's the way that it plays with this mediocre combat in a way that it elevates it. Um, with its like hacking sequences that are really fun and like it's uh, different perspectives that suddenly 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 changes from a 3D combat to a 2D platformer combat and like then it just turns into like a shoot 'em up and like an actual shoot 'em up with a ship or like you're walking around and like you're also kind of playing all the time like a bullet hell shooter which you're in a 3D environment in an action game like they yeah, come I, yeah I just have to say Nier Automata, like it's it doesn't look as as flashy. Yeah, it kind of has last genish kind yes. of graphics. Yes. Yeah. But the the way it uses its camera, and the way it keeps sort of shifting gameplay styles, it's a technical marvel that must have yes. taken ages to debug. Exactly. And I, no, I like do... I'm shocked that it works as well as it does. Yeah. If I'm being totally honest, I don't really like how the camera kind of constantly pans down or pans up. And goes to the ground in a way that's kind of male gazy. And the, well, there's yeah, there's a little, there's some issues there about the design maybe uh, of of the women and like uh, a little bit of a fetishization. Oh shit! I, I mean, it's, it. it's fetishization, yes, and exactly. it's not as bad as Xenoblade Two. Yeah, yeah, obviously there are worse examples of it in other games, but I wish yeah. there was less of it in Japanese games overall. Uh, but that's called, you know, that's a whole different culture conversation, blah, blah, blah. What I'm trying to say here is that even though with its flaws, I found like the um, playing around with the meta narrative and like um, the subversion of expectations at every corner made me like excited for each time. Like I turned on the game, I was like, what am I going to find this time? I don't know. Like the way it even like plays with music. Like, at certain point, this isn't a big spoiler. Also, you're listening to Game of the Year podcast, so fuck you. But this isn't <laughs> a big spoiler. Uh, at one point, there's, like, uh, enemies that you start massacring because you're ordered to do so that just are keep, keep saying this cannot continue. And they're, like, saying it here and there, and then suddenly it starts to make a rhythm. Like, it starts to get into a rhythm. This cannot continue. This cannot continue. And then the music like turns on and it's like interwoven with the music it's the beat to the to the soundtrack and it's one of the amazing moments like you're like oh shit this like turns from something like incidental to uh like uh, a, an amazing thing that i just like can get out of my head and the music in this game is fantastic i think it's the best of the year like zelda has um definitely has some interesting like slight music that used in a very uh, you know, fantastic way. But near Automata for me, it's like just it, it, it's it's beautiful. It's amazing, and and I'm and, still like humming the tunes in my head right. Yeah, now. and I I I I have listened to the soundtrack outside of the game, which doesn't happen to me very often at all. Like it very very rarely, and I like listen to this soundtrack a lot. Um, 
so yeah, it, it plays with the expectation on like every like like it, 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 like with visuals, with gameplay, with music, with story. It it tries to do a lot of stuff. Also, it has like like as Wolfman has like touched upon before, like it has great uh, narrative about humanity and uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be a, a artificial being, and that also like is in theme with this subversion of expectations and playing with gameplay. Um, and there's the ending, which is like, I cried at the ending, like the ending E, the very ending ending of the game is like a very, like an experience I haven't had in video games. I don't think ever like with this, this feeling of a weird feeling of togetherness of humanity that like, I don't know. It's like, it, it it really hit me at that mo- at that point. Like it's just I don't know. Maybe I was in this state of mind, but I I was really surprised by how much I was affected by this like simple trick. Um, because it is kind yeah. of a trick, but uh, it's 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 it really is like moving. In a well, way, that... let me just say without spoiling anything, that entire sequence uh, was just. That entire sequence, my, my reaction is, what the hell? I can't believe they're doing this. Yes. But yeah. it's amazing. Yes. It's perfect. And the only thing that stimmies it is me is two things. One being that when I did it, um, it requires a um, an online connection and a PlayStation yes. or Microsoft yes. account. Um, and yes. I did not have that. So okay. by okay. the time I got it, I kind of moved away from the game. So I understand. I understand. Power. But the other it, things that made me feel sad because I ended up losing um, four shots with, or three um, points. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about with points. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it for the... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Didn't okay. mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. Uh, but what I'm saying is, like, when it hits, like, when it, like, it hits hard. Like, it can, you can miss it. If, like, my brother also missed it. Um, when he was playing it, because I don't think he was connected to the uh, to online again. Like, yeah, that that can happen to you, and that yeah, that's that sucks that it can happen. Like, you can miss a a great moment in this game, but if it hits you, like it's I I felt like it was one of the best video game sequences I've had all my life. Like, uh, it's a bit hyperbolic maybe, but that's how I felt at that moment. Um, because it plays so much on emotions in a way that like no other game has like done it. Like in a way that like it's not about like uh, a story about love or something. It's about about community, about like interaction with other people in a way that like helps you overcome obstacles. And that's it's about what it yeah. means to be human. Yes, and what it means to be hu- humanity. I know that sounds it sounds like a cliche, but that's really what yes. this game yeah. is about. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, uh, yeah, continue, Wolfman, yes? Yeah, it's this, it's basically like stripping the nature of humanity down and the nature of that on like both a personal level and a social level. Yes. And when all of that is broken or when all of that is compromised or hurt, what's left? Yeah, and this game explains that. Yeah, yeah, this this and... game deconstructs uh, layers of humanity and like strips them down to like essentials, like basics, uh, uh, up to the very end because the end is very basic. Like it's a couple. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a only a couple triangles on the screen. It's not like this could be like done way like 
it's not technically like it's technically impressive in a way what it does behind the scenes, but it's not visually impressive in any way. So it shouldn't hit you as hard as it does, but it does because it's like strips down the essence of what it tries to say to the very basics. And it's like so pure and effective that it really hit me. Um, you know so. what it sort of reminds me of? This is going to sound like a ridiculous comparison. Yeah. It almost reminds me of Thomas Was Alone. I haven't played that. that. Yeah, but it's... Oh, yeah, that's uh, about the uh, geometric shapes that help each other overcome obstacles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can that's see what it. That's like Yes. Yeah. Point. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, so that's why it's my favorite game of the year. If this wasn't my favorite game of the year, I don't know. I don't even I wouldn't know myself because I th- these are the sort of games I like, like games about humanity, about exploration of the human condition and also like games that subvert expectations and like play with this meta narrative and all of this is encompassed in this game. Like this is encased in this one single product that if you don't play I'm going to kick your ass. Well, on that note, uh, and on that threat, I would like to say you should go play 3D Thomas Was Alone. Also, Um, yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Thomas Was Alone in the 3D version of Thomas Was Alone, which is Nira Tomara. (laughs) Exactly. So um, if you ever get the chance, check it out. And thank you guys for joining me on this podcast. Um, And we'll have another segment coming right up. Bye. Bye, Goodbye. Sorry, we I took so long. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye, All right, goodbye, later, folks. All right, we're back, and thank you to our community for sharing their top three games of the year. We had some really interesting discussions, and I'm glad that we got to hear about the games you love from this year. Now, Captain and the Radio Cat are back, and we're going to talk about our top three games of the year. So... Just to start off, Radio Cat, why don't you tell us what your number three game of 2017 is? Number three for me is drumroll Mario Odyssey. Oh, nice! Yay! Yay! Yay. Yeah, it, it it was definitely it was so cool. I I really enjoyed it. I thought it's a really interesting direction for 3D Mario's to go. Yeah, it sounds. It's. Um, I I played it. I beat it. Still haven't unlocked like all the challenges or whatever. Um, but I I really enjoyed it. I had I had some gripes with it, but I really enjoyed it on the whole. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, Nintendo sixty four style, right? Where you can you can beat the game, but then there's other worlds to unlock and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so they've... it's like it's like the original Super Mario sixty four or Sunshine in its level design. But they've also d- the, uh, done kind of like what uh, I feel like has been Nintendo's go-to thing now. It's like the normal Mario game, like the base story, that's like, you know, you can, anyone can play through that. But then they have post-game content that's like, these are the ch- challenges. If you want to like go all out and be hardcore Mario, like, you know, there's additional things that are a lot harder, which I really like that they have kind of pick-your-own-difficulty sort of deal. How does the uh, like the real world stuff mesh in? Is it okay? Fit, so or the it... real world stuff is one particular level called New Dog City, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it works surprisingly well. Yeah, like I thought it was going to be ridiculous, but given the theme of travel in the game, where you're traveling to different worlds and discovering them, 
it's like Mario is a visitor from another world who's just like going to New York for some reason. Yeah. And the New Yorkers are just like the creatures of that world. Well, uh, I mean, what, sorry, are, what uh, do they call them? Do they call them donkeyans? Donkeys? They call like new <laughs> new donkers, I believe they're called. <laughs> new donkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. it's. It's weird, but it kind of works. Well, I mean, there's also, I mean, spoiler alert, but, like, pretty much a Dark Soul level that Mario goes to. Like, if we're talking clashing styles. Okay, that clashes way more than New Donk City. <laughs> That's, like, the one level where I'm just like, okay, guys, you took it a little too far. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. I was like, what is going on right now? Yeah, they they really just did they did not hold back in terms of doing weird things with Mario in this game. And that's why I had so much fun with it. It it they pretty much are firing on all the cylinders of like what would be a mar- modern Mario game and they killed it. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed my time with it. So, what's your number 2? Number 2 is Persona 5 and this might just be because of sheer time spent in that world but like I got so invested and it was something I just was playing for you know hours and hours cuz I think I tapped out at like uh, 120 or something hours by the end so that's one playthrough or did you yeah, game one, plus it? one playthrough Okay yeah I it took me just over 120 to beat the game as well and yeah that was a ride yeah definitely and like i it was one of those ones too where i'm like i can see myself going back and replaying this like a couple years down the road and uh i probably will yeah same here i think this is a game that i revisit you know five years from now when there's a lull in in the game in, in the games industry. Yeah, and I mean it's also it got it got me interested in the rest of the series of games, so I'm I'm looking into, you know, trying out some of those older ones now too. Yeah, I Persona like the really old ones are probably going to be hard to get into. Persona 3 is probably where it starts being modern Persona. Mm-hmm. And Persona 4 is really the precursor, I'd say to this one. Um in terms of, like it has almost the exact same mechanics. Um it solidifies a lot of uh, a lot of the mechanics that were kind of not great in previous games, like you didn't have full party control in Persona 3. Persona 4 allows you to command your party members. Um, and then the general structure and kind of the dating sim-ish aspect were, are from Persona 4. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. So what, 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 did you, what did you enjoy most about the game? The most? I mean, I thought it, it was, it was kind of like Pokemon, like I mean, I kind of like that aspect of it of getting yeah, all like the you're personas. collecting the monsters. Yeah, that's a, that's really, really satisfying to you know capture a new persona, and it just the game oozes style. Like there's just like from the like opening title screen to you know every little detail. The music is fantastic. I got the soundtrack. I it's my ringtone. Like when I wake up in the morning, it's. Uh, the... Do you wake up to, you'll never see it coming? <laughs> I did. I did for a while, but the beginning of that song is too abrupt. So I switched to like uh, one of the interludes, like where you're into the coffee shop. Because uh, that song is relaxing. So it kind of wakes me up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as coffee does. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, so it's it's a game that I also enjoyed my time with as well very much. And like like you said, it oozes style all over the place. The menus are are splashy and fantastic. Um, 
the uh, the audio design in the game, not just like the music, but like the audio is very snappy. Um, the dungeons are, are pretty well crafted. It's it's overall like a really uh, a really substantial, well crafted game. Yeah, and I'm not normally huge on turn based RPGs, but the way that this was structured, it's uh, the combat was so dynamic and shifting and. It, you never felt like it took too long or I was waiting for them. It's like, all right, let's speed this up. Let's keep going. And then they have the rush mechanic where if you know you can easily beat someone, you just fast forward through the entire battle. Oh, you were doing that? I, oh, I no, played no, out. No, no, no. I, don't, I don't normally do that. But like, you know, for if I run into like a low level thing that I don't want to bother with. Oh, uh, I never do that because they sometimes use up SP attacks. I'm just like, yeah. I want to, I want to. Beat, beat up the sky physical attacks so don't waste SP. So I always did every battle manually, um, which is probably why it took me so goddamn long to beat <laughs> the game. Um, yeah, so that was Persona 5. What's your number one game of 2017? Number one is, you can probably see this coming, Zelda uh, the Wild. <laughs> oh, I was going to guess ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Breath of the Wild. Um, I, I know you were talking about earlier on the podcast... Um, so tell, tell us about your experience with it. I picked up a switch. I went to the midnight release for this thing and started playing when I got home at like, you know, 1230 and, uh, ended up playing till all night. Like I did not sleep that night and I had to go to work and was dying and it just, it sucked me in. Like I can't remember the last time I've played a game this much and like still been constantly surprised and elated when i discover new things like they made exploring fun and there's so few games where i feel like if you have a huge open world there's so much like filler you look at games like far cry or assassin's creed where there's just it's a big world but the stuff in it isn't all that interesting or it gets repetitive and i feel like with zelda i will just like be wandering i see something i'm like what's that over there and then you go over there, and sure enough, there's going to be something there to, you know, interact with or, uh, like, that you can use to better yourself or improve yourself or a shrine. There's – it's just a really dense populated world. Right. It's – there's – it seems like it was – everything that's in that world is, is well considered. Like, it belongs in that world. It's not like there's some random out-of-place challenge that they just put in there for the sake of uh, – putting something on on your mini map exactly and there i love that you can play it your way like there's so many ways to approach anything like there's puzzles that you can solve completely different than like someone else or you could never encounter like a puzzle that someone else does because there's so much content in there i think it's not necessarily meant to be you know 100 percented i think it's you can and that's a (laughs) kind of crazy because there's 600 Korok seeds like scattered throughout the world and I'm not getting those yeah I think it's it's more like a game that's meant to be uh, like do you know how, how when you were a kid you would talk about what you did in, in like Pokemon with, with your friends and you'd like share secrets on the playground because back then the internet wasn't as big yeah yeah it seems like it's trying to bring that back like um I I explored this nooker nooker cranny or I I came upon this shrine. What did you do? And they'll be like, I didn't even know that shrine existed. Yeah, or like there's there's I mean, can we do any spoilers on this or what? Um, not like we we can we can put the timestamp for the spoiler if it's major. 
It's it's like just a small little thing. It's oh, yeah, there's, go ahead. there's a specific uh, challenge that presents itself where you can come across it in a couple different ways, but like you somehow wind up unarmed, like with no gear on a like deserted island. And that's something that you can or cannot, like you can completely miss it, but it's a really cool like side quest that just comes out of nowhere. And I've talked to people who have never even heard of that. And then I tell them and they go and do it. And it's, it's, it brought some of that back. Yeah. Like the, the idea of sort of sharing secrets of video game around, I guess now we're all older, the water cooler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are, those are some three very deserving candidates of, of recognition. Uh, Kappa, what are your uh, top three games of the year? All right, so I'm just going to preface this where I expect Nier and Divinity Original Sin 2 are probably going to make this list in revision. I just haven't finished either. Well, I've, I've actually only started one of them. but So this is just what I played this year. Um, my first one is uh, – well, my third one is Planet Coaster. Um, I was Yeah, a, so that, that's cheating a little bit because it came yeah, out I know, last I'm year. Yeah, I know. I'm sticking with it. But – I will came, say they've added so much content this year that might as well be a new that's game. That's the thing. And I, I think when the game really took off was actually when the Steam Workshop kind of blossomed in a weird way. So the game is more of like a tool set, if you want to think of it like this. So when it released, um, if you wanted to build a roller coaster, right, you had to sit there and do every little individual piece yourself. Now it's kind of a different thing, right? Like you make your park and then you go download a roller coaster that you think fits the scheme and you can get all the, I mean, you can still do it by hand, but right now it's, it's as much or as little of a building game as you want it to be, which is why playing it now feels totally different than how it used to because um, did, did they make the path building tools easier to use? Yeah, Cause that's yeah. the reason it bounced off of it. So, so okay, that's good. I might they, actually get back into it then. They do a snap to grid. Um, as well as uh, you can change the length and the width, um, and you can also freehand it as well. Can you? Um, can you? Do the, are the tools for for adjusting the elevation with the paths yeah. a little bit easier? Yeah. Like so when you click, if you hold it up or down, it'll change the elevation and it'll create uh, stairs. Um, at one height, it'll be a ramp. At the next height, it'll be stairs, and then it'll get a little steeper. You can also tunnel now too. Um, okay, because that was. That was what made it extremely hard for me. And, and the other launch. thing they did now is they kind of have like an auto path complete type thing for certain rides. So like you can basically click it and it'll click, it'll put the entrance and exit cues like a certain number of squares out from the ride. Um, and some people include that in their downloads as well. So, I mean, there, there, there's a lot, it, there's a lot more to it now. It when at release, it felt like almost overwhelming, right? Like, not only do you have to manage the park and the ticket prices and all that, but you also have to build each and every ride. It's not like that anymore. Um, it's very much just how much or how little you want to customize about your park. Um, so like I, the first park I made was like a halo themed one. So a lot of sci-fi rides, um, a lot of, you know, like painting everything green that like, you know, halo green and orange. And, um, you know, yeah. so like you, you can make a, make parks now based on whatever you decide and you can find stuff on the workshop. Um, I mean, I actually found like crashed pelicans, uh, you know, from halo in the workshop. So there, huh. there's stuff in there. If you want to put the work in, um, they've also added a lot of cool little packs. Um, a spooky pack came out, um, a monsters pack kind of out of nowhere. Uh, I think there was like a back to the future. There's, there's been various packs. They managed to license some, some pretty good properties. Yeah. And, and then the other thing that they've done is they've licensed some actual amusement parks. Um, so people are like out there recreating rides from actual amusement parks. So you can stick them in the game now. Um, so the, it, it's a fun game on its own, but 
the layer of Steam Workshop is the first time where I really felt like the Workshop adds so much more to the game. It's basically its own game now. Um, it, it feels if playing it when I first played it towards the end of last year and playing it now, totally different experience. Um, so yeah, yeah, I might. That's actually good news because I bounced pretty hard off of it. Once, like, I just got frustrated trying to just build paths in that game. So just you freehanding it, the tool. Were you doing to snap to grid. I was doing both and finding both impossible to work with. Yeah, I mean, it like, might it might still frustrate you. I mean, it, pathing is is not the best. Um, but what what I found now, now that you've got the rides, you get the ride footprint, right? So yeah. you can you you can make a path however you want first to the grid and then make the rides fit the grid. Do you know what I mean? Or make yeah. the rides. Fit. It's, it's more like I was having trouble making making ramps or paths of like arbitrary slope. That's yeah, just my issue. It, it, you just give it a shot. You can rotate everything in the world now. So like there's like little grab points you can make kind of like like you can make certain objects kind of like tilt like left and right as well as up and down. Um, so they basically give you all the accesses to move if you really need to do that. Um, okay, but it's good to hear. Yeah, there, it, it's a it's a smart, fun game. Uh, I love the developers. Tons of support to it. Um, they're, they're very they're very cool, and they they keep the stuff flowing. Um, they even recognize people who make a lot of creations. So like, if you get like noticed, they'll put you on the page, and you know, I'm sure you get tons of downloads. But uh, it, it's a cool game, and I'm really excited that these are the guys working on the new Jurassic Park game. Um, that, that's a oh, cool nice. property. I'm I'm pretty sure about that, right? Is it Frontier? They're working. Yeah, I didn't know they're doing sure. a Jurassic Park game. I, I I'm almost positive, but uh, uh, we'll we'll fact check that for the yeah. dump. Yeah, check um, it out. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it, it's not Jurassic Park. I'm sorry, it's Jurassic World. They announced Jurassic it at Gamescom uh, three months ago. It's Frontier. They're calling it Jurassic World Evolution. Um, okay. So it yeah, seems, it seems like a big departure from Planet Coaster. Well, I Unless mean, they're making it like a like it builds your own actual Jurassic Park. That's what I'm thinking it's going to be. And don't forget, these are the guys who also did Elite Dangerous. I mean, they they can program the shit out of some games because uh, Elite Dangerous feels like a universe. I mean, I never really felt you know like I was anywhere in that world because it was so big. But yeah, yeah. I, that that to me is some is is a good news story. Um, so what's your number two and is it actually from 2017? <laughs> yeah, this one is, um, it is a uh, cuphead, I, uh, cuphead to me. I mean, I, I mentioned this in the, it's hard, but it's not unfair. And I, that's the one thing I can't stress enough to people who are on the fence about cuphead because it looks cool. It sounds cool. Everything else is cool about it, but they hear how hard it is. It never felt cheap when I died. That's the best way I can explain its difficulty to you. I was like, I missed time that jump or I missed that parry or I should have used this weapon. Um, that that to me is the best way to describe a game that's hard rather than feels shitty and unfair. You know, and that, that's what I hear a lot of people say about Dark Souls. So this is kind of in that vein. Um, but Cuphead had a couple drawbacks to me. Um, I didn't like the way they did the store system. I thought that was kind of arbitrary and dumb. Um, that they would lock certain things behind other certain things. So. Maybe you didn't want Bounce Shot, but you wanted the one that came after it, but you still had to buy Bounce Shot, you know? Um, I, I thought that was kind of a, a, a weird, you know, way to do things. So I just cheated myself some gold and bought it all anyway. Because, I mean, you're going to get it all anyway. But um, so I did that, and I, I felt like that wasn't necessarily cheat. It was just getting the same weapons you would have, uh, you know, without grinding through the game. Um, the The story is kind of cool. Like, I don't know how else to describe <laughs> it. I, I enjoyed it. 
um, it's a funny, weird 30 style uh, story. The enemy design is great. The the hand drawn graphics and everything it's it's amazing to look at. Um, the sound, not just the the music, but I mean just the actual sounds in the game are all awesome. Um, I, I loved everything about it. Um, you know, I couldn't have had a better time with it. That one store complaint being uh, one of my big things. I didn't like the air levels as much either. Did you guys play it? Yeah, I, I played it. The air levels were all right. I mean, yeah, they. I again, it's like the character design and stuff is great. So like, I loved the um, the Egyptian themed level because yeah. that that one was really cool. But uh, yeah, I see it's kind of a weaker point of the series or the well, game. Well, I, I mean, because I, I know a lot of the development was like they didn't want it to be just a boss rush, so they went back and added some things. And I feel like the air mode was like, let's get, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, no, let's yeah. add something. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, I think the, the uh, you know, uh, more side-scrolling levels to me are weaker a little bit than yeah, the air uh, ones. I, I think out of the so like there's the three things right? there's the air ones the boss rush and the uh, side scroller so I think every if you can hit two out of three I think you're gonna end up being a good game and with everything else that has going for it I mean I could I could suck suck it up and make exactly. it through the air ones um, which were only like what like three or four I don't think there was a lot in, in there no um, just yeah. three I think yeah so it, it, Cuphead's a great game if you can play it with somebody definitely do that uh, adds a lot to it. Um, played it with my wife a couple times. She hated it because it was so hard. But uh, <laughs> she's more of like a Mario player and Destiny. But um, so yeah, it was. It, it's it deserves to be at least experiences. If you're on the fence about it because it's hard, at least give it a shot. Um, because man, it is gorgeous. It's fun to look at, and I think fun to play. I'll if nothing that. else, it just looks so amazing. I I'm definitely at least gonna watch a let's play of it at some point. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so what's your number one game of the year? And Assassin's Creed Origin. I, I said it in the post. I was not expecting what? it. It is good, guys. I mean, I, I, I know I'm not going to convince anybody who's gave up the series a long time ago, but this feels, it, it feels like, like I don't want to say Skyrim, but the it finally feels like you're an assassin in an open world. Um, like, you, yes, you still synchronize from towers, but now it's like it just gives you a, a question mark, you know? And you go over there and you figure out what's going on over there. Maybe it's a loot cave. Maybe it's a bunch of bad guys that kill you instantly because they're way over your level. Um, but it is an RPG. It, I mean, I don't think they made that clear enough in some of the press. But levels and gear and all that stuff matters a ton. You can't just go around knifing everybody in the back anymore. Um, at some point, you can. You know, you get stronger than them. Um, but... I mean, there's damage ratings. There's you know, there's hit point bars. It's 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 all there. Just weaponry like and equipment really matter too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, it, you, it's not so much about and you've got a com like a complete skill tree that's sixty skills deep. I mean, and like each one is is pretty meaningful. And you've got like three or four different play styles now. You've got the run in their face and smash them with a giant hammer. You've got the short, sword and shield. You've got the bow and arrow. Um, alongside, of course, the assassinating. So um, there is a lot to this game that, I mean, I, I get it if you're done with it and you're, you know, it's another yearly cash cow. Well, I guess not yearly now. Um, the I, I've been on and off, hot and cold on the modern day stuff for Assassin's Creed. This one has it. Um, it's, I mean, depending on who you ask. I mean, I don't think it's great, but it's not the worst they've done. But that stuff is kind of, to me, it's kind of um, you know disposable based on how much you, you do or don't like the, the game around it. Um, so I think it's a really cool new direction. I'm hoping 
that they took a lot of the feedback and excitement about this game and stick it into Far Cry and, you know, all the other Ubi games that kind of have become less and less RPG-ish o- over time um, when they kind of started out in that way. But I, I think I it's... Mean, a- Far Cry, if anything, has become more and more RPG-ish. Yeah. It started off as a... started off as just a straight-up first-person shooter with open but linear levels. Yeah, and, and I, I think this the move towards RPG systems in Ubi games, because they're all kind of the same now, right? I mean, let's be yeah. honest. Yeah, uh, it's Ubisoft I, game is, is a genre. Yeah, I, I think I think it makes sense. I mean, I think it's always been where they're, they've been kind of like half-assing it towards RPG, but I think they finally said, look, give us an extra year on this, and we're going to make an RPG Assassin's Creed, and damn it, they did it. Uh, Egypt's a gorgeous setting. I mean, it is... It, it's it's not all sand and pyramids you know i mean you go through some of those cities you interact with you know it, like it, it's it feels more like a hub of the ancient world than just like you know like like a like a cast off setting that's okay yeah it's egypt but um the, the the plot is very well the 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 assassin's plot is very well crafted i think i mean you give him a very personal reason to be after, on the vengeance mission he's on um the, the the bird's cool, <laughs> yeah. like you know. Finally, you get real eagle vision. Uh, yeah, that. like like an, a literal eagle. Yeah, yeah, and it, like it makes so much more sense finally. But um, I mean, like I said, I I'm not going to sell anybody who's given up. And I mean, I feel like Assassin's Creed comes and goes and ups and downs. But to me, this is this is a return to form, and I'm 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 hoping that they say, okay, look at this game we made right here. Uh, I I don't think it's a controversial pick. I think people have have said quite a few places this is a really good game. So um, I, I'm just here to kind of put my voice in there that yeah, th- this is one that you know I, I'm not saying don't miss it. If you've given up Assassin's Creed, I get it. But if you've at all yeah. been interested in the series, this might be a time to come back around. Ben really liked this game too, so good. he he put it on his list. So it's it's getting it's getting some love for sure. Nice to hear. Yeah. Um, all right, so I guess I should mention what I liked from this year. Um, number, th- I think my, my top two aren't going to be a surprise. Number three, I don't think a lot of people have heard of it, and that makes me a little disappointed uh, because it was part of uh, Square, the Square Enix Collective Development Initiative where a bunch of uh, essentially really small indie developers um, got some promotional push from Square Enix to, to publish their games. Uh, and this particular one is called Tokyo Dark. So it's in sort of an adventure game, um, almost in the style of Telltale, oh. almost, but with a little bit more more puzzling. So kind of like the first season of The Walking Dead with slightly hard, pu- harder puzzles before they just removed puzzles entirely from their games. Um, so imagine it's sort of like the first season of Walking Dead. And except for there's a greater emphasis on puzzles and the narrative does change depending on the choices you make. So it's a puzzle game with brand, with a branching narrative, which I haven't really seen before. Um, and in terms of the subject matter, you play a detective who's looking into uh, a series of, um, I believe, murders and, and disappearances. Um, and this mysterious, this mysterious young girl who seems to be behind um, behind the crimes and it beca- it turns into eventually a psychological thriller and you start questioning your own sanity etc um, it's, it's a very well told story it's extremely creepy and scary and weird and bizarre and it's also I think well, without spoiling anything about the story it's also a very 
um, compared to most psychological thrillers that I think do, uh, they're kind of lurid and almost exploitative. This is also a very sensitive depiction of trauma. You know, it's, it's good to hear that. I mean, like so many, I think detective games for whatever reason are hard to do. Right. I mean, yeah, it, 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 by nature, it's kind of boring. I mean, to like, try to <laughs> figure, I mean, it like, I mean, like, it's just kind of a, like a, a very, paying attention to small details and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really think that's kind of interesting um, that, that you hear, I, I'm thinking about like probably besides the uh, quantic dreams games, you know, which I think kind of exists yeah. in its own world. I'm thinking about like stuff like um, games that have done detective well, usually focus more on um, like, kind of the the pro like i'm thinking of uh fables the telltale series you know yeah. um it's more about the process of finding out who did it than you know the the actual this is the guy that did it i guess um, yeah it's like you in the wolf among us you're really being led along by the nose yeah and i think it's more about recreating sort of the emotions behind being a detective rather than the the actual mechanics of it uh, and that's where Tokyo Dark succeeds. It's, it's, you're not really detective solving. You, your pu- the puzzles are very standard adventure game fare almost. Um, but you, it recreates the feeling of being a detective. Surprisingly, I think a game that really actually did detective work really well was Life is Strange. Because there, there are a few sections where you actually have to pour over clues and solve a mystery. Yeah. Those are done extremely well. Uh, but they're not really about making you feel like you know, a cop solving a, a case. Yeah. And I think that's what people like, like LA Noir had to spice up being a detective with how many things that detectives don't really even do, you know, <laughs> like, like yeah, you're running I mean, around, like getting into shootouts at, you know, places just because otherwise the game didn't have much going on. So yeah, just going to clubs and cheating on your wife. Yeah. That's <laughs> that detectives do, but it's, it's cool to hear that. I mean, like detective games, I think are, are one of those things where if you do it right, it feels cool. Um, so that, that's really awesome to hear. Yeah, it feels, yeah, it feels, it's not so much like the detective parts, although those are a big part of it. Um, but it's really, it's really the idea of, of uncovering this mystery and in the process, sort of plumbing the depths of your own psyche. I think that's what the game does really well. Mm. Uh, okay. So my number two pick of the year, I don't think I'm going to surprise anybody by saying this. Prey is my number two pick of the year. (laughs) Yeah, I remember you had a lot of mixed feelings about it. So I mean, I guess I guess that's good. Wait, did I have mixed feelings about it? I Maybe. Think, yeah, I think at one point at least, but I don't know. If, I think it's more about the the very very ending. Oh, the very very ending. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil that. I will say, I think people. I don't think I personally had mixed feelings about it, but a lot of people did. Okay. Yeah. Um. It's. I think it's controversial the ending without spoiling anything was also extremely bold and i think it's well done okay um what i will say though is that i really enjoyed my time with this game it's an immersive sim in not like in the vein of bioshock it's more system shockish or more deus ex-ish i'd say okay uh the premise is that you're on a space station experiment goes awry alien menace arrives everything goes to shit you have to somehow save yourself and save the and save uh, the survivors on the station as well. So it is a um, it's also a game that affords a lot of different gameplay possibilities. So you can 
choose to absorb a bunch of alien powers and use their powers against them, or you can choose to try to remain pure and untainted by alien DNA. Um, there's like 10 different approaches to solving any problem. It's, you know, the very standard immersive sim, but it's polished to, it's polished as hell. Uh, the systems all work really well together. They, the And also all the systems have some sort of narrative justification. So like instead of crafting in this game, what happens is all the junk you pick up, you can turn into base materials and then you use those base materials to build um, ammo and, and replenish your supplies. And the way they tie this into the game's fiction is that if you're on a space station, reusing junk and then refabricating it as something else is an efficient way to save resources. Yeah. So it fits into uh, the space station more broadly. Um, and things like, you know, taking down enemies instead of sneaking around them is crucial because you're going to need to replenish your material somehow in order to be able to build new stuff. So all these systems sort of play into each other um, very in a very neat way. Um, also, story-wise, it's it's fairly interesting. It's it's fairly standard, but also fairly interesting. What I think narratively they do really well with this game is environmental storytelling. And it's not just through notes and, and such that are left behind for you to read and audio logs and things like that. Uh, but it seems like the space station on which it's set seems like an actual real place, uh, which is something that I think other game another game this year that sort of suffers by comparison to Coma struggled with struggled in making the, the space station feel yeah. like a real place. It brings in this uh, international cast of characters and it feels like an actual international cast of characters, not just at the risk of being extremely controversial, what some white dude in Seattle thinks an international cast of characters looks like. Um, so it's really nice to see um, to see a game that feels like it creates a real place, populates it with a d diverse cast, cast of characters and has... Um, really amazing, well-constructed gameplay. And I hope Arcane continues to make games like this. Yeah, everything about it sounds cool. It's just one of those on the list, you know? Yeah, there's so many games that came out this year. Uh, I, I feel it sort of felt by the wayside, and it didn't do very well commercially, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I was surprised by that. It seemed like it was getting a lot of press, like a lot of critical press right up to its release, and I, I was kind of shocked. I feel like Tacoma and Prey kind of blurred together for some people. Um, yeah, I mean, Tacoma came much later in the year. Right, right. But I mean, it's a very good game in its own right. Yeah. But it has it has issues, um, and I think my opinions on it are slightly controversial, so we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. Um, but yeah, Prey is a game that deserves to be played. I'm and... just starting now. I just, uh, I'm my first two hours in or so, and it's fantastic. It gets it gets even it gets even better. I think there's a slight lull after the first little bit uh, when you get into the anti gravity section, but after that, it gets like fantastic again, and it becomes like really, really, um, really, really involving. You you open up all these gameplay possibilities. How long did it take to get had. through that one? Um, let me actually check because I have Steam open right now. I can tell you how long I spent on it. Right now, I've uh, got I've got Prey, Near, and Wolfenstein installed. I'm probably going to try to figure out which one's shorter. <laughs> okay, mean, so Prey took me. I, I played it almost com in in a completionist way. It took me 33 hours. Okay, that's not bad. 
So yeah. it's going to take you less because you're a better gamer than I am. You'll probably be through it in, I'd say, 20 to 23. I, I, I'm just not ready for, like, a 60-hour. I think Nier is pretty damn close to 60, right? Nier like, took, took me 46. Okay. Um, semi-completionist, I'd say it would take you probably around 40. Okay, cool. Less. Oh, the other thing I got installed is Spellforce 3, but I know that's not a game for everybody, but I'll wait for the 2018 best of. <laughs> yeah, before... Uh, before you, you dive into that one. Yeah. Um, speaking of Nier, Nier Automata is my number one game of the year. Surprising wow. no one. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a shock. Um, so I, I've said a lot about this game. We did an entire podcast on it, so I'm going to be brief. Um, if you have any interest whatsoever in action RPGs or hack and slash games or games with really bizarre narratives, play this game. And I'm not going to spoil anything about it for you. I'm not going to tell you about its twists and turns. I will say that this is a game that uh, I think last year for me was sort of demoralizing in, in video games. Um, like my best, like the best game that came out for me last year was Firewatch, and that's a, a game that's deeply flawed. It's a good game, don't get me wrong, but it's deeply flawed. And I was wondering if you know this generation would ever produce a game that I thought was you know, one of the greats. And um, when I played Nier Automata this year, it just blew me, blew me away. It blew my mind. And I was like, this is a masterpiece. This is a game that people deserve to talk about, uh, that deserves to be talked about for years. Um, and this is a game that I think um, does some does stuff that no other game does in a way that is super, super interesting. Uh, I've probably oversold it by this point, but I, I really love this game. And oh. I think um, just like even from a technical perspective, the things it does, like the way it switches around the camera in a semi-open world kind of game, like this is the kind of stuff that probably took like months and months of bug testing to get right. And they really took the time to make something that worked really well. So yeah, go ahead and play this game. Also, you beat up a bunch of robots and you play as pe- as uh, a lady in a gothic Lolita outfit. So there's that too. <laughs> so yeah, that's my number one game of the year. Uh, cool. Let's switch gears and go to the opposite end of the spectrum and talk about the shittiest games of 2017. Uh. Um, so no, we're not necessarily going to be talking about the games that are like the absolute worst because sometimes you can find like garbage that's spewed out into Steam every day and it's like not even worth playing. Um, so for me, they're going to be my personal worst, but, um, for a cap or radio cat, I don't know what games they pick. They might be talking about their most disappointing games. Yeah. I've got kind of, I've got, I got a little bit of a mix. So, uh, Kappa, why don't you tell us what were your more, more your worst or most, most disappointing uh, games of the year? Most disappointing is shadows of war. I mean, I know I ranted about it. I, I hope people listening didn't buy this turn, but Mortar had a lot going on, right? And it felt like a new system that was going to be kind of this cool thing, this nemesis system. And if they had time to build on it, a very cool Lord of the Rings setting. They played fast and loose with the license, so it didn't have to be, you know, shot for shot from the movie or anything. But man, everything about the new one just kind of not memorable. Not even the the Italian feels boring. They the this overall story is basically, you know, are we as bad as the Dark Lord? Well, no, you're not. It's the Dark Lord. You know, he's supposed to be the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, yes, you're controlling orcs, but there's kind of this problematic angle to it. 
you know, we're enslaving their minds to do our bidding. It's the same thing Sauron See, does. Okay, like just just let me let me jump in here for a second. I hate when games do stuff like that because there's an interesting ethical dilemma, right, at the center yeah. of do like do we enslave orcs or like hijack their minds or what have you. But when you take it as far as 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 bad as Sauron, well, no, yeah, <laughs> you've made you've taken an interesting moral conflict, and by taking it to a ridiculous extreme, you've removed all the nuance from it and made it uninteresting. Yeah, and like that, you, and you shot exactly, yourself in the foot. That's exactly what that game does. Uh, I mean, the, the the elf spirit is is just over the top. I mean, they they make him like a mustache twirly bad guy right from the get go. And Talion's still kind of like, you know, trying to retain some of his humanity. But the whole thing just it, it just feels like somebody created it in like a, you know, a fifth grade writing class and spiced it up a little bit with cooler graphics. It, it's really not good. Um, the story, the, the, Shelob as a as a ancient elf, it's, it, it's just all I mean, it's it's all comes together in this mishmash. It might as well not even have been a Lord of Rings property, to be honest with you. I mean, they could have made the orcs robots, and there's a big, bad, evil robot. It, it, it wouldn't have changed nothing about the game. The orcs somehow had more personality, but less personality. I didn't give a shit about any of them. I didn't want to enslave them because they were boring, and I could beat the game without them. Um, I, I, they didn't help me. They, half the time, they got in my way. When they would die, it would take me out of you know the combat. They had these three-minute-long monologues that were just kind of goofy, then they say the same thing over and over and over again. Like, yeah, okay, maggots brought you back to life or something. I don't care. Let's fight, you know? Um, the the loot was somehow, you got too much of it, but none of it was any good. None of the stats ever really made sense. Unless oh, you so had it's a, like the first Mass Effect where you're just drowning in loot. Yeah, you're, you're, you're getting it a, well, I mean, you're getting one every time you kill an orc. And it's like, you have to sit there in the menus and be like, okay, well, it's the same damage, but this one, you know, has this effect. But if I kill five captains, then it unlocks this effect. And it's like, man, it's a sword I'm going to replace in 20 minutes because I'm going to get a new level. And I'm going to be doing the same thing over and over again, oh, you know? It's like playing a JRPG. Yeah. See, I, JRPGs, at least, at least you're, like, min-maxing. Like, getting around in the menus feels like strategizing. This just yeah, feels it, like busy work. It, it is. And, I mean, the orcs level with you, but at the same time, if you're good enough, you can kill one. I mean, it, the, the combat's not particularly hard. It's Batman combat still, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, everything about that game just seemed like, like nothing, it's such a hodgepodge, it doesn't work. Um, I I don't want to talk about it ever again. (laughs) And it had microtransactions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't stay with loot boxes. So that's delightful. Um, and what other titles for this uh, disappointed you? This one is kind of in a disappointment and a worst of Dawn of War 3. Um, I'd say more of a disappointment. I, I'm I love RTSs. Uh, RTSs are my um, my my go-to genre for you know comfort gaming. Um, and there, Dawn of War three is such a, a weird mistake of a game. Um, I, I don't know what they were kind of going for. I think they've tried to explain it a couple times, you know, and even said that they screwed up the game. And hey, come back, look, we've patched all this stuff, but. Um, the battles play out really weird. I, I feel like they cribbed too much from um, their their call or, or their company heroes games and kind of try to just reskin it all with orcs and stuff. But um, the units don't support each other well, which I think is, is one of my biggest annoyances. Um, the sides kind of all have like the same type of unit that does the same type of thing, uh, which makes sense in a World War II game, but doesn't really make sense in a in a Dawn of War game. Um, none of the units kind of, 
you feel like they do much. It's got that kind of blobby fighting style where you throw everything together and things fight for, for a lot longer time than you'd expect them to. And then one starts to die and then one runs away. And it's, I, I don't know. I mean, the, just everything about it didn't feel like a good RTS to me. Um, and it doesn't help that another Warhammer strategy game came out this year and was actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Like Total it, War Warhammer. Yeah, and two. It, um, Dawn of War though is supposed to be like it's supposed to be the RTS, you know. But they they focus a lot on the on the MOBA side of it, I think, because that's uh, you, know, you know. So <laughs> so like when you play a versus, it's it's like you have to conquer certain areas to get to certain areas to beat the enemy base which i'm i'm i know they've scaled back since the release that's one of the things people are like this does not work in an rts like it matches like people i only played a couple versus matches people would say it was like they were like you know three hour matches and stuff because you have to take stuff in steps and that's not always easy in an rts you know um, I can't play a three-hour match. I'll have to go yeah. to the bathroom. Yeah, I don't know how true that is. That's just what people said. I mean, it's probably a yeah. six or a seven as a game goes. I mean, it's not it's not awful. Um, but, I mean, it's they, they try to do too much, too weird stuff. And it, it lost a lot of, like, the tactical focus that I liked about Dawn of War 1 and 2, which was where, you know, you're playing kind of a small group of Marines trying to kill 10 million orcs or whatever. Um, it lost a lot of that uh, to... to go more with a MOBA direction. And that was a mistake to me. Yeah. It sounds like they really took the wrong tack for what could have been a pretty, um, a pretty, like it should have been a slam dunk. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a MOBA. I'm, that's the one thing. It, it's, it's, it's like, a it's like an homage to a MOBA. <laughs> it's the best way I could describe it. It's like somebody heard of the concept of a MOBA. I was like, yeah, I think I can do that. But then just kind of, you like know, just half-assed it. Yeah, and then there's like this this meta game with the what they call them elites. So you know, like you can bring in certain heroes at certain points of the battle. You know, it's supposed to be like a MOBA, but when you're one person, you know, you're controlling, the, you're trying to manage it all. It's, it just gets too much too fast, especially with the way the armies lay out. You're having to you know go back and manage your base and manage your heroes. Manage it's 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 a good game, but it, it's not what I wanted a Dawn of War three to be. <clears throat> I wanted that squad based small RTS. All right. So, what's your your worst game of 2016? Ark Survival. 2017. Sorry. Ark Survival. Always and forever will be Ark Survival. Um, <laughs> is that out of early access now? Uh, who cares? <laughs> the game's game's a trash fire at this point. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I I guess they're getting it's a, out of early access. Okay. Hooray! Uh, don't buy it. Um, how do you fuck up guns, dinosaurs, and survival? Right. I mean, isn't that it's all supposed to be there, right? Um, this game's been in development forever. I mean, I would guess, what, three years or something like that? But it is a mess on PC. I don't know what it's like on uh, on um, consoles. I think I think it's got an Xbox release, a Switch release maybe. Um, I mean, it's the, the setting, the idea behind it is cool. Um, but, man, just having to, like, grind through all the stuff that you have to grind through... Um, I mean, like, I, I bet you that if you, like, were able to, like, search, like, arc survival grind, you'd probably get, like, a trillion hits. Because, I mean, you're grinding for everything. Um, I, I know, I think they put some, I think you can buy, like, 
like kind of like cheats or something. I don't want to say cheats, but I think you can buy like shortcuts and stuff like that. They've announced a whole bunch of um, expansion packs and, and, and like downloadable content. And I mean, stuff like that. And the game's only been out of early access, man. I don't know a month or two, maybe. Um, um, I can look it up. Let's see. Ark survival evolved on Wikipedia, our favorite resource. Uh, it's been out since the end of August. Yeah, there you go. They've already like I, they probably got like two DLCs and an expansion planned already. So, um, and yeah, they're, they're you, you're paying for those, even though it's they're selling a forty five dollars season pass. Yeah. So I mean, the the game, it, it, everything about it is geared to me, um, and everything I played about this game was awful. It's it's horribly optimized on PC. Um, you know, nothing runs right. You get to areas that just are, are really weird. You'll get killed by dinosaurs two seconds into the game just because you have a bad spawning sp- uh, part. Um, you're constantly needing to, to go eat, um, like, food in the game. It's it, it's really weird. Um, so, yeah, yeah, simulating eating and pooping. That's yeah. what we want to play. Yeah, it really is. You can you can do stuff with your poop because that's that's important. Um I mean, but yeah, the grind is is it's it's grind the game. And then I think the reason that it's like that is cuz I'm pretty I don't know if it, it was one of the things that they talked about, but there's little things you can buy that um I think make things easier. I don't know what it does, but uh, you know, it's it's awful and and man, what a game that it could have been. So uh, Ark Survival yeah, is a shame. Disappointment. I, I'm I'm pretty much done on survival games overall. I, I'm just gonna swear off them because I I've, I, I mean, I've never had one. They spend they look pro- the cycle with all these games is they look really promising. They have like a neat art style or uh, a neat gameplay gimmick, and they get positive reviews in early access. Then they get bogged down with shit or microtransactions while they're early access. Everybody hates them. By the time they come out. Everybody fucking hates these games, <laughs> and they have no like. That's what's gonna happen to fucking Daisy. Everybody loved the idea, yeah. Right now, it's still in development, and every recent review on Daisy is just like this game is a fucking pile of shit. Yeah, and, it, I mean, it's gonna happen with PUBG eventually, right? I mean, like pe- people burn out on these games for whatever reason they are. I mean, like how hot was Conan Exiles for? Do you remember Conan Exiles? Exactly. I've I mean, heard of this game. But I can't tell you what. The oh, it's about. it's the one where you can hang dong. Oh, sweet dong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, it's, so, it's, I, it's, not, it's also in early access. I think it's been in early access for probably two years now. Uh, how long do they need to tweak the damn kicks? <laughs> I don't know. And it's, there's not much to it. You know what I mean? Like, but, yeah, it, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, this weird survival games that stay in early access for multiple years. Uh, they are, they're off my, my plate from here on out. Yeah, it's just a shame because I, I think there's scope for making a good game in that genre, but they just keep going through this cycle, and I don't know what to do to break it or why they keep going through the cycle in the first place. Yeah. All right, uh, Radio Cat, why don't you tell us about your the year's biggest disappointments? So I, I mean, I think I've made some good decisions with my gaming this year, so I haven't really played a ton of things that I've been disappointed with. Um, the one of them is a it's a little bit it's not really much of a game because it's animal crossing for the phone the uh oh, yeah. pocket, pocket camp. camp there we go uh yeah what? hot pocket camp 
pocket camp. Uh, <laughs> that, totally that, that's game, the X-rated dude. version. That's I would, a little different. I would play hot pocket camp. Uh, yeah, it's just it, get your it, finger right up in there. It generally was kind of like a. It has some of the spirit of Animal Crossing, but they really stripped away a lot of what I loved about Animal Crossing. Sure, you can make your campsite and stuff, but it really is just kind of like a grind to get new characters and stuff. And like, I feel like your choices in what you can build and stuff, it's just not as thorough as the other games. You can't collect, like, there's no museum aspect of it, which was oh, another man. part. I That's thought like one of the few things that kept me into uh, Animal Crossing when I was into it. Exactly. There's not even fossils. Like it's essentially you're just collecting fish, uh, fruit, and bugs, and then like people will ask you for the uh, some combination of those items, and you give it. You're to just them. collecting food. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. That's insane. That's it, <laughs> yeah. And and there's still the house building thing, but it's like you have a campsite so you don't even get to pick like the flooring or the walls it's just outside and like you're like a hillbilly because you have couches out on the, your lawn like it's <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think the draw of the whole series of animal crossing is the persistence right i mean wouldn't yeah like 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 you know you every time you come back to your city you know things happen and you things change and that at least to me that's what kept me coming back and i mean it's not it's not a, I don't know. It sounds like they're kind of like making the Sims light or something. Yeah, and I know I it, so far they already have had their first uh, seasonal event because right now they're doing uh, Christmas stuff. So I I'm sure if they'll keep up sort of stuff like that, so people keep playing. But uh, I I just can't see you know popping in every day to play this game. It 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 really is limited in what it does. I think. Mm. Yeah, that's a shame. Uh, so what have your other disappointments been this year? My only other one really is kind of one we talked about. It's the whole Battlefront 2 thing. It it It's just like, because I played the beta and I had a good time with it, but with all this other crap about it, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy it. And so I, I'm disappointed that this is how it is and that I'm not going to be able to play it unless there's a severe discount or a severe change of how they operate the game it's crazy that you can fuck up star wars you know (laughs) exactly i love star wars i want to play star wars and you're not letting me play star wars the thing about battlefront 2 is it looks absolutely gorgeous i mean it's one of those games that just looks good in every way um so yeah i mean it's to to mess this one up i think is 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 awful um yeah I don't know. And by all accounts, the mechanics are solid. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's it it's with, riddled with. It's yeah, it's just it's solid with this shitty economy. I don't know about this. Do they still do the uh, if you want to become a hero or a tie fighter, you got to pick it up in the middle of combat? No, they fixed that. They, oh. they, they pretty much took that was the other thing. It's like Battlefront One was eh, whatever. They had a lot of issues, and to me, this from the beta at least. It seemed like they listened and took the advice and fixed a lot of those issues, but then they tacked on this bullshit. Yeah. Like, uh, you essentially you earn credits through the game, and then as you get more credits, you are able to select um, when you're spawning. Um, oh, I want to spawn as this other character who has or like a robot, like that has the power levels that has um, you know 
specific weapons or like it's like a boost and then you can save up all your credits and then eventually get to be a hero huh yeah i mean it's oh, man oh my god i'm that, with you that, that grind i didn't buy it i mean as much as i mean i didn't enjoy battlefront one and that that was part of the reasons why the fact that like you were always just kind of had it luck upon whatever you whatever bonus there was yeah and then, and then it, people end up camping it yeah, and then and then someone gets in like the ATAT and just destroys everyone on the map. Like, you know, it, it it's very it was a very weird game that was based around um, I don't I don't even know how to explain it. Based around kind of like a luck system than anything. Yeah, yeah. So it goes. Um, so yeah, those are Radio Cat's disappointments. Um, I should name my least favorite games of the year, and these are actual like least favorite. These are the worst games I played in 2017. Um, and at number three and number two, respectively, are two 3D platformers, ukulele and poi. It hurts me uh, a little bit to hear you say ukulele. <laughs> yeah, did you you enjoyed it a little bit, right? I, I had a good time with it. it. It wasn't great, but it was okay. Now you know how I, I feel good talking about I don't Andromeda. hate ukulele. <laughs> I'll say there's a, there's a big gulf in quality between ukulele and poi. Like, poi is just a straight-up bad game. Ukulele is a game that should be so much better than it is. Yeah, like, man. That, that's the thing. I felt like I wanted more from it. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of hype for it, too. And I feel like you, it was as hyped, if not more, than some of the other games that were coming out around that same period. Yeah, for sure. It's just, it, it ended up with, with really poor pre-release reception, and that just sank it. Um, what I will say, though, is that, so these are both games that look back to the N64 era of 3D platforming. Ukulele want, wanted to be the new Banjo-Kazooie. Poi wanted to be the new Super Mario 64. And both of them utterly failed to understand what made both of their inspirations good. So Ukulele is just like a shitty version of Banjo-Kazooie. And Poi is just like a garbage version of Super Mario 64. You'd have more fun going back and playing those old games than playing these new ones. Uh, and so that's why they're near the bottom of my list for 2017. There are games that not only just like ignored the past 20 years of game development, what they were looking back at trying to do, they ended up fucking up. So, I mean, do you think it's, it's like, were they too faithful or were they, were they? It's not, I would say it's a matter of not being faithful or, or being too faithful. It's a matter of just not understanding what made those games good in the first place. If that makes any sense. It's, like, for example, when you play Banjo-Kazooie, collectibles are arranged in a way that guide you through the level. So it's very easy to get around. Ukulele, collectibles are arranged haphazardly. There are no landmarks. You can get lost in a level really easily. Yeah. It's very hard to kind of get your bearings. Um, and then similarly for, for Poi, take Super Mario 64. Um Engaging with enemies in that game is actually interesting because they all try to attack you in a different way and you can combat a bunch of them by, by jumping on them or, or running around them or sometimes knocking them into, into lava. With Poi, every single enemy with the exception of bosses is attacked by, by rolling into them and you have to time the roll perfectly or you'll take damage. The window on the, on the on the roll is so narrow 
that if you don't time it perfectly, you're just going to take damage, even if you hit them, even if you hit them in a way that looks like you hit them perfectly. Um, I mean, so engaging with enemies is just a gigantic pain in the ass. You know, and, and hearing all that, it's crazy because platformers have really upped their game the past couple of years. If you think about, it. I mean, not just Cuphead, but a lot of the other tough stuff we've talked about. I mean, Ori. Um, there's oh, I love Ori. Yeah, yeah, Ori in the Blind Forest, like brutally difficult, but also very fair and gorgeous and well constructed. If you want to go the 3D route, uh, Super Mario Odyssey this year is really good. A Hat in Time this year is really good. Um, it's possible to make a good 3D platformer in 2017. And the fact that these shitty ones came out near the start of the year, I think, kind of poisoned the well. Um, yeah, so it's, it, that's it's, why they're on my list. Yeah, it's just weird to me. I mean, I think I think if you're going to try to make a spiritual successor to anything right now, you've really got to you got to pull your shit together. You can't just be rooted in nostalgia and hoping people are like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, and then yeah. I acknowledge yeah. that some of the new systems out there exist because, man, I mean – because. If all you have is nostalgia and you can't live up to those older games, then you're just going to look really foolish by comparison. Um, All right, so moving on to the worst game of 2017. In some sense, it's a little unfair. I picked a visual novel, um, and we all know that there are mounds of garbage visual novels on Steam, but I do think putting it on this list is fair for one reason. Um, so it's called Stay Stay Democratic People's Republic of Korea. <laughs> okay. It's a pair. Right, it's supposed right. to be the name is is a reference to uh, this surprisingly popular visual novel called Go Go Nippon, My First Trip to Japan. Um, so it's both the game itself is sort of a parody of that. Um, the premise being you're somebody who goes on a tourist visit to North Korea and you're uh, your tour guides are two beautiful ladies, and you know the story proceeds from there. But it has no satirical bone in its body, really. Like it, like it makes it makes like you know Grand Theft Auto has like calls like Facebook Life Invader, uh-huh. right? And that's like yeah. the height of humor or satire in Grand Theft Auto. That's the satire, a level of satire we're dealing with in in uh, Stay Stay. <laughs> like it's just. You have the opportunity to create this biting satire of the North Korean regime, and you're as toothless as Life Invader. Um, like, and on like, top of that, sorry, go ahead. Maybe like you do something like a papers please type, you know, angle to it, you know. But what you're yeah, describing, like it doesn't even have to be serious. It can be a, a parodic game. It can be funny, but like your satire has to be has to have some teeth. And this game satire has no teeth whatsoever. Uh, on top of that, it tries to be like a legitimately serious dating sim, and like, no, if you're sending up a dating sim, don't make a don't make a dating sim, right? Yeah, like you have to send up the tropes of a dating sim if you're making fun of dating sims, and then finally, towards the end, it becomes like deathly serious and sincere out of nowhere, and like huh. you did earn that. Right? Yeah, I mean, you you're were making fun of shit. Why, why not just the set it time. somewhere fictional? I mean, I, I feel like North Korea's. I mean, it's not a fun place. I mean, no matter how <laughs> yeah, you look like, at it, it's. Of yeah. course, it's not fun. <laughs> uh, and I think there's there's the opportunity. Like you could have made a game that ended like this game that was just a serious visual novel, or you could have made like a parody. You could have made a satire. You could have made like but North Korea. Yeah. Yeah, you could have made like the interview, right? <laughs> but this is not that game, and it's disappointing because. 
it was getting positive Steam reviews. It looked really funny from the outside. And when I played it, I was just like, this is what pe- – when people think of shitty visual novels on Steam, this is what they have in mind. Yeah. So that's why it's the worst game of 2017. Um, oh, yeah. Other reason I'm going to call this, this, uh, this game out, uh, their publisher um, – very, says that they're willing to to publish anything except for I believe they say uh, stuff involving Yaoi. So uh, yeah, hmm. anything involving anything except Not for the gay Google stuff. That. <laughs> yeah, I'm just always always uh, one step behind whatever the news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like nobody's playing Stay Stay, and nobody cares about the publisher. It's never going to cause controversy. Um, not that really should like you know publishers can publish whatever the fuck they want, but still, a little sketchy. You're like, yeah, girl, girl, great, uh, guy, okay. guy, nah, now we got you. <laughs> yeah, a little, little, uh, little weird. Um, so yeah, worst game of 2017, right there. Stay, state Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Buy a better visual novel or play a good free one like Katawa Shoujo. Um, all right, so. Weeb shit out of the way. What were your biggest <laughs> surprises of 2017? Um, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I, there's got to be somebody's got to write a book about how Rainbow Six Siege is right now the number third most played game on Steam. That is insane, guys. To go from I mean a hard flop to with enough developer support pull out that kind of number to me is and we talked about how the shooter community is just moving on this was a, a niche game to start right i mean wouldn't yeah i mean it, it is a hardcore four versus four asymmetrical shooter one shot you're dead i mean it's it's as t- slow paced and tactical as you can get the fact that it's still got a community to me is is awesome um, I, I, every bit of credit goes to the guys who have been supporting that game that's that's just really good news um, so, I mean, I guess there is hope for some of the other shooters that kind of got, you know, mixed support at launch. Yeah. Um, 2018 is going to be the, the year that Lawbreakers comes back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I, I think that there's a, there's a message there, right? I mean, it's the opposite of the Andromeda message, right? If, if you believe in a game, if you believe in your vision for a game, then get out there and support it, make patches, make, you know, listen to the fans, but don't make every change that fans want. Make, you know, the fact that that game right now is, is killing it is really good news. I mean, um, it, it kind of came out at a weird time. It, there wasn't really a comparable game to it. It was not a Rainbow Six game in much ways, um, you know, besides the name. But, yeah, what a, what a cool game. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed the time I spent with it. I'll drop in and drop out on it every now and then. Um, I feel like that and For Honor were kind of like test cases, you know? Um, For Honor kind of fell by the wayside. You know, it's kind of a online multiplayer fighter. Um, and I don't think it worked for a, a lot of different reasons, mostly because the servers were awful, but uh, Siege kind of did its own thing, and, and I'm glad that there's a space for that kind of game. All right. Um, any other surprises you have from 2017 you want to share? Uh, yeah. Uh, Madden 20, 2018's uh, long shot mode, I guess 27, whatever, the new Madden, uh, long shot mode was really fun. Um I know a lot of people have kind of moved on on sports games. Not very popular for most people, but 
Uh, I mean, there's still a huge part of the culture that I think is under-discussed. Yeah, the, the idea of a football RPG, uh, I think, is a really neat angle. And, I mean, it takes you from draft day to, to getting picked to taking, like, to basically being tutored to how to become a quarterback, what's the different things you need to watch for, how to read the different coverages. Taught me a lot about football. Uh, you know, I never played quarterback. Um, you know, I played football, but not quarterback. But it taught me a lot about, you know, what to look for, how to diagnose blitzes, how to, you know, where, where the safety coverage is going to come from um, in, in a cool way. If you made the wrong read, you know, it affected your stats, which affected your draft day, you know, type thing. Um, so, I mean, it was it was a really neat game. Um, is is this the, the story mode with Mahershala Ali? Yeah. And then what happened? Okay. When you beat it, you can import that guy into your team based on where he gets drafted, uh, which I oh, thought nice. was a really neat little nod. I mean, it's a custom roster. You can't take him into, you know, but uh, I thought that was a really cool little nod that you can play. Like basically this guy's NFL career as well. Um, they, they added a lot with this new Madden. I'm, I'm, every year with Madden, it's like it's, it's like it's not even one step forward. It's one step forward, one step back. It just always kind of equals out somehow. But I really hope. It's EA, so who knows? Probably put it under a microtransaction. But I really hope they they hear and see that people enjoyed Longshot and put a lot more behind it because I could pay, I could play an entire RPG length football game after this little. It was probably like a four or five hour mode, I would guess, depending on how much you want to save scum it. Um, but really enjoyed yeah, they it. They can make like a twenty hour RPG out of this. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any surprises? Okay, so uh, Radio Cat, where are your surprises this year? I. You know, I got to say, I was not entirely surprised this year. Uh, there was just, you know, uh, I was surprised by the announcement of, um, I think it was announced this year, right? Samus Returns, the remake of yeah. Metroid 2. Yeah, that was that was a pretty cool thing. I still haven't picked it up, but I will eventually. I'm excited that it exists. So that was a... Yeah, they also announced Metroid Prime 4. Which oh, was yes. Also a pretty good surprise. That, that, that's a good surprise. That's, that's mine, too. Uh, <laughs> That was that was completely unexpected. I thought they had you know done away with Prime series, but uh, it coming back to Switch is another big get for the console. Yeah, it's like I thought after the failure of Federation Force that Nintendo was just going to be done with Metroid, but apparently this is a franchise that they care a lot about. Now, if they could give the same love to like Earthbound and F Zero, that would be really nice. But yeah, I don't see that happening. It's it's Nintendo. <laughs> They're like maybe maybe they'll make like another Ice Climbers game for the Switch. It's just gonna blow everyone's mind. But I think uh, Nintendo, once a franchise, has been dead for you know Wait, ten years. Are you it's, saying it's people dead. aren't invested in Nana and Popo? I am. I, okay, <laughs> so <laughs> we had this debate earlier this year. So everybody thought they were lovers. And then a whole bunch of other people thought they were siblings, and they had this huge argument about it. And apparently they're neither. They're just friends, although originally they were intended to be lovers. I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) I thought they were siblings, so I learned something. Yeah, I I don't know what's going on with those two, but hopefully they work it out. (laughs) Uh, I'm rooting for them, rooting for those crazy kids. Uh, Do you have any surprises? Uh, No, not really. Not that I can... Oh, actually... The thing they just did, like two days ago, they released the Zelda second DLC the night they announced it. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, and thus sticking to uh, 
to their their promised release schedule. Nintendo actually just didn't delay any games this year. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> most like most platform holders and most developers, publishers, they delay at least one or two games. Not every game hits its target. So Nintendo's doing really well on that front. Um, okay, so I should mention what my surprises this year were. Uh, one that really came out of left field was Golf Story. I was just not expecting that game to... Uh, like, first, like that game came out of left field. Like, they're making a golf RPG? How is this even going to work? The combat is golf? <laughs> um, but it actually works really well. Um, and, you know, you actually, you're, this is a golf game where you actually have to build up your stats and level up. And uh, getting a really long drive is crucial to playing the later courses. So leveling up is crucial. You have to do side quests that involved weird variations on golf, like hitting crabs with golf balls. <laughs> That's the thing you do in this game. Um, you, you might not know this. Does, does golf store have anything to do with the, um, the Cairo soft company that does games on Android, I guess. And that like, uh, they have like game dev story. Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. This is made by Sidebar Games. Is Kairosoft an Australian developer? I'm not sure, but uh, okay, they definitely. Because Sidebar Games was is Australian, so yeah, I just didn't um, know about that story. They might they might be from the same scene. Uh, we can look that up later. Uh, but yeah, Golf Story was built by like this Australian team, and it's unabashedly Australian in a lot of ways. There is some Aussie slang in there. Um, there is a golf course entirely populated by bogans, like Australian rednecks. Um, the humor is weird and wild and out there. Uh, I was not expecting this game to exist and then to be so good after buying it. So, yeah, a weird golf RPG that's like a top-down 16-bit RPG is one of the best games of the year. So go ahead and... Plop down 20 bucks on it if you're a Nintendo Switch owner. I will. Um, all right. And possibly, this is not, this ended up being a great game, but this is possibly one of my biggest surprises of the year. Uh, Late Shift. It's an FMV game. It's an FMV choose your own adventure game. And it didn't suck. What? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, her story you know, sort of paved the way for an FMV renaissance. But FMV games have a rep had a reputation for the longest time for just being garbage. And Late Shift isn't, like, an amazing game by any means, but it's good. You know what's crazy? Like it's a solid it's, title. I saw this on Steam, and I thought it was a movie until you just said it was a game. <laughs> you know how Steam sells movies, right? Wait, yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's like an interactive movie. You're just picking what to do at certain points, and it mostly plays out like a movie. Uh, but there are like, you know, a dozen decision points over the course of the story. Um, it's really well made. Wow. It's professionally produced. It looks like it, it doesn't have, say, I wouldn't say it has the budget of a network TV show, but it has the budget of a cable TV show. Um, so, you know, there, it has explosions and stuff. It's really well put together. And I'm glad that this thing exists because if... If nothing else, just as a proof of concept that this is a viable genre of games that people can make. So, yeah, yeah that, Late Shift turned out to be a pretty good surprise. I didn't even know it was a... I mean, I thought it was like a Night Trap thing, but uh, that's cool. Yeah, so it's it's legitimately pretty good. Um, so go check it out if you, if you want. 
Uh, so those are all my surprises for the year. Is there anything else about 2017 and gaming that you just are itching to tell the rest of our audience? Oh man, I don't know. Uh, I, feel, I, I feel like this is the year that like gaming's kind of left me behind culturally. Like I still play a lot, but man, it's hard to keep, it's harder and harder to keep up. And I, I'm just so burnt out on the anger uh, at a lot of the places I frequent. So I, I, I don't know. I just kind of get all my news from you guys these days. yeah i i think this is a year where culturally i felt very out of touch with games but in terms of the games i played and in terms of the deluge of quality titles that were coming out yeah it's been one of the best you you can't can't deny it was a fantastic year for games. yeah it it is and it's just it's just i mean when i hear people talk about it's like you know it feels like all we ever hear about is the bad stuff and that's why like you know what we've kind of got going on our site, which is you hear the good stuff too. It's not all just, you know, complaining about EA constantly, which is, you know, okay, we get it. What do you want me to do? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, we all hate them. Did my battlefront. Okay. Did my part. Leave me alone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been a great year for video games. It's been a great year for this podcast. This is still going. This is our second year in review podcast. So, We've been at this for a while, and somehow we're still going, and somehow people listen to us. <laughs> like I can check that there's enough download. Like I can check our like our downloads page and views page, and people outside the avocado listen to us. Oh apparently. my god, so, that's that scary. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. Um, so you can check out the avocado at the-avocado.org. That is the community that spawned this amazing podcast. Um, and they have a whole bunch of other stuff on that site. Um, basically chat rooms and articles about movies and TV and video games and plays and books. So if you're into pop culture, it's a place to go. Um, we also have our own separate website for the podcast uh, where we post link dumps and fact check what we say on here. That website is avocadogamescast.wordpress.com. We're also on iTunes, Google Play Music. Just search for us. Uh, search for Avocado Gamescast. You can subscribe to us if you like listening to us on your iPod. Do they even make iPods anymore on your iPhone, I guess? Uh, they don't make the Zooms, subway. and I'll tell you, I'm not happy about that. Uh, hey, I was a Zoom, Zoom love till I die. You're, you're a Zoom enthusiast? Oh, man. I was a Zoomster. <laughs> Zoomster. <laughs> uh, a Zoom aficionado. Um, All right, guys, this has been fun and time-consuming, but mostly fun. (laughs) So uh, we will call this podcast to a close now. Hopefully your ears aren't bleeding after like five hours of listening to us drone on about shit. Um, We'll be back at some point in 2018, so stay tuned. Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye.